Pastiche, part three by Jonathan Harnish the doer and not a critic, Tony Blair once said, Pastiche, it is, in response to the heavily criticized and controversial author Jonathan Harnish's, Porcelain Utopia, 2016, etc., work and life, he offers this colossal work of erotic literary art that mixes styles, materials, etc., wildly varied in style and content, I am a troubled man, the author confesses, with feelings, I am not good, but I know how to be good, I burn bridges and build better ones, I can't make my mind up because my mental landscape is full of wondrous things, I can love, and I am learning to be in love with myself. I don't know how to trust, but I trust I am alive. I make more mistakes than I should so I am continually learning. I am always sorry, and I always forgive myself. I never change and yet I feel changes. I am afraid of letting anyone else in my life too close and yet I find I'm not running away because I am curious. The door to my life is open because I am genuine and authentic and real. People will come and go, and I'm blessed that I have known them. The door is too big for it to be blocked by anything that wants to flow free, and the current of life that goes through it pulls with it all its uncertainty. Pastiche is one of the most disconnected, confused intentionally unedited literary masterpieces of independent writer Harnish's untamed career, exploring its readers to the flighty, turbulent and often disturbing schizophrenic thought patterns, which the disorder presents. The author also struggles with schizophrenia. I don't think writing is therapeutic. It's real hard for me. It's not an enjoyable process, Harnish admits. Well he says, during the doctor say he is not cured. Cured? Huh? Well, George, how are you feeling today? Dr. Abrams smiles right back, in that pseudo-friendly way he has. Great. Fantastic. I think I could walk right out of here today. He stresses the word walk. The doc grins. Well, there are good days and there are bad days. George. George can see this as Dr. Abrams' game, and he is not going to play it. I got a lot of good days ahead of me, Doc, and I don't want to spend them in a nuthouse. Dr. Abrams sighs. George, you committed yourself. Six months ago, you knew that you had a problem, now you've regressed, you're in denial. George, trust me, and the other physicians, you have a long way to go yet. George, a long way, A.G. great point, Dr. Abrams, George says, he curses himself for letting the stutter slip, on today of all days, but George perseveres, a great point, that I committed myself, if I committed myself, I can uncommit myself, Dr. Abrams shakes his head sadly, this is me, uncommitting myself, George insists, look, I'm better, I walked in here without a hop. I haven't said a word about the voices, but do you know what? They are gone, totally gone, and the Tourette's, well, I'm stuck with that forever, but that's hardly a committable offense, Dr. Abrams cuts him off, George, to tell you the truth, your therapist gave me a call this morning, Vane, is it you, I looked you up, your family, and you are a high ticket in here, what do you mean George's first hint of fear is a tick in his right cheek, not today, George commands himself, I'd like to keep you in here, Dr. Abrams concludes, George shrugs, playing it cool, I'm out of here, I will walk right out of here, against medical advice Dr. Abrams rolls his eyes to the ceiling, he presses his fingertips together, it's all an act, George knows, all Dr. Abrams needs is to know that George is not bouncing off the walls, shredding his precious books or ripping the leather from the chairs, as long as George doesn't do that, he can do whatever he wants, except leave, if they only knew what trouble their money was going to bring, George thinks, my wretched parents would have thought twice, he laughs, no they wouldn't have, George, Mr. Abrams continues, George, you tried to kill yourself, for your personal safety, we have to keep you here until we are sure that you won't try to do it again this time that friendly smile is gone, replaced with a smirk, George stares silently, not saying a word, he wants to stand, to shake Dr. Abrams until his tonsils fall out on the floor, to throw him out the window, then jump out himself, and use the body as a cushion, then steal a Bram's car, George wonders if Abrams keeps his keys in his jacket pocket or somewhere in his desk, no, stop it, George thinks, saying people don't think about that, isn't that right? Vane, I've always wondered, Dr. Abrams sighs again, okay, that's fine, you'll still have to wait for us to get your paperwork together, George's eyes light up, then he sees something in the duck's face, how long will that take he asks, as long, Dr. Abrams' voice trails off, a funny glint coming into his eyes, as long as it takes, he concludes, George is screaming, but there is no sound, Vivian, that bitch, whore, that woman I love and hate, 
This Vivian, she created a paradise and set it aflame. She is my world and its end, my kinky sex goddess, my creepy crawly nemesis. Remember her, in all her glory, sleeping soundly under a teal-colored dream catcher in a red and white for poster. She never stood a chance, I never stood a chance. We love and hate no matter whose face she's wearing, whose heart she's tearing. I want to see her in those sling backs, her perverted, cotton candy toes peeking out to play. But I won't, not this time. George Schaefer loops and ties a thick piece of rope into a noose. Not this time, not this time, not this time for George. Everything comes in threes. His stutters, his mutters, his women, his crazy step, step, hop. Everything. This time is different. This time, I control my own destiny. This time, I end it all before you bastards have a chance to end it for me. He tosses the ropes looped end over the supporting beam in his old world style, country living room, then steps onto a chair and ties it tight. He cringes slightly, and lowers the loop over his head and tightens it around his neck. He steps off the chair and kicks it away. George swings, the rope burns his throat, he gurgles, trying to cough. His hands scrabble at his neck, his feet kick wildly, wanting to stand. Not this time, George Schaefer gasps, and a small trickle of air cools his throat. It's not enough, not this time, lightning bugs, fireworks burst behind his eyeballs, his whole body trembles and tingles and yells at him, he tries to scream, his heartbeat drums in his ears, pounding and pulsing with the blood in his eyeballs, thud, 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 George moans as the world goes black in his eyes, thud, 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 the black sedan pulls up to the curb outside of George Schaefer's old style country home, the driver, Benny, Benny, jumps out and runs to open the back door, George pulls himself up out of the back seat, I thought George was dead, Benny, well he isn't he's not, Bane, you know those creepy crawly walking corpses, those dead but not quite dead people, like zombies. Benny? Sure, sure. Like zombies, Bane. If that's what helps you sleep at night, whatever you say, Benny, it's your story. Now, Benny is at the trunk, pulling suitcases up and onto the sidewalk. George pauses for a minute, looks at him, then shrugs and walks up to his front door. His face is calm, peaceful, not a tick in sight. A brand new man, he thinks, his hand on the doorknob. Everything starts over now. Thud, thud, thud. A week later, a knock sounds on George's front door. He opens the door. It is Margaret. Though surprised, he acts normal. I didn't call, he says. I know, Margaret says. Her perfect brown curls flood over her creamy skin. I just wanted to see how things were going. Of course, he says. Ah, come in. No, would you like to sit on the porch? She nods. Drink, she nods. Water. When George comes out to the porch, she is sitting comfortably on his dusty, handmade wicker chair. How've you been? She begins. I know it's only been a week, but, oh, great. George says, he nods a little too enthusiastically, really, I'm like a new person, he smiles, his face a comfortable mask, I'm so glad to hear that, she gushes, I had a really, really great time on the trip, you know, I can't believe it, already, it's like a dream, we met the Dalai Lama, and trekked over the mountains, do you remember that guy, with the chicken she sighs, it was an amazing trip, yeah, amazing, George nods, the Dalai Lama, his spirit is so beautiful, just being around him, everything felt easier, or something, Margaret shines, I'm so glad, George, I just, you know when I found you, the day, when you were trying to, her voice fades at his blank stare, well, I'm just so glad I found you, just think, you couldn't have met the Dalai Lama if you were, well, she shakes her head rapidly, yeah, I know, he smiles sardonically, life is just great, super, yeah, thank you, for thinking of me when your therapist recommended the trip, George shrugs, Payne thought I should ask you, he doesn't say, because you're the only person I know who actually seems to give a crap, Margaret looks at him from the corner of her eye, she inhales, and pauses, opens her mouth, George, she asks softly, why did you do it, you need a reason in this shithole world, I don't know, I, he can't tell her about Vivian, Vivian hasn't happened yet, he fixes on a memory, it was hard to grow up with Tourette's, he says quickly, and my parents were shitty, I mean, well, even now I don't ever see them, they weren't around when I was a kid, either, all I had was this nanny, he pauses, Margaret glows at him, so proud of herself for having gotten him to open up, you think you can fix this, why not, Benny, are you unfixable, whatever George stifles an overwhelming urge to laugh, he coughs instead, go on, Margaret whispers, so this nanny, she was horrible, bad in every way, like, she used to pinch me and uh, grab at me and stuff, you know, 
Inappropriately Margaret leans back and inhales through her teeth. That's horrible she says. Yeah, they had to do surgeries and stuff. To her, make me normal looking. Margaret looks at him inquisitively, not getting it. She used to hold me in the air, by my dick. Nothing but. He trails off at her fierce blush. One day, George is going to learn when to speak and when to shut the hell up. But today is not that day. So, I don't know. Payne says I'm all messed up about that. George concludes lamely. Margaret shifts in her seat. George suddenly notices her toes, which she painted jungle red for the trip to Tibet. The edges are chipped now, worn out from weeks of sandals and dirt roads, from chlorinated water and unadulterated sunlight. Well, I think you're so, so much better now, she smiles warmly. Then she leans over and hugs him, awkwardly, since they are sitting in separate chairs. His brain whirs at her smell. Then she stands. Thank you so much for having me over, George, and thanks for the trip. It was amazing, she smiles down on him. The bright afternoon sunshine glows at the tips of her hair, making her face a blank mask. I'm so glad that you're doing well, with that, she leaves. Shortly thereafter, George leaves, too. George might or might not be all better. He thinks to himself, maybe I am, and maybe I'm not. And either way, he doesn't seem to care much. That is the best indication of George's sanity. Sane people do not go around wondering whether or not they are crazy. They just know they have nothing to worry about. Lucky bastards, George wanders through the kitchen, making himself a bowl of cereal. But crazy people, George thinks, crazy people are exactly the same way. There's only that brief transition period, somewhere between sane and insane, where a person is truly able to fear that their mind has gone. George sits down in his dark living room for a moment and glances at the window blinds. Fortunately brief, George resists the urge to descend into a catatonic stare, but he doesn't ask himself why, instead, he stands and decides to eat his cereal on the porch. Healthy people spend lots of time outside, in the light. In the morning, George shuffles slowly into the kitchen. The coffee machine is just burbling out the last ounce of coffee. Its clock reads 10 a.m. George glances at the refrigerator, and his magnetized eraser board that reads, to-do list. Beneath the line, the board is blank. George pulls a clean mug from the cupboard and pours himself a cup of coffee. He moves over to the back door, admiring his beautifully landscaped backyard with the Italian cypress, the trimmed hedges. Such a contrast to the old world, country feel inside. He breathes in the aroma of the coffee then walks back through the kitchen, towards the front door. From the corner of his eye, George sees that the light on his answering machine is blinking red. He stops, takes a slow sip of coffee, and presses the play button. Hi George. Margaret's voice echoes from the machine. It's Margaret. I was just thinking about what we talked about yesterday, remember? Anyway, this morning when I woke up, it occurred to me. Well, I thought it would be a good idea for you to maybe, maybe find your old nanny. You know George frowns as he stares at the machine, and you could confront her about everything she did to you and maybe get some closure or something? I don't know. Talk it over with your therapist maybe, but it came into my head like lighting. George's finger plunges toward the answering machine. Message deleted. The machine chimes. You have no new messages. George moves out the front door, his coffee in hand. He pulls the mail from the mailbox and sits on the porch. He takes a sip and then sets the coffee mug down. The woman's voice tickles his ear. Come here, little boy, come here. George turns. The woman who stares at him is in her forties, with wild frizzy red hair. Hi, George says. Hi, neighbor, and Vivian. I know we haven't met yet, but, well, I just moved in. Yep, yeah, I hadn't realized. George is entranced by her gaze. Then he looks down. Her bare feet. Her big pale feet. Her perfect, long, skinny toes. Her adolescent pink nail polish, partially chipped off. She intoxicates him. Well, it's nice to meet you, Vivian says. He looks up at her, dizzy. Yeah, I'm George. I'll see you later, George, she says. Later that week, George goes to the grocery store. Now that he has met the Dalai Lama, now that he is a new man, he goes to the store once a week. Or so he says, when he turns the corner, there she is, Margaret. George, she calls. There is no escaping. He stays put, lets her approach him. George, she says again, how have you been great? 
he says, just great, did you get my message Margaret asks, the one, about your nanny George shifts uneasily, yeah, yeah, he says, what do you think, did you try to find her, number, well, I'm gonna, you know, but it's not easy, I was going to do it to tomorrow, Margaret beams, oh, that's so wonderful George, I'm so glad, he nods, looking around him carefully, he fixates on a can of creamed corn, I just know it will help George, I just know it, Margaret gushes, why well, yeah, me, too, George says unconvincingly, well, ha, uh, got to go, he gestures to the end of the aisle, then shuffles toward it, engrossed in escape, escape from Margaret and all she wants to say, he is so engrossed, he almost forgets to check out, and is reminded by the alarm that sounds when he strides toward the door, damn it, George mutters, he turns around and holds his basket high in the air, sorry, sorry he announces, showing everyone that he is not a thief, somewhere, Margaret is watching him, somewhere, Margaret has seen this almost occurrence of sharp lifting, somewhere, Margaret knows exactly how not fine George really is, George sighs and stands in line with the rest of his fellow shoppers, later that day, George walks up the front walk to his home, bags of groceries slung from his fists, on his front porch is an unexpected note, George Porridge, having not seen you in some time, my affection toward you has cooled to mere fondness, I'm becoming indifferent, I don't want that, we've been separated from each other far too often, though you live right next door, I want to see you again, George, tonight, xxx Vivian affection, what is this woman talking about, George wonders if they have met before, maybe in another lifetime he can't remember, maybe last week at a bar, but he can't think, can't think, George's mind is stuck on repeat, his balls scream for release, Vivian is a bombshell, that night, George abandons his bright new self and rushes over to Vivian's, it's there, that the two are surrounded by vanilla scented candlelight, lust always wins over self-enlightenment, that's why we are at once so prolific and so infinitely ridiculous, George wears a light blue dress shirt with a loose tie and ripped denims, Vivian is completely naked, I can't believe you've never given a girl a pedicure, she purrs, believe it, I'm a virgin, Vivian, George is solemn, she sits in the candlelit bathroom, her plump cushion perched on her toilet bowl, George holds her foot in his lap, he is in agony, and enjoying every minute of it, are we being sensual, good god damn, you bet we are, Vivian hands over a bright red container of tiger balm, George massages her feet with his eyes closed, mm, that's so relaxing, it tingles, it's warm, she moans, he removes her old pink nail polish with store brand nail polish remover, well, and you the quick learn of Vivian smiles, George fills a small footbath with a vanilla scented soak, in five minutes, Vivian is asleep, he carefully removes her beautiful, clean, pasty white feet from the warm water and pats them dry, he creases the palms of his hands with a hefty dose of rose scented heel balm, then he massages her feet from the toes down to her heels, her feet twitch a little, she shivers, by the time George finishes, Vivian's feet are caught in soft, he kisses them, hoping she will not wake up, a sad smile passes across her face, is she dreaming, she is heavenly and peaceful, he can't stop staring, her eyes flash open, well done, well done, mister, she smiles, how do you know so much about pedicures, if you've never done one before George blushes, well, I've seen, I've watched how they're done, at the Sar salon, good boy, Vivian says, George buffs her toenails furiously, starting to have a little fun, what color would you like he asks, what do you think, what would look good on me Vivian looks him up and down meaningfully, what would you choose, say, if you could have my toes George's groin stick straightens up as though by command, Precum leaks into his denim crotch, he touches it for a second, a nanosecond, what are you doing she busts him, she laughs, nothing, George pouts, she pouts right back at him, raising her eyebrows, he flinches away from her all too knowing gaze, he carefully paints her nails, separating her toes with cotton balls, he colors them with two coats of hooker blue, he paints them rapidly, sweating and breathing heavily, when he is finished, he stands and swivels, making his way to the doorway, he has to get out of there, back across the yard to his own peaceful sanctuary, that sterile environment where his cum is safe to slurge, he will splash it into the bathtub and wash it down with a shower, safe, safe to fertilize the fishes and alligators and rats of the sewer, neighbor, wait for the calls, got to go, sorry, but now I'm too late for the party, she exclaims, George stops in his tracts, I want to congratulate you on what a great job you did on my pedicure, and on such short notice, too, he smiles, horny as all hell, now it's your turn, George's face gets that dreamy look, 
Sit down, she commands. George seats himself on the toilet. She sits herself on the floor, perfectly naked. Her shaved pussy smiles up at him coyly from the cold, white, sterile linoleum. He wants to smell it. Take off your clothes, she commands. George attempts to undress slowly, but misses the mark completely. When he sits again, his boner stands at attention. Vivian TSKS playfully. This has become your night. After all, she teases. I need to thank you for the great job you've done, neighbor. She stresses the word job. Ah, well, thank you, George says awkwardly. You like feet, she asks respectfully. Before George can respond, her freshly pedicured feet creep up his thigh and begin to gently rub his balls and shaft. George is queasy, sick, dizzy, in heaven, in agony, he can see right into her crotch. Her shaved pussy drips wet on the tile. Her vagina looks so lonely, within a minute, he can't take it any longer. He cries out in a strange squeal that makes her flinch slightly. Vivian, you've got to make me come George demands. Fast, please, please her feet begin to stroke his erect cock up and down. It is tall, proud, rising toward his face. All his boiling love sap about to explode. Do you want to come in my mouth Vivian asks. On your feet, just like that. Don't stop, don't stop. He begs, are you close and before he can answer, his white nut cascades over her toes. George wakes up on the cold tile of her bathroom floor early that morning. Vivian is sleeping, leaned up against the bathtub, her jaw slack. The light slanting in through the doorway shows every line of her face. She is old, but fertile. Her hair glows like flame. Vivian represents flashes of the future, a world on fire. George, seeking his lifelong orgasm, knows that she is trouble, but that's just what he needs, a world on fire. Forget the Dalai Lama, that happy, self-sufficient self that George has always known he could be. Fuck that shit. He just wants Vivian, and all the joy, love, torture, sex she promises. George leaves her place early, while she is still sleeping. In his kitchen, he glances at the refrigerator door. The magnetized board still reads to-do list, and nothing else. He doesn't hear from her at all that day, or the following week. He doesn't hear from her, but he sees her, watches her, more like it. The side of the house that faces hers, he lives on that side of the house now. Every movement from her yard sends him running for a window, he can't help himself. That wild hair, those purple circled eyes, that feral laugh, those toes, those toes. He can't see her toes without using binoculars, so he keeps the binoculars right on the windowsill. He is sick, he has a problem, you're telling me, shit. George hardly ever leaves his cage of paradise to enter the real world. Even though he feels pretty damn good lately, even though he is a new man yet, right? Exactly who does he think he's kidding, but sooner or later, he has to eat. George shuffles through the kitchen, his countertops and sink, cluttered with dirty dishes, soggy pizza boxes. He lifts his favorite mug, sniffs it, not too bad. He thinks, a little scraggy around the edges. The coffee machine clock reads 2.02 p.m. Fuck the swill man, he commands himself, just drink the shit. George pours the coffee into his mug and wrinkles his nose. He stands and stares at the refrigerator door, the eraser board, his hand twitches. George pushes his cart through the grocery store. Every third step he takes a small hop, just a small one. He turns the corner, and there she is again, Margaret. He would turn and escape, but he can't. Instead, his cart slams right into hers. They are tangled now, a mess of intertwining wires. George, she says. He nods, once, twice, three times. George, she says again, how are you G great? Jay just great. She looks at him from the corner of her eye and backs away a little. You sure? George she whispers. He coughs. Straightens up. Yes, he says. Of course. Did you get in touch with your nani yet? Huh? Yeah. Well, I'm still tracking her down. I'll let you know. George looks down at his feet, at the shelves, at anything. Margaret wrinkles her brow. Yeah, I guess that would be hard. Yeah, she waits, but he will not speak. Well, uh, I guess I'll catch you later. Right, she says finally. Yeah, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, George shuffles into his kitchen and drops a single, lightweight grocery bag on the counter. He stares at the refrigerator, at the eraser board, at the to-do list, which has got cigarettes scrawled on it in thick pen. He lifts the pen and checks cigarettes off the list. George sits on the front porch, a lit cigarette dangling from his lips. Healthy people spend time outside, he thinks to himself. He inhales smoke deep, deep into his lungs. He feels the reassurance of the thick black stuff spread from his lungs outward. He smiles, calmed, 
George is a bundle of purpose, a self-made man. Self-assuredly, he steps from task to task throughout the day. By the end of each day, he is exhausted, and pleased with his progress. Oh, yes, George is a man of energy, a man whose drive to succeed, to excel, is surpassed by very few. Really, it's a sunny day outside, but every blind is turned down inside George's home, making it feel like one gigantic, single, dark shadow. As he wanders through each gloomy room, he eventually stops in the study, glances down at his answering machine, the light is flashing. When did the phone ring? George wonders. Why didn't I hear it? He presses the play button. Hey, George. A familiar voice echoes. It's your mo. George's finger jams down hard on the delete button. Message deleted. The machine informs him coldly. Still, George can hear his mother's voice echoing in his head. You ungrateful bastard. You never appreciated a thing I ever did. You have no new messages. The machine chimes. George takes a cigarette out of his pack and puts it in his mouth. He doesn't light it. The cigarette dangles loosely from his lips as he walks over to the coffee pot. Always on. Never of. It is still half full of old coffee. He fills a dirty coffee mug and takes a sip. The coffee's so hot it burns his tongue. George drops the mug on the kitchen floor. Coffee spills everywhere as the mug shatters into countless pieces. George stares at the spilled coffee, the remains of the broken mug, and walks to the bathroom. On the can, George looks at the silver toilet paper dispenser. The roll is empty, his bleary, worn-out face is also blank, empty. He steps into the shower, talking to himself. The soap drops, thudding as it strikes the porcelain tub. George bends, he slips and falls. Goddamn, he moans. What a way to start the day, eh? George tries to start anew in the kitchen. He lines up ten espresso cups on the counter, each filled with black liquid tar. He pours sugar into each cup, running back and forth across the line-up. An unlit cigarette dangling from his lips, George pours each cup into a large thermos. He walks out of the kitchen, stepping right into the spilled coffee and porcelain shards. Coffee splashes up over his feet, but George doesn't notice. He walks into the living room, carrying the thermos. It doesn't look quite comfortable enough, so he opts for the porch. But something doesn't feel right there either. Sipping from his thermos, burning his tongue with espresso, George stumbles through the house to his bedroom. He collapses onto the blankets, groaning as his legs and back relax into the mattress. He props a pillow under his head and sips, sips, sips away at his black liquid tar. After downing half the thermos, George steps into the bathroom. He turns on the hot water in the shower and just lets it run. Steam fills the air and moistens his lungs. George needs something to satisfy him, to give him that everlasting orgasm he craves. Vivian is caput, now nothing but a ghost. She is out of the picture. He walks into the house, a lightweight shopping bag spinning from his fingers. He raises the check mark next to cigarettes on his to-do list and then rechecks it. On a desert highway, the midday sun reflects off the tinted windows of the moving stretch limousine, its pearl white paint muddy with the billowing clouds in the sky. Inside the limo, up front, a street map is open. Our driver, Benny, focuses on the long, straight road ahead. He sniffs. George has a face full of self-help literature. A pair of trendy new shoes lie on the floor beside his socked feet. George takes a long breath through his nose, closing the book that he has just finished. Its cover reads 12 steps for stupid people. Why are you always reading those? Benny asks. George's right eyelid flutters exactly nine times. George knows. He counts. He likes to count. I like to see what will happen if I do the exact opposite, he says. Benny nods. That sounds reasonable. They both pause, contemplating the anti-wisdom of self-help books. The dessert rolls by, silently mocking, mocking Benny. Really, it's just a nicker system. Course, mocking. There's no bigger fuck you to a man like George, a man living a sterile existence, than life as an ecosystem. A man like George, Benny, or a man like you, let it go, Bane, here we are, Benny finally says. The limousine pulls up to the iron gates of a palatial mansion. A trio of security guards in uniform open the door for George. Benny is directed to a smaller outbuilding around back, on the hat, black asphalt just within the gates. George strips to nothing. The dessert swelters behind him, sending up wavering gusts of invisible heat. 
George shuffles along carefully on the burning asphalt, keeping his head down. He is quickly joined by staff members wearing psych attire, white shirts, black belts, white pants, and shoes. They are clean, sterile people, perfect for George. This way, one says, his lips pale against the blanched cream of his skin. George steps through the open door of the mansion and turns to the right. The patio and interior are slate and marble, clean and cool. The floor is coated with naked people, all lying on their backs. George meanders through them like a zombie, and sure of his place in the carpet of bodies. The house seems dead, but is somehow breathing. The rank scent of vinegar assails his nose. George finds a small space. He lies on the floor on his back, waiting. He shivers, slightly. A loud siren screams, screeches, and a horde of young, naked women flood the room and scatter, rushing among the naked bodies. One by one they match themselves to pairs of feet. George's woman is creamy-skinned, with wild, red, frizzy hair and a scarred lip. She grins, and her scar turns the smile to a grimace. George holds back a momentary panic, as one, the women drop to the floor. George's red head rubs his toes a few times and sniffs his feet. She grins again, that same lopsided smile. This time, George is able to relax. He is in a safe arena. He and she are nothing but strangers. Their nakedness means nothing. They are surrounded by wriggling, mewling grubs. She strokes his ankles lightly, and his dick springs to attention. She grins her approval. Then swiftly she lows herself over his toes. His eyes zoom in on her pink crotch. It quivers, glistening wet. She pulls his toes inside of her. George gasps, jerking slightly at the feel of her. Her wet flesh sucks at him as she embeds his foot inside her slick pussy. Oh, God, George moans. His eyes close in ecstasy. Around him, similar noises rise as his fellow fetishists of their dreams fulfilled. Some are having their feet bitten, others are having razors drawn lightly through their skin. Many simply enjoy a foot massage or pedicure. Most, however, most, there are cries and moans and yelps around him. But George seems to be at peace, as he lies on the marble floor naked, stripped of inhibitions. Everyone is so wrapped up in themselves it is like he is not even there. He is a non-entity, a nothing. George's face spasms, his eyes tighten. All his peace condenses into a single, surging spark. With one last, piteous moon, George comes, his dick jerks. It is like a fountain, a continuous spurt, an everlasting orgasm. Perfection. It looks to him like he has splashed the red-haired, foot smotherer. A small spot glistens brightly on her pinky toe. And then it is over. She stands with one last suck, a parting flex of muscle, and then she is gone. A white, broad bottom trotting swiftly away. George sighs and smiles. Afterward, George partakes in a foot trampling, an egg stomping, a salt crystal crawl. He wanders from room to room in the mansion, feeling the cool, sweet air conditioning on his naked skin. He is not worried about his penis, which shrivels to an embarrassing size in the chilled air. In this place, George feels as invisible as anyone. Everyone is invisible. In this place, the foot trampling is fun as always, but still, George would prefer to lie on the ground and have someone stomp him with her feet, crush him under her strappy sandals. George seems overwhelmed with pleasure, but doesn't feel quite satisfied. He longs for something else, rather than stomping on X, feeling the messy yolk and white exploding beneath his arch. He would rather be cracking the egg over someone else's foot, rubbing it in. George's own feet hold only momentary interest for him. By late afternoon, George needs more than what the mansion can offer. After much searching, he finally finds an ample-sized woman behind a small, out-of-the-way booth in the far corner of the first floor. I need something else, George says. This is all very nice, but, well, it's just too nice, he explains. He gives a smile to the woman behind the booth. He reminds himself that even though she can clearly see him, he is still invisible. The woman smiles back at him politely. She knows more about what happens in this place than anyone yet. She seems to see nothing at all of what is in front of her. That is the secret to being a good front desk clerk. Did you try the foot smothering? She says. Many of our clients find the foot smothering to be entirely satisfactory. Well I tried it, George admits. But it's over. Now, I need more. Now, she nods in agreement. Of course. Quite understandable, she glances over the multi-tiered schedule in front of her. You are George Schaefer, he nods. The woman scrutinizes his day's schedule. I would much rather be walked on by other people's feet, George says helpfully. Oh, I'm afraid we don't have much of that here. The woman sighs. She looks at George appraisingly. 
But I think I've found something that will work well for you. Yes, it's just the thing, really. She points at a small square on the schedule, and George leans over to take a look. His eyebrows rise. Starts in 15 minutes, either on the tennis courts or in the shed. Depending on whether you'd rather do it in the dark, she drifts off. George nods enthusiastically. Thank you, he says. I'm here to serve. The woman smiles vacantly. Her eyes seem to look miles and miles past him, as though George is not really there at all. Twelve minutes later, George is standing in the doorway of the shed. It's dark inside, but he can hear the sounds of other masochists as they shift around within waiting for something to start. Minutes pass. George takes his place against the shed wall, watching the lighted doorway as a few other stragglers come in. Then, there is a long shushing noise as a hard and granular substance pours out of a large container and onto the floor. Salt rock crystals, George remembers. The bits of mineral ping slightly as they strike the hard cement floor. The door slides closed and George is plunged into utter darkness. The other masochists, who have been whispering and muttering amongst themselves the whole time, suddenly hold their collective breath. For a moment, there is silence. A voice booms from the darkness, get down on your knees, filth George complies with joy. The salt rocks thrust up at him mightily from the floor. Now, crawl, like the vermin you are the voice booms, George and the others begin to move around. With every motion, the crystals bite into his skin and the salt begins to burn just beneath the surface. He moans at the pain, the degradation of it all. He hears his fellow crawlers moaning likewise, the voice is released by his. Before he knows it, the room is filled with groans and moans, the pitiable cries of help from the damned, the self-hating salt crawlers. A part of George longs to get sucked into the orgiastic swirl of pain, the communal hell that they have created, but another part of George, who, me, Benny, floats above him, and watches the scene despite the total darkness. George foreshadows how pathetic he would become if he gave in to the moment, if he got carried away with the passion of the crowd, and, seeing himself so clearly, he could not possibly allow himself to become anything else, especially a pathetic salt crawler. He is both interested and uninterested, enthralled and bored. The self-doubt, the worrying, begins to make him tire of the whole experience. It all falls short of the constant, never-ending orgasm he longs for. His appetite will accept nothing less. Afterwards, back in his limo, George is dressed anew, in white shirts and shorts, a black belt. He's filthy, yet clean. He sighs, unfulfilled. His driver Benny glances at George's knees, which are badly bruised. What happened to your legs? Benny asks. Oh, that. I crawled on a floor covered with hard salt crystals. Benny pauses a minute, seeming to assess George's mood. He's been George's chauffeur for five years. He knows his boss pretty well by now. He speaks again, quietly. And why did you do that? George stares at his driver, whose face is reflected in the rearview mirror. He doesn't seem to judge. I don't know. It feels kind of good to crawl around on the ground. To feel pain, George is lying. It feels fucking great. Hum, Benny nods. It was George insists. He realizes he might sound a little crazy. My nanny used to do all kinds of sick and twisted things to me, George says quickly and defensively. You know, like if I didn't do my homework or forgot to flush or something. Stupid shit like that. Oh, man, I'm sorry, Benny says. A canned response. Anyway, I'm all messed up about it. George finishes lamely. You know yeah, that makes sense. Anyone would be, Benny says, nodding again. There is a long, uncomfortable pause. I bet she was just jealous of you. All your money, Benny says finally. It wasn't your fault, man. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Benny pulls the limousine slowly over to the side of the road. George sags back in his seat, and then reaches to the floor between his legs and pulls out a self-help book, which he tosses to the other side of the car. The limo stops. George and Benny get out, lean against the back bumper, staring out at the dessert. A tumbleweed blows by as George takes a drag on his cigarette. Benny exhales. You know, somebody actually takes the time to think up all these fucked up ways of torturing other, keeping them in brightly lit rooms for days, like in Iraq, so that they lose their sense of time. Somebody actually sits down and imagines these twisted ways to war people. Nani used to get off to the torture stuff. She must have George Blurts. That's sick. That's perfect, George decides. But how could I get into that kind of shit? I should hate it more than anyone. I'll fake it until I make it, until it works. It works if you work it. Benny sniffs. Yeah, probably, he says. You can't turn around these days without bumping into one sicko or another. He blinks as his words register in his own mind, and glances swiftly at George. She must have, George mumbles, 
It is clear Benny hasn't heard a word. He tries to redeem himself, but that's in the past. He says, plain counselor, maybe it's time to move on, to make something of your life, instead of letting your past own you. George scoffs, yeah, I'll make a mess is what I'll do, what is it that you want, George, for real Benny insists, you have everything a person needs and more, and George responds, the never ending orgasm, a peak experience that will last my lifetime, that's what I really want, George's face appears dreamy, he's in some other world, a roller coaster fantasy he can't escape, Benny snorts and takes another drag, speaking of which, that woman you fancy, Margaret, is she still employed as a helpline operator George waves his hand in front of his face, brushing Margaret off, nah, she's old news, he says, huh, says Benny, she's the one you went to Tibet with, right George nods, Benny raises an eyebrow, did you guys, huh, he sneaks a quick look at George, yeah George snorts, course, he is lying, they didn't, but that bitch, she's just so full of herself, he continues, walking around with that fucking holier than thou attitude, I swear, she's stalking me, it was pretty cool of her to go with you on the trip, Benny says, George gets what Benny means, yeah, I mean, she's great and all, whatever, it's just she likes her job too much, she's one of those people, at least she has a job, Benny mutters, George continues as if he hasn't heard, I mean, who likes their job, she's so fucking happy all the time, happy and fulfilled, that's Margaret, it makes me sick, does it make you sick, Benny, is that what makes you sick, shut up, Bane, this is my story, see yeah, I see what you mean, Benny says, for a long time they stay, leaning against the limo and staring out at the dessert, so you're seeing someone else now Benny sniffs and spits softly from the side of his lips, why yeah, kind of, George says, he kicks at a tumbleweed that has embedded itself in the back tire of the limo, my neighbor, Vivian, Benny whistles and nods, nice, he says, yeah George sneaks a look at him, yeah, she's alright, she's so clingy, though, you know, I'm thinking about calling it quits, hum, Benny mutters, holding back a cough, sounds like you've got it all figured out, he says, a few hours later, the limo pulls up in front of George's bungalow, Benny opens George's door, see you later, he says, George gives a half-hearted wave as he unlocks the front door and walks in, the door closes behind him, and he is alone again, George glances at his answering machine, it sits silent and dark, he presses the play button anyway, you have no new messages, the machine chimes, George turns the shower on and proceeds to shuffle around his filthy living room in the near twilight, the room is an overkill of every fancy modernization, every electronic doodad, and every entertainment gadget he could possibly squeeze in, there are photos and drawings framed across the walls of every past girlfriend, the bookshelves boast towards, trophies, and posters from his travels, there are seriously intellectual books, endless piles of them, most of them in three copies, his video and music collections feature an equivalent overabundance, he owns an absurd assortment of things, sketches and notes are left lying around, some only half complete, his drawings and paintings are scattered, unfinished, but still indicative of brilliance, then, there are the graph paper illustrations, intricate designs clearly drawn with some vague purpose, it's obvious that George has a strong mind, maybe too strong for his own good, he also an exorbitant number of projects in process, arbitrary projects, redundant and grandiose, the elements of his house, although artistic, are placed according to obscure mathematical relationships, everything somehow corresponds, quantum physics material is neatly clustered, labeled, and placed with the complementary videos and books, an MC Special print hangs in close proximity. Similarly, his stationary bike is surrounded by trophies, workout tapes, sports magazines, and signed baseballs. The metal ceiling fan reflects light while it spins slowly above the bike. George peeks out the window, hoping to catch a glimpse of Vivian. He rushes over and crouches by the curtains when he hears the door to her house open and close. He wonders if she notices him watching, and wonders whether she counts on the fact that he stares, still waiting, waiting for her, waiting for something. Maybe she is showering, maybe she has forgotten her towel and will have to walk through the living room naked. He thinks of sucking on her hooky blue toenails, they taste like candy. She is not home, her house sits empty and dark. George returns to the running shower, which is now steaming. He daydreams in the shower, even when the soap falls. He doesn't wash his hair today, remembering someone somewhere once told him, you never look your best when you meet the one you've been waiting for your entire life. You are never completely prepared for that. George resolves to never be fully prepared. No sects. Love, George mutters in the shower. She must have thought of me as the friendly type. 
That's fine, I'm used to it. He picks up the bar of soap, runs it over his hair, and rinses out the sus. I enjoy it myself, that's all that matters. George can see God laughing at him, taking delight in Vivian's orchestration of him. That day, that one day, that one eternal day she and he met, the day they were together. A pensive pause, an epiphany, I'll call it personal growth. He tells their walls of the shower, I'll never hear from Vivian, ever again he runs the bar of soap over his hair and rinses out the suds, forgetting he already has, my mind ran wild with quiet confusion, it soothed the senses, I could wake up tomorrow, thinking about the day, and the next day about today, he mutters, while I'm in love, I stop writing, for the most part, I know it won't last forever, I'm in love, I scoff at the thought, me, in love, in love with Vivian, me, in love with Vivian, George's alarm clock is set for 10am, it blares and blares, he dreams of fires, and sirens, he tosses and turns, eventually, the bright white light of the afternoon light shines through his blinds, George crawls out of bed, the clock mocks him, it's 2pm, George shuffles into the kitchen, he's a wreck, he pulls a mug from the sink and inspects the inside, not too bad, he thinks, again, just a little scraggy around the edges, kind of like me, George mopes around and stares blankly, he can't sleep, there's no use sleeping, he thinks, when your every need is attended to, no use in resting when you never exert yourself, four days on end he stares at the ceiling, at the wall fan, at Vivian's driveway and her empty windows, it all boils down to nothing, and he leaves for the grocery store, George Margaret calls, waving, doesn't this bitch ever go home, briefly, George thinks about leaving, racing out the doors and back home, instead, he grumbles and plucks a jar of pickles from the shelf in front of him, George, she says again, rolling her cart up to his, how are you doing great? just great, he answers, how's everything with you oh, the same, she says, there is an awkward pause, George scans the nutrition facts on the back of the pickle jar, meanwhile, Margaret seems to be weighing whether it would be better to buy generic or go for the brand name, what do you think about the riots she finally says, at a loss, how Georgie examines an entire wall of mustard, the riots, on the news, I'm glad that it's not on our side of town, I don't really watch the news, George replies, oh, Margaret looks stunned but only for a second, well you should really look into it, she says brightly, the east side is getting so crowded now, unemployment, you no, and they are starting to form crowds and, and you know they burned down the first Methodist church, don't you George shakes his head, you don't, George, you need to get up to speed, like I said, who knows when this might start to affect our neighborhood, someone actually takes the time to think up this shit, he mumbles, choosing the store brand Dijon, what, well, yeah Margaret gives George a searching glance, he tries to appear normal, anyway, it's all about unemployment and the lack of services for the poor, crime is through the roof now, on the east side, you know, there's this whole Robin Hood mentality, she must have gotten off to it, George mumbles, she just had to, Margaret searches his face, who, Vivian, what George looks at her face, what are you talking about, Margaret blinks, once, twice, hey George, let's get together sometime this week, she suggests, a sympathetic, almost pitying look on her face, yeah, yeah, sure, he agrees, thinking to himself it'll never happen, he'll pull his shades down, pretend he's not home, I'll drop by Wednesday, insists Margaret, she pats his hand lightly, you sure you're doing okay, she smiles, always with the smiling, does she ever stop, yeah, yeah, great, he replies, convincingly, with that, she saunters off, who is Margaret, really, Benny, who is Vivian Bain asks, crossing her slender legs, her eyes are steady on me, she thinks she sees right through me, knows all my deepest, darkest secrets, she doesn't know the worst of them, what do you mean, Bain, I tease her, Margaret's Margaret, Vivian's Vivian, she nods and leans forward, I know that, in George's world, that's who they are, but who are they really, Benny, in your world, Bain is going deep now, I can tell, not that it will get her anywhere, they are nothing in my world, Bain, in my world, they don't even exist, that's the beauty of it, you see Bane sighs, she often wears that dreamy expression when attempting to connect to me on a human level, she leans further forward and her breasts are almost touching my knees, yeah, she has my attention now, maybe I'm the one that gets to go deep this time, huh, but number, her holy nipples never make contact, nor her feet, which I notice are decked out in those red slingbacks, she wants me, 
wants to seduce me, tempting me like that, with her teats, her feet, what I mean, Benny, she says, is do they represent people in your own life, of all people, why does George meet them, what does he need from them, why does anybody meet anybody, pain, it's all damn fool luck, as far as I'm concerned, what do you get out of it, Benny she says, it's her attempt to redirect me, put the conversation back on track, back where she wants it, what I say, out of knowing George, out of being George, what do you get out of it, I stare at her for a moment, blinking nine times, now she is acting like the crazy one, I may like to take a harp every now and then, may have a bit of a stutter, but even I do not believe that I chose George any more than I believe he chose me, I appreciate the company I suggest, Bane shakes her head slow and heavy, she sighs, you are not being very helpful, Benny, she says, there is a moment of silence between us, it's not like I chose him, you know, I say finally, there, Bane, have a gem, Hushy mutters, lifting her head slightly, George, I did it wake up one day and decide, hey, you know what would be cool, having an alter ego, I'll make one up, call him George, it didn't happen that way, Bane, well of course not, Benny, I would not dare suggest that you did this consciously, what happened is one way I woke up, and there he was, right next to me, in bed, his head on the same goddamn pillow, I was him, he was me, and that was the end of that, um, now we're stuck with each other, you're right, Benny, I'm sorry, at this, I reel back, the chair I'm in doesn't have wheels, it tips back and falls over, with me along for the ride, the pain doesn't bother me so much, not so much as hearing those words from his mouth, ah, what I say from the floor, rubbing my head, one, two, three times, maybe I misheard, maybe it's some sort of audio hallucination, maybe it's just the concussion, talking, I am sorry, Benny, she repeats, you're right, it's lousy of me to expect you'll give me all the answers, I'm just tired, I suppose, it's okay, I stutter, I lift myself back into the chair, keeping a constant eye on her, why don't you just pick up where you left off she prompts me, smiling, we'll figure it out sooner or later, don't you worry, I shrug, sure, later that night, it begins to rain, George rushes to the window as he hears a car door slam outside Vivian's house, he watches as she stomps to her front door with no regard for the wetness, she tears the door open and slams it shut behind her, then turns on every light in the house, he aches for a glimpse of her shadow to fall on the curtains, her figure pauses, standing still for a moment, then she's back out the door, George stares as she stomps back to her car, his groin tightens as she turns up the sidewalk and then, up his driveway, his driveway, he looks around frantically, grabs a handful of wrappers from the coffee table and shoves them in his pocket, he paces once, twice, the wreck of his life is too bright, too visible, to anyone who comes through the front door, he turns off the overhead light, Vivian's fist pounds on the front door, he opens the door wide, you wouldn't believe the piece of shit day I've had, she barges through the open door, shucking off her wet jacket and handing it to him, yet yeah, George asks, he drops her jacket onto a chair by the door, Vivian sways and barely catches herself with a hand on his sofa, can I sit she doesn't seem to notice the squalor, yet, yeah, yeah, George moves a pile of papers and books from one end of the sofa to the other, Vivian collapses into the cushions, her eyes briefly close, um, are you thirsty George asks, you got any vodka her voice already slurred, Kalua, he answers, perfect, quickly, George pulls a dirty glass from the sink, wipes it with a wet paper towel and fills it with ice cubes and Kalua, here, he hands it to her, she smiles and takes a long, slow sip, a little dark in here, isn't it she says slowly, George looks around, if he turns on the main light, she'll see the true depth of his slovenliness, instead, he lights a few candle stubs on the coffee table, I lost my job today, she ultimately confesses, those fucking bastards fired me, George racks his brains, trying to remember how normal people respond to a crisis, normal, who's normal, I'm sorry, he says after a long pause, trying to sympathize, that's what normal people do, right, they sympathize, what happened he asks, those metherficas, she gulps the Kalua, looks around the room, she's distracted George decides, that's all, just distracted, I shouldn't have fucked him, she says, Greg, in case you're wondering, that's who I shouldn't have fucked, it's just like my dad always said, don't shit where you eat, but who listens to their father, Jesus, oh, George says, as bile arises in his throat at the thought of her with another man, his penis jerks a little, a cocktick, who's Greg, Greg was my co-worker, I boss actually, at the clinic, fucking pig, he was married, you know, but I didn't care, I mean it was sects, just sects, fucking, I couldn't have cared less didn't about him or his bitch of a wife, George interrupts, 
Which clinic Vivian looks at him quizzically, empty, Schluster, she says, I'm a paramedic, oh, good, George says, and then snaps his mouth shut, at least it's not, not what, Benny, you'll see, you'll see, she shrugs, yeah, it wasn't too bad, but when I broke it off with him and Sarah again George interrupts, who's Sarah his wife, Vivian says, I was doing them both, actually, it was fun, George's mind reels, a married man and his wife, this woman is a mess, she sits there on his couch in all her mascara street glory, her wild hair curling in a scarlet halo, sits there, in her pathetic glory, her sexual freedom, her misery, her overripe breasts sag just like the couch, she's perfect, George thinks, anyway, when it all blew up, when it all got personal they fired me, he fucking fired me she picks up a drawing from the pile of papers next to her and blows her nose into it, she crinkles up the precious thing, the fragile child of George's genius, now covered in her snot, and throws it across the room, perfect, sounds like a creep, George says, in what he hopes is a sage tone, it's probably a good thing you don't work for him anymore, Vivian laughs, a tad hysterical, sure, that makes sense, she lifts the carloon to her mouth and drinks deep, she sighs and relaxes into the sofa, I just want to hurt him, she says softly, punch him in the face, slice up his arm, his junk, make him crawl naked on glass, cut him, make him bleed, then he know how I feel she kicks the coffee table, hard, the corner of it lifts high and the candles and a stack of papers go flying, one of the candles lands on a stack of paper and it is out, the other lands on George's lap, how he howls, standing and shaking the hot wax from his groin in the suddenly dark room, his heart pounds with a jolt of fear and adrenaline rushes through his veins, his cock jerks slightly, oh shit, oh shit, I'm so sorry, Vivian says, she slides to her knees in front of him, wiping out the crotch of his pants with her hands, clumsily fumbling, they are lit only by the scanty moonlight that shines through the clouds, George thinks he can see her blush, shit, are you okay George nods, then smiles, bliss, that rush was just what he needed, somehow, Vivian can't know that, of course, and in the darkness she can't see him smiling, that hurt he says, crossing his arms in front of his chest and frowning down at her, wanting to see her squirm, she looks abashed, sorrowful, I'm sorry George's dick stands at attention to hear her sorrow, she is perfect in her misery, why do I like her best this way, he wonders, what kind of sicko prefers to see a woman cry, that's a good question, Benny, it's not me, Bane, it's George, see, George is struck suddenly by, what he thinks is, the greatest idea of his life, he sits down next to Vivian, his thigh up against hers, then he leans over and kisses her softly on the mouth, she returns the kiss with feeling, George breaks it off, they stare at each other a minute, that felt kind of good, Vivian admits quietly, when I burned you, you're not Greg, but, it felt kind of good, anyway, is that sick or what George laughs to himself, I've got an idea, he says, it might sound crazy at first but just hear me out, you're out of a job, now, you've got bills to pay, and me, well, I need someone, someone like you, he smiles again, his face almost invisible in the darkness, when Vivian wakes up the next morning, the sun shines brightly through George's slatted blinds, she reaches out her hand to the empty space beside her then sits up, George is gone, she blinks her eyes once, twice, then she looks at the nightstand as her eyes widen slightly, the clock reads, 9am, there is a high stack of hundred dollar bills beside it, where's George, Benny, I don't know, Bane, can't a guy have a little privacy, but next to the money, a note on lined paper, folded, once, twice, three times, Vivian pulls at it, pulls at the note, it is so bright in the light of day that she can hardly read it, she leans back into the pillow and holds the note above her head, making a shadow on the page, dear Vivian, the note reads, as per our agreement last night, here is your weekly allowance, Vivian thumbs through the stack of hundreds, counting out a full ten, she smiles, then she returns her attention to the note, there are, of course, a few vital stipulations, one, thou shall not have sexual relationships with anyone but me too, real money must be exchanged for any and all favors, three, failure to comply with the above shall result in double pay or loss of job, this discreet contract will never expire, until death, yours, George Schaefer Vivian frowns as she looks at the note, then glances over at the wad of cash that is slumped slightly against her leg, she grabs the cash, 
thumbing through it once again, then she crumples up the note and throws it in the trash. George and Vivian get right to business. Vivian comes over later that week, with a pair of handcuffs, a feather duster, a roll of duct tape, and a waxing kit. She clinks the handcuffs together mischievously. Hey there, George Schaefer, she pouts and tips forward slightly, emphasizing her breasts. Wanna come play George nods his head mutely. It all looks pretty kitsch to him, but then Vivian is new at the whole torture thing. In a way, she is now a virgin. George smiles up at her as she straddles him on the bed. What are you thinking, Mr. Schaefer she says in mock shock. She closes the handcuff around one of his hands and loops the empty cuff through the holes in his headboard. That you're a virgin, George says, wanting to share with her, to make an open forum, like when he gave her his first pedicure. He wants it to be like that. Oh, hardly, Vivian grins and locks the other handcuff into place. She slides off the bed and shimmies out of her two tight jeans. Not as sexually, I mean, George stutters. Ah, an essent and virgin, a virgin torturer, oh. George, Vivian sinks to the side of the bed, checking the temperature of the hot wax with her hand. She smiles to find that it is right. This may be my first time with a pair of handcuffs. She places a hand over George's mouth as he smiles. But that doesn't mean it's my first time torturing someone. She slowly stuffs the feather duster into his mouth. The feathers soak up the moisture of his tongue and stick to the roof of his mouth. They flutter against the back of his throat, making him cough. George tries to protest the feathers, but all that comes out is an indistinct mumble and a frustrated moan. Clamping the feather duster down with her forearm, Vivian uses the duct tape to fix it onto his face. There, that should keep your gag reflex from getting in the way, she purrs. Isn't that nice? George rapidly shakes his head. His panic sets off another coughing fit. He chokes, coughs, and sneezes until he can't open his eyes anymore because of the tears streaming from them, until his face is red with frustration. If you don't calm down, you won't enjoy the rest of this, Vivian points out, pouting. She has a dipstick covered in the hot wax, letting it drip down onto George's stomach. Just hold your breath for a while, she suggests. He does as she asks, and eventually the feathers that tormented his tonsils are still. George is now able to enjoy the feel of the warm wax as it drips onto him. It's not too hot at all, more like a warm bath. He swims in the wax, feeling it engulf him. He thinks of it coating his whole body, spreading up from his toes and over his genitals, up to his belly button, and peats, then up over his face, running into his mouth and locking his tongue in place, and gluing his eyeballs to a fixed stare. Then he would be dead, but forever existing. They could prop him up in a wax museum, he would be famous, and he would not even have to deal with the consequences. The people, wanting him, wanting to be with him, touch him, get his autograph. George indulges these fantasies as Vivian spreads the wax over him. She sings a little tune under her breath as she works. After a while, George is able to entirely forget that the feather duster is in his mouth. He thinks about a little girl pointing to his waxen testicles and asking, Mommy, what are those those are peanuts? Clear, the mommy replies. Fantasies only last so long, however, and Vivian is still spreading and spreading when George runs out of imaginary material. George starts to wonder if Vivian doesn't have what it takes to be his torturer. This wax stuff is not half bad, but it's not bad enough. Maybe Samantha, down and that place at 3rd Street would be better. She gives one hell of a good foot smothering. Then, George receives a slight twinge of understanding. Vivian tugs at a bit of hardened wax down by his ankle, and it hurts. A little, the anticipation of greater pain gets him breathing faster. He almost inhales the feathers, almost chokes again. Better stay calm, George dear. Vivian reminds him. She crouches over his body, holding herself just inches above him. Her nose is almost touching his. Her breath is on his face. All women are torturers. She snarls. It's in our nature. Without looking, she catches her nail where the wax stops at his collarbone and gives a swift yank. Emma George yells through a mouthful of feathers. Then he starts to cough again. We know exactly what it is you are afraid of. She continues ignoring him. We know exactly how to hurt you. She tears off another small piece. There are no strips. George realizes. He doesn't know much about waxing. Not any more than the average male human. But he does know that strips are involved, and with no strips, she is going to have to pull off every inch of it by hand, every round little inch, George stifles a groan, not wanting the feathers to act up again, men may be stronger, George, Vivian concludes, that women are the true inflictors of pain, she rips up a quarter sized chunk of wax affixed to his nipple, and George howls, the feathers dive down his throat, he chokes, coughing and yelling and cursing Vivian in the best way he can, 
Oh, what a woman. Some part of his mind praises her. Something seems to snap in Vivian. Her eyes are suddenly full of rage. How does that feel? Huh? Does it hurt? She tears off piece after piece, faster and faster now, until it feels like George's entire torso is inflamed. She stops for a moment, gets back in his face. This is what women do to make themselves beautiful for you. She screams at him, her face red and terrible. She tears off another piece, a dollar coin sized piece right near his groin. Am I beautiful enough for you? George she tears and tears at him, at the wax, not paying attention, not even caring where the wax ends and George begins. His paws scream in pain. His skin is covered in thousands of tiny scratches and a few sizable gouges from her ripping. He bleeds. It is horrible. He's terrified. At the same time, a sense of peace flows over him. He feels detached from his own body, and watches safely from a distance. He feels sorry for Vivian, who is clearly unhappy. Feels a little ashamed for taking advantage of her unhappiness, but only a little, mostly. He feels a blissful sort of numbness. He wishes he could ejaculate, but his cock is encased in hard wax. Finally, Vivian collapses over him, sobbing, incoherent. George steadies his breathing, wondering what comes next. It's almost half an hour before Vivian's breathing slows, before her shuddering ceases. Then she looks up at him, with wide, illuminated irises. Her eyes are wet and glowing. She is beautiful. I'm tired of this, she says, with a sniff. She stands and leaves the room. She leaves George tied to the bedpost, his legs and genitals hopelessly covered in wax, the feather duster taped securely in his mouth. Huh? George thinks as he watches her go. I wasn't expecting that. Only minutes later, George realizes that his peanuts itch. Itchy screams up from somewhere in his belly. He enunciates with his esophagus, so the whole neighborhood can hear and understand. Then he chokes and coughs, snorting and hiccuping and sobbing until exhaustion overcomes him and he passes out. Vivian hears his final screams, his despair, his infinite pain. The shitty thing about empathy, Vivian realizes, is that even when you're torturing someone you can feel it yourself. Otherwise you wouldn't know how good it works. Vivian is not sure if she can handle this job. She loves the feel of George's pain, loves the preparation of it, loves his screams and the sense of vindication that it brings her. But then there is the pain, too. Vivian's not quite sure she can handle the pain. When George wakes up, he is free of the wax, feather duster, and handcuffs. He has no idea how that could have happened. Well, he has three ideas. Vivian might have pulled off the rest of the wax and his subconscious mind blocked it out. Or, Vivian might have drugged him so he wouldn't feel pain and peeled away the wax. Or, Vivian might have melted the wax, somehow, and poured it into a bucket. Well which is it, Benny? Inquiring minds. How am I? I suppose to know, Bane, you think I'm psychic or something? After that night, Vivian disappears. Four days George stalks her house, peeking through the blinds, but she is nowhere to be seen. He calls and leaves message after message, all left unreturned. A week passes, George leaves her allowance in the mailbox, he's afraid that maybe she took the first thousand and ran. Maybe she doesn't want to play his game. This fear of rejection, the terror of another failed relationship, no matter how forced, fills him with a mixture of hatred for her, the power she has to make him ill, and a longing that feels a little bit like love. Have you ever been in love? Vain? Fear and uncertainty give him a pain that sets him free, that fills him with delicious, slimy horror. He can't get enough of the pain her disappearance brings him. If she abandoned him forever, he might slide deeper and deeper into the cold and empty abyss, the nothingness of self that echoes, oh perfectly, that everlasting moment of orgasm. Although he is spying every moment, weighing for her, he doesn't see the moment she comes, doesn't see her remove the money, and yet it is gone the next day. George smiles to himself. A feeling even better than pain flushes through his veins. It is triumph. Soon after the money mysteriously disappears from the mailbox, Vivian begins to show up at her house now and then. Still, she doesn't return his calls, or come to visit, or write any notes to him. But he knows that she is there, sometimes, and she knows that he knows. This is a new kind of torture, a new delicious pain. He knows she is still playing. The question now is not if but when, and as the days drag on, George becomes increasingly impatient. He makes a permanent camp in the living room, keeping everything necessary for survival next to the window, within reach of his hands. He lives for glimpses of Vivian through the blinds. Sometimes, in the dark, he imagines her naked, thinks of the softness of her sagging breasts falling to either side of her chest as she sleeps. As the days go by with no Vivian showing up, George begins to run out of food. 
he makes runs to the kitchen to refill his water, but when the cupboards are bare he forgets the water too, and sits and sits, watching, slowly, he begins to starve, dehydrate, melt away into the air, he feels his skin slowly tightening around him, feels the water leaving his body to feed the atmosphere, he sighs, waiting and waiting for Vivian to show up, eventually, George becomes too weak to leave money for her in the mailbox, he slumps against the window pane, his gaze propped up only by his nose at the sill, the next day, there's a knock at his door, George swivels his gaze to the door, knowing somehow, just knowing that it is Vivian, but there's no need to answer it, he thinks to himself, she'll come to me, then the door is silent, and George feels a sustained moment of terror, that was my chance, that was my only chance, and I blew it, she's gone now, gone forever, and I can't lift a finger, the terror is replaced with a sense of bliss, the orgasmic nothingness of despair, George melts into it, happy to disappear, God takes pleasure in this, Vivian will not miss George, not his orchestration, his loving, playful orders, she'll enjoy her freedom, it is best, the knock comes again at his door, louder and more insistent, George realizes that it has awoken him from sleep, he has fallen to a heap on the floor, lacking the energy to even prop his nostrils at the windowsill, he thinks for a moment about answering the door, he decides that he likes the numbness better, his ear sags down to the floor, the door is pounding, shaking under the power of Vivian's fist, George, I know you're in there she yells, I know you're in there George flashes back to Benny's mother, to her voice feather light in the dark doorway of Benny's childhood bedroom, I know you're in there, Benny's mother whispers, George shivers, I know you're in there, Benny, a crash of glass and George screams, his voice high like a little girl's, he feels the last bit of life in him leave with that scream, it sounds like a whisper amid the tinkling of glass all around him, damn it, George, what did you think you were doing Vivian mutters, she hoists him in her arms, he is thin, starved, emaciated, jaundiced, and sleep deprived, unshowered, swollen boils and pustules adorn his thighs, he has been too exhausted to pop them, his semen crusted pubes show a history of careless masturbation, poor little George murmurs Vivian, my little paranoid poop, I can smell you rotting away he is like a child in arms, although she never had one, a child, that is, George awakens in the white sterility of a hospital bedroom, he screams, closing his eyes, his shout is loud, clear, and resounding, George Vivian cries, she has been sitting next to his bed, well isn't that sweet, some part of his brain snarls, what the fuck George sits up straight in bed and then collapses backward, a nurse hokes her head into the room, get me the fuck out of here George yells, his eyes bulging, the nurse's head withdraws, and she scurries away, George, calm down, Vivian tries to shush him, you're in the hospital, you almost died, you'll be alright, maybe in a day or two, George looks at the tangle of cords, ignoring Vivian, why didn't you eat, or buy any food or anything, George she asks, George can see from her face that she knows the answer, she wants it not to be her fault, without a guilt, her repentance, this whole arrangement will be nothing better than the fetish houses he used to attend, and at least at the houses there is a bit of variety, he finds the clamp on his finger that measures his pulse and rips it off, he smiles sweetly as the blip blip of the heart monitor begins to sing like a siren, nurses, doctors, oxygen therapists rush into the room, they glare at George's sweet smile, get me the fuck out of here, he tells them, I will pay to have all of this moved to my house, see how he gestures to Vivian with an evil glare, she's my living caretaker, Vivian's eyes bulge, but she dares not refute him, I'm a paramedic, she explains, empty, Schluster. the nurses sniff their disapproval, but the doctor eventually approves the arrangement, Vivian can't help but notice how much thicker the doctor's front pocket seems after his interview with George, despite all his problems, George can be very persuasive, hours later, George is nestled snugly in his home, surrounded by wires and monitors, his heart rate beeps pleasantly, Vivian is dressed in a sexy nurse's uniform, tending to his every whim, for the occasion, she has moved into the room next to his, just until his health returns, of course, once the hospital realized who he was, whose son he was, it seemed they could not get rid of George fast enough, it helped that George pulled a wad of hundreds out of his wallet, a wallet thicker than Vivian's wrist, you look good in that, George leers as Vivian leans over to place a tray of food on his lap, the heart rate monitor speeds up slightly, why, thank you, Vivian simpers, she doesn't really mind the situation, and she likes the way the outfit shows off her figure, lunch served, Vivian sits in the chair beside George's bed and crosses her legs, showing her bare thighs, visible through the slits on each side of her skirt, freckles dotting her legs smile at him through the slits, teasing inviting him, 
Her skin wrinkles slightly, just enough. Mind if I smoke she asks, already pulling the pack out of her purse. Does it matter George reminds her. She assesses him carefully, shrugs, and then lights a slim cigarette. She exhales into his face. George coughs, feeling a faint rush of happiness at his discomfort. Vivian smiles a Mona Lisa smile, even though she feels momentary doubt when she sees George cough. Part of her doesn't like to see his discomfort, but a larger part wants to hurt him and all men forever and ever, amen, to twist him and grind him into a pitiful nothingness. His evident pleasure reassures her that what she has done is good. It's good for me, good for both of us, she reminds herself. You know what I like about taking care of you here, she asks, smiling wickedly. What George asks, her eyebrows raise, innocent. The fact that we're alone, she says. Then slowly she drops her hand and grinds her cigarette butt into his arm. George screams. She closes her eyes to pull his pain closer to her. She gives one last twist, feeling the ember crush into empty ash. Vivian leans back in her chair as George slumps into his pillows. She takes a few deep breaths and feels for his pulse. His heart is still strong, despite all that he has been through. Vivian lays herself down at George's side, closing her eyes. Just for a minute, it is exhausting, taking care of George. She is not just his nurse, after all. She is also his torturer, his personal trainer in pain. She has to ensure she gives him that high he craves and satisfy her own perverse longings. All the while she must be certain it's not too much for him right now. His heart must remain stable, and his body can't go into shock. The situation requires her to summon all of her knowledge as a paramedic and then to go entirely against her training. She wonders if George took into consideration her medical training when he decided to choose her for his torturer. It would be handy to have a professional on hand, someone who understood the limits of the human body. She doubts it. It is much more likely that her body, her face, her unique situation made her far more qualified in George's mind than any medical experience would. You're one lucky son of a bitch, picking me. Vivian whispers to him gently. Any other bimbo would have killed you already, or have just taken the money and run. Vivian breathes deeply and evenly, comforted by the sound of George's heartbeat. In a little while she will get back to work, but not just yet. George, Vivian whispers. He opens his eyes to see her crouched above him like a predatory animal. The buttons of her uniform are open, her simple, pink nipples loom over his forehead. Ah, there you are, she says quietly. She reaches down between his legs and strokes the bulge in his pants. She smiles, right there he lifts his arm weakly. The wires drag him back down. It's all right, it's all right. She shushes him, with a small smile. She puts her hands on his arms, pinning him down beneath her. She kisses him full on the mouth, nibbling at his lips and drawing a little blood. George moans in ecstasy, with fingers like fire ants. Vivian unzips George's pants. She fumbles his stiffening man dagger away from the hot swamp of his gotch. She pinches the soft skin of his balls with her fingernails. George cries out in pain and joy. He lifts his head and then, with a sigh, leans back into the pillow. That's good, he says. I thought you'd like that, Vivian murmurs. She pinches him again, harder, tears ball up in the corners of his eyes. When his lips flutter open again, Vivian slowly strips out of her nurse's uniform. Her breasts sag easily against her chest, enticing him. Her skin is pink, spotted with freckles and pores, covered in long, thin, shimmery red hairs. Her carpet matches the drapes, a wild, orange-red, waving him in. His dick is full of blood, thick with it. He thinks it might burst open at any minute. George sees the red, dangling lips that glisten, wet for him. He strains for her condoms, in the drawer, he gasps, Vivian laughs slow, almost purring, HM she says, pressing herself up against him, no George moans, the condoms, please, God, please, Vivian slowly, inexorably, sinks his shaft inside herself, please he whimpers, oh, no, she shushes him, you don't get it that easy George realizes this is part of the game, she is torturing him with contact, invading his sterile existence, what if she gets pregnant, gets pregnant, pregnant, something screams inside him as she pushes against him deeper and deeper, there is no protection between them, no safe place, if a child results from her torture, she doesn't care. 
the fear of this possibility, Ather not caring, Ather risk, real risk, rises up in him and bursts, yeah he murmurs as he comes inside her, heart, she laughs at him, and for a moment, George feels it, that sweet, endless bliss he has been searching for, he laughs along with her, pulling her face down with his plucked in arms, maybe this is it, George thinks, maybe this is all I've been looking for, I could get used to this, after that one, pure, perfect moment, Vivian disappears again, the first day, George wanders around aimlessly, wanting her back, the second day he checks the cupboards and realizes he needs to buy food, George weakly rolls his cart down the aisle at the grocery store, leaning against the bar and shuffling along, he wonders how Vivian could leave him when he is still so weak, he could die, if he died, how would she get her money, she is smart enough to know that, he smiles, sure, she's smart enough, smart enough to know that he would get back on his feet, if only to crawl back for more, George briefly considers dying, if only to prove her wrong, then he smiles and tosses a few cans of pineapple rings into his cart, that would be too easy, George bumps into Margaret on his way out of the store, their eyes both widen, George Margaret says, George keeps walking, his head twisting as he passes her, up, uh, hey, I'm, up, uh, Margaret frowns, yeah, sure, see you some other time, then, George nods, later, and then he's gone, Vivian places herself softly in the shadow of a street kiosk, the clock on her cell phone reads 2.30pm, it has been over a day since George last left his house, she knows he will need some smoke soon, she stands in the corner of the kiosk, smoking a slim and watching passes by purchase magazines, six, and candy, just as she has finished smoking her first slim down to the filter, George approaches the counter, with a grin, Vivian crushes the stub beneath her shiny red slingbacks, the clerk behind the counter hands George his regular smokes, without a word George nods and leaves a fistful of cash on the counter, way more than they are worth, and then turns, Vivian sidles up behind him, fancy meeting you here, she whispers in his ear, she savors a momentary thrill as he stiffens, his quick gasp is music to her, Vivian, he breathes, he turns around, Vivian takes a step back, smiling at him just out of arm's reach, I feel like we're drifting apart, she pouts, I don't want us to become indifferent to each other, George grins, knowing her game too well already, I'll call you, tomorrow, Vivian smiles and winks at him, then, with a whiff of perfume and stale cigarette smoke, she drifts back into the shadow of the kiosk, and George is alone in the bright daylight of the street, the day passes without a call from Vivian, George paces, checking the windows, he sits on his front porch, smoking and watching her house, he builds his ten shots of espresso and gulps them down until, night falls and he is a wraith, flitting from one window to the next, for a moment, it appears that a light glimmers deep within Vivian's home, but then he blinks, and it is gone, the next day, George's alarm blares at the usual time, he slams a hand down on the ever screechy timepiece, morning light streams through the white blinds, splashing on his dark and dirty carpet, when George finally sits up, he blinks, the clock alarm flashes 12pm, George moves the blinds slightly and peers out at Vivian's house, this is now part of this morning ritual, to see if she is home, to see if she came home, to see if she has left home, not knowing where she is, that is a sweet torture indeed, her car is parked out front, he looks down at his limp dick, soft and sagging between his flat, resting testes, then, George does something entirely uncharacteristic, he gets out of bed, he staggers through the lonely house, as he walks past the bathroom he decides to turn the shower on as hot as possible, the still hot coffee, freshly percolated from earlier that morning, speaks to him, George looks around the wreck of the room, its counters scattered with broken glass and spilled coffee, the floor covered in bits of food and blue mold, he turns and walks out, past the bathroom, which billows steam from the running shower, with bare feet, he advances to the front door, steam pours out behind him as he goes, George stalks across the grass that separates their two homes, not caring that someone might see him violating the unspoken rule about using sidewalks, she has upset his whole existence, 
He may as well upset alone. George pounds on the front door of Vivian's house, knowing she is inside. He is tired of the hold she has on him, tired of the games. Ever since that moment with her, after he came back to from the hospital, ever since that moment of pure ecstasy, of unadulterated orgasm, he wants just her. He wants her with him all the time. This avoidance torture is bullshit, it's like he is paying her for what she usually does anyway, and, even worse, it no longer gets him quite as high. This isn't what I paid for. He snarls as she opens the door, her eyes widen in surprise. I could pay anyone to avoid me, most people do it for free. For a moment, Vivian looks frightened, then she laughs. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? That's not the point. George mutters. Vivian shrugs playfully. I'm making lunch. Would you like to come in? She says, turning and waving. She walks to the kitchen without waiting for his answer. George follows a moment later, leaving the front door swinging open behind him. Vivian's kitchen glows with yellow light. It is clean but cluttered. The smell of fresh food entices George a step further. The coils of the gas burning stove glow orange beneath a flat pan, on which Vivian is frying a sandwich. Would you like one? She gestures politely. George shakes his head. Vivian shrugs and nudges the sandwich with her index finger. She flips it with a quick flash of fingertips. George is amazed at her lack of fear. He winces when, a few minutes later, she pushes the sandwich onto a plate. Out she cries softly as the skin of her finger grazes the hot pan. She sucks on the finger for a moment. Then she pulls it out of her mouth and, looking at it cross-eyed, close, her gaze flicks to George for a moment. She smiles. Why don't you give it a try? She says slyly. She points at the pan with her burn finger. Just a little touch. With a mixture of dread and elation, George slowly brings his finger close to the hot pan. Searing pain blanks his mind, followed by blissful numbness. He pulls his finger off and runs it under the cold water of her sink. The burn throbs painfully, filling him. Out, he moans quietly. Not bad, a Vivian insists. George nods, sucking on his finger. He looks at Vivian appraisingly, lingering his gaze over her hips and breasts. I know, she says finally, grinning. Why don't you sit on it? What George looks at the hot pan, a final hiss of butter burns with a wisp of smoke from its black surface. He looks back at Vivian, thinking longingly. Do it, she says. Don't make me make you. She glares at him. With one more wistful glance at Vivian, George eases himself onto the hot pan. It seems only hot at first. It wobbles unsteadily beneath his pudgy bottom. Then, all of a sudden, it scorches him with a yowl. George leaps from the stove. The pan clangs to the ground behind him. George feels the heat of the burn throb in his backside. He closes his eyes, weighing for the numbness and nothingness of pain to soothe his tormented soul. George Vivian yells, pointing at the back of his pants. He twists, and realizes that the continued heat was not from the burn, but because his pants are on fire. Shit he screams. The flames lick up his pants, and threaten to wrap around his belt. George tugs and jerks at his pants until they crumple to the floor. He leaps away from them. Given oxygen, the fire leaps higher. Jesus, George Vivian screams. Put it out. George tries to pick up the burning pants and put them in the sink. But midway through the air the fire scorches his hand. Shit he yells again, throwing the fireball at the sink. It strikes the world behind, and flames begin to climb quickly up the drapes. George Vivian screams. What are you doing? She runs to the pantry and grabs a small fire extinguisher. She stares at the directions on the extinguisher as the fire climbs up the drapes and begins to singe the wallpaper. The nearby cabinets begin to blacken. The laminate melts down in boiling drops that hiss as they land on the stainless steel sink. Vivian struggles with the extinguisher's pin. Unsuccessful, she shoves the extinguisher into George's hands and takes a step away from the burning flames. George looks at the extinguisher, trying to distinguish step one from step three. The metal grows warm in his hands as the burning plastic of the laminate cabinet strips heavily onto the counter. My ass hurts, he whimpers. He watches as the fire begins to eat away at the wall surrounding the windowsill. Vivian takes another step backwards, her eyes wide and terrified. With a squeal, she turns and runs for the front door. George follows fast behind, the extinguisher still tight in his hand. At the doorway, Vivian suddenly stops and George crashes into her. My pictures, she moans, and makes a move to run back inside. George stops her, call the fire department, he commands, finally abandoning the pain that swelters up and down his thighs and back. George realizes that he is not wearing any pants. He looks toward the street. 
where a small crowd of neighbors have gathered, what he yells at them then realizes that his underwear is singed, his legs lobster red, he turns to the street and roars in frustration, call the goddamn police he screams, and they scatter, my cell phone's inside Vivian wails, pulling at her hair, the smoke from the fire has begun to press heavily against her front windows now, George glances at her, pleased with the smudge of smoke on her turned up nose, and with the frantic, indrawn terror of her brilliant green eyes, at this moment, he despises her for her idiocy, for her weakness in the face of this catastrophe, at this moment, she is perfect in her inadequacy, George pulls out the pin from the fire extinguisher with a confident jerk, he throws it on the grass, and scoffs, use my phone, he tells her, pointing at his house, without a word, she turns and races for his front door, George walks into Vivian's burning house and stands in the doorway of the kitchen, watching as the room becomes one huge blaze, he aims the fire extinguisher at the cabinets and begins to spray, watching the white foam as it singes black spots into the fire that ignores it completely, like pissing down a well, George thinks, and closes his eyes blissfully, as the extinguisher runs out, the fire rages on, George takes a step back from the flames, which have only grown hotter, the bulge builds in his shorts, without warning, his huge cock peeks out between the soft flaps, it thrusts itself forward toward the flames, with a cry, George erupts onto the damage he has caused, the semen spurts in short little gusts, which hiss and boil as they strike the hot floor, George takes another step back, beaten down by the scorching flames, seeing there is no hope for the house now, his cum becomes an impossible stream, a pure, lasting orgasm that splashes wetly from the tip of his penis and dissolves into steam in the heat of the fire, step by slow step, George backs away from the fire, spewing constantly until he reaches the front doorway, the light from the midday sun warms his back, and his dick suddenly sags, lifeless, George staggers backward a few more steps, an idiot grin on his face, with a drooling, gurgling sigh, he collapses backwards onto the lawn, when the blaring red fire engines finally pull up in front of Vivian's house, flames are flickering teasingly from the attic windows, Vivian is huddled over George, whom she has dragged away from the front of the building after carefully tucking his limp dick back into his shorts, by god, he mutters under his breath, his eyelids fluttering rapidly, by god, was it good for you Vivian can't help but think that George is delusional, not that great, she mutters, she watches, as the firefighter's hoses do nothing against the roaring inferno that was once her home, shit, what am I going to do now she wonders out loud, George's eyes open wide, he grins a slow grin, you can stay with me, he says quite lucidly, then he laughs, so quietly, and coughs the last bit of smoke from his lungs, Vivian skips over to George's California bungalow, her house is a charred pile, and the insurance company is balking at payment, it's not the first time she has ever moved in with a guy, but it's a step forward in her and George's relationship, it's not really a relationship, Vivian has to remind herself constantly, it's an arrangement, a purely financial arrangement, it is only going to last until the insurance money comes through on her house, but that could take years, Vivian thinks, with a sly nod, years, George glances up slowly from his perch on the porch when Vivian crosses the lawn, she is skipping, actually skipping, she leaps up the front stairs with a single bound and spreads her arms above her head in a V for victory, not bad, for a lady in her forties, George thinks, this bodes well on the prospects of their sex life, it's just until the insurance comes through, George points out, nothing to get excited about, Vivian hangs her head, her mood crushed, hey, I thought I was the one supposed to be torturing you, Mr. George, she thinks, she tries out an evil grin, and the look of shock on his face cements her instinct, lesson number one learned, never show George your true feelings, I'm just thinking of all the fun we are going to have, she says, pouting at him, George shudders and gives a small smile of anticipation, Vivian laughs, it was just the reaction she was hoping for, asking Vivian to move in was probably the best, and worst, decision of his life, George ponders this epiphany as she plucks the hair from his forearms, one by one, with a pair of tweezers, it was the best decision because now she can't torture him with her absence, which anyone, and everyone, could do, now, George feels like he is getting what he pays for, and maybe even a little extra, however, it's the worst decision because he has to see every side of her now, sometimes she is happy or silly, even though he can tell she tries very hard to be neither of those things when he is watching, still, no one is perfect, seeing Vivian in a pleasant mood, in a celebratory mood, 
Kills for George the little sadomasochistic fantasy he is trying to live out with her. It's a buzzkill, is what it is. George has the chance to examine Vivian from all angles. Now, he knows about the tiny wrinkles on the underside of her butt cheeks. He knows about the shining yellow earwax that adorns the outer rim of her irkinel. He knows the yellow glow of the whites of her eyes, and the myriad arteries that grace them. In short, he knows too much, much too much. On the plus side, George gets to torture Vivian a little, too. After all, she is living under his roof, and it is in his nature to do so. Hey Vivian, you want to get me a glass of water he says lazily one afternoon? Do I look like your damn housemate she fires back in reply? No, although you are on the payroll. George muses, unless you'd rather not be Vivian slams shut the book she was reading and stands up. She glares at the back of his head. George is not exactly sure how he knows this, but he does. Vivian stomps into the kitchen, muttering. When she returns, she is holding a tall glass of water. She holds it high above him, presenting it to him like a bottle of wine. George nods, smirking, with an expression that echoes the contempt of his. Vivian pours their water into his lap. It is scalding hot. George howls with pain and pleasure. It she yells, and he sucks her in through his teeth. Vivian's smile falters slightly. He can see he has an opportunity. Eyeballs. George groans. Damn it. I think. Ow he screeches. Damn it. Vivian, you burned my nutsack. Shitty bends over his crotch protectively. Oh god, George. Are you okay? I didn't think. She sputters. Ah, uh, ah uh, George yells. I might never have an erection again. What if you broke it? Fuck Vivian is crying now. Really scared. George. I didn't know. She sobs. You've got to believe me. I wouldn't have done it if I knew. God, it was such a stupid, petty thing to do. Stupid. George, I'm so sorry, Tess pour down her cheeks, please, please forgive me, she begs him, hey, it's probably nothing, George says simply, and sits back in his chair, he smirks in her direction once again, Vivian rocks back on her heels, shocked, as she realizes she's been duped, lesson number two, she thinks, never believe a thing that George says, for days, Vivian mopes around George's house, at first she was excited to move in with him, now, there is no excitement left, just drudgery, for one thing, neither she nor George have a job. The closest thing Vivian has to a job is the perpetual torment of George. This was easy when she could do so by absenting herself. But at this point, living with him, she has nowhere else to go. She has to actually do stuff. Vivian drifts into the kitchen, which she has managed to scrub to a pleasing, sterile shine. The appliances glint miraculously. Yet, when she opens the refrigerator, all that greets her is ketchup and steak sauce, repeats a box with one dry slice left, three beers in an ancient 12-pack, and a sadomasochistic porno mag. She picks up the pizza slice, leaving the empty box, and grabs a beer. Thinking twice, she nips the S&M magazine off the middle shelf, thinking it wouldn't hurt to get a few new ideas. George seems pretty tired of the cigarette burning and pinching bit. He may even have left the magazine in the refrigerator for her to find, or absentmindedly set it down and forgot it, or, for some unknown reason, decided that porn belongs in the refrigerator. With George, it is impossible to know. George enters the room just as she is leaving, and they both avoid each other's gaze. For the last several days they have been floating around like this, pretending to be invisible. It is easier, somehow, easier than reconciling her paycheck with the attachment that would otherwise grow between them. That has been growing, whether we like it or not. She slides past him in the doorway, looking down at the molding that lines the hall floor. Keeping her eyes on her toes, she walks up the stairs to the red bedroom that she has made her own. She flops against the red and white doors canopy bed, enjoying the sense of disorientation and dizziness that comes over her from days and days of nothing stacked together all in a row and begins to gnaw at the pizza. Vivian flips through the magazine as she tears at the stale pizza with her teeth, looking at the pictures with a combination of loathing and embarrassment. When it comes down to it, the pictures are just funny, she wants to laugh, but when she thinks about actually trying the whip and thumb screws, it makes her feel a little sick. She licks the crumbs from her fingers and softens the last bit of dry crust in her throat with a long, cool gulp of beer. She laughs, softly, and tries to blink small tears from her eyes. She chucks half the beer and turns the page, 
The face on the man in the next page makes her gasp for a moment, until she realizes that it is not Greg. Not really, though, she moans in disappointment. She examines what he is doing, and finally notices the woman in the picture. They are twisted into crazy, deformed shapes. His face is marked with pain, hers crazed with triumph. The blood glistens so moistly on his skin that Vivian can almost hear it drip onto the hardwood floors. Vivian polishes off the last of the beer, touching the picture lightly with her fingertips. With a flash she sees herself as the girl in the picture, and Greg below her whimpering in pain and desire, she sees herself standing triumphantly over him. With a small moan she presses herself against the pillows, touching herself carefully. A small smile spreads across her face. When she's done, she tiptoes to the doorway, still naked. George. Vivian's voice is a chime that echoes in George's ears as he rummages through the cupboards to figure out where she hid all the damn coffee cups. He perks up. He peculates. He moves over to the stairs with two long steps. Yeah he calls. Would you come up here? Darling she says in a deep, seductive voice. George shrugs and trudges up the stairs. What is it he says before he turns into the room? As he takes a step inside, the light goes out. He is plunged into darkness. Vivian's voice seems to bleed out of the walls. Just one more step in. George. She coaxes him. Wait. Stop. Now one to your right, George breaks into a sweat. A low rumble sounds in the darkness before him, seeming to come from the floor. Watch out, Vivian purrs. You don't want to wake it up, do you? George feels himself shrinking, but as he is shrinking the world's close in on him. He can't see them but he can feel the air of the room grow tighter, more dense. The air wraps around him, trapping him in place. He can't breathe. Vivian he screams. Let me out. Vivian's laugh echoes from the walls. She is not in the room with him. There is no room. Vivian George screams. He flails with his arms and strikes hardwood on every side. His wrist tingles where it has struck the wall. His elbow explodes in a series of sparked nerves. He turns back around, beating at the door behind him, which is not a door anymore but a wall, not a room but a box, a dark, airless box. This is my coffin, George realizes with a terror that chokes him and brings him to his knees. I'm dying, I'm dead, she killed me, who killed you, Benny, not me, Bane, not me. George collapses into dark nothingness, his slumping but he knocks the side of the coffin, bringing it crashing down to the floor. George lies in it helplessly, in a daze, his fingers twitching feebly against the wood. When George wakes up, he's in his bed with Vivian, the sheets around him are thrashed, twisted up like a thick rope. The ones around Vivian are somehow unmoved, as smooth as sand dunes in moonlight. A dream? He wonders. Or did she wait until I passed out and haul me into bed? Vivian rolls over, and even asleep the look on her face is triumphant, gloating. George will never know if it was a dream or not. Well wait, Benny, was it a dream or wasn't it? How am I supposed to know, Bane, when I'm George, and he's me, I only know what George knows, and he, does George know what you know, Benny, sheesh, Bane, lighten up a bit, will you, I can't tell you, yet, can't tell yet, George feels a cold hand wrap around his heart, he rolls himself over and attempts to go back to sleep, the blue full moon lights up George and Vivian on the white sand beach, they are a happy-go-lucky, fun couple, all white-toothed smiles and sleepy, bedroom looks. It's as if they are posing for cheap promotional brochures for some ritzy, beachside resort or spa. George and Vivian chase each other playfully around the big white sand dune. Vivian dips her feet in the white foam sea water as she sits at the edge, where the water mixes with the sand. George tries to lick her wet, pretty feet, but she grinds his face into the salty tide water, using her perfectly manicured, stylish feet to hold his head down. George's hair bobs up and down with the rising and falling waves as Vivian laughs. As the sun sets, George and Vivian dance in the empty beach parking lot, near his sporty, gullwind car. The car's CD player is set on high volume, playing 80s disco music with a pulsing, throbbing beat. In the background, a silent fire alarm wails. During the day, George is a zombie, his dreams unsettle, unnerve him. He's terrified they are real, and that he doesn't know it. He's afraid that they are false, and the daytime is what's actually real. He's afraid to sleep, afraid to wake up. He's fearful he might be going crazy. George zombies through the kitchen, the living room, the front porch, 
onto the back stoop, and over again. Sometimes he zombies out on the couch, just staring at the wreck of Vivian's burned down house. That must be real, if he can see it, if it's there all the time. That must be real, at least. George is so out of it that when the house phone rings, he actually answers it for once. Benny Boy his mother's voice cries out joyously over the line. Lord, I thought I would never hear your voice again. How you been? Benny of all the times to forget to let the answering machine get it. Hi, Ma, George mutters, Vivian, in the next room, pricks up her ears, George can see mischief brewing in her brain, and he makes haste to avoid it, hey, I can't talk right now, Ma, he says, I'm pretty busy, what, you think you're some kind of big shot, Mr. Benny his mother teases, Mr. Big Shot don't have time for his own mother Vivian's hand snakes around the side of his head and plucks the receiver from his hands, Mrs. Schaefer Vivian says pleasantly, I am so glad you called, her eyes narrow wickedly, George can hear his mother asking and who might you be I can't say I'm surprised George hasn't mentioned me to you yet, Vivian schmozzes, he's such a secretive little devil, isn't he George can hear his mother most rapidly assenting, and knows that the battle is lost before he can even begin fighting, his mother will love Vivian, discussing George's many faults is something she can go on about for hours, he sits down heavily on the floor and looks up at her, begging her not to do damage she can't undo, for God's sake, please don't invite us to dinner, he prays, I'm George's girlfriend, Vivian reveals, his living girlfriend, the sound of his mother babbling in disbelief rises so much that Vivian has to hold the receiver away from her ear, she grins wickedly at George, I know, Mrs. Schaefer, George is quite a catch, she winks at him, yes, yes, you're George, George Gust, Vivian nods, that's the one, George can make out the sound of his mother inviting them, oh, we must have you over for dinner, I'd be so pleased to meet you and your husband, oh, yes, George is delighted too, next Thursday, perfect, Vivian laughs, oh, yes, I'm writing it on the calendar, next Thursday, I promise, bye, Mrs. G, with a triumphant smile, Vivian hands the phone back over to George, she wants to talk to you, she says, Benny his mother yells at him, how did you get such a nice girlfriend, I can't wait to see you two on Thursday, I love her already a pause, she's not one of those vegetarians, is she George, Vivian's voice is a raspy, raw-edged thing that sets George's heart beating, he runs to the stairs, knowing what's to come and wanting it anyway, yeah he calls, would you come up here, darling she says in a deep voice that is not quite her own, he takes the stairs two at a time, what is it he says before he turns into the room, he sees her, she's lying on her side, facing the doorway, naked, she pats the bedspread beside her, just more of the scene, she says with an evil gleam in her eye, he takes two steps and a hop that lands him on the bed, he grins, you just lie back, she commands, George complies, with a few deft gestures, she frees his already hard cock from his khakis, a nip of his nipple and a quick, bruising pinch of nails at his pudgy sides, Vivian then lowers her face to his groin, ah, alright, he stutters, watching her intently, she goes down, pulling his shaft up, up inside her mouth, her tongue is moist and does a little dance around him, he moans as his blood rushes to the very ends of him, slowly, Vivian clenches her teeth against him, ah, ah, George warns her, she laughs, the sound muffled by his big pussy spear, she sucks him hard and he moans, oh, then her teeth scrape him again, ow, George yells, Vivian swift pulls her head up, she glares at him with her glittery green eyes, shut up, she commands, he opens his mouth and then snaps it shut, she sucks him down again and George can feel himself starting to disappear inside of her, down the black tunnel of her throat, she is scraping, scraping him away like a cheese grater, and soon he will be nothing but a tiny little carrot, and then a stub, and then nothing, he cries out with terror and pain, but the blood pounds faster and faster into his dick, he feels the pain as a kind of ecstasy, it moves his blood, everything throbs, the pain and the pleasure, together, pounding, pounding in his ears, George screams, oh god, oh fuck as everything rises up in him all at once, Vivian jerks her head up with one final slash of her teeth, she wipes her mouth and grins, what, what, no, I'm so close George pleads, again, she flashes him a wicked, evil grin, oh, what a shame, she says, lifting herself off the bed and swiftly pulling her clothes back on, George's dick and balls are screaming at him, throbbing still, he looks down, expecting the whole thing to be in shreds, instead it pulses purple at him, an angry tower, now even my cock hates me, George thinks as Vivian gives one last flip of her hair, at the doorway, she looks over her shoulder for one final gloat, you didn't think it would be that easy, did you she taunts him, 
and then she is gone. Benny Mrs. Schaefer screeches when she opens the door to her son. Benny, you haven't been over in ages. Mama Schaefer is a huge woman dressed completely in purple spandex. Her hair poofs around her thick jowls like a ball of cotton. One forgotten curl hangs from a lock behind her ear like jewelry. When she wraps George in a hug, her body engulfs him, sucking him into the fat rolls of her enormous belly. For a moment, he cannot breathe, and Vivian she yells. George snorts at the accuracy of her misnomer. Vivian is claws. All right, Vivian, you're so old. George laughs out loud at the look on Vivian's face. It looks like she is about to get a little more than she bargained for. Well I'm sorry, dear, but you must know that George here is only 32, and George's mother seems to remember what a lovely girl Vivian is. But who am I to judge she concludes? You two are happy, and you George and Vivian nod uncomfortably, without looking at each other. Well it's that, and George's mother brushes her hands together and shifts herself out of the doorway so Vivian and George can enter. The front hall is enormous. It is clear to Vivian that the shafts of money, a curving marble staircase ascends to her right. A chandelier hangs from the vaulted ceiling, dripping money. Your father's at the table, George's mother yells to them as she disappears down a long hall. Dinner will be out in a minute. Not my father, George mutters, glancing at Vivian. She just shrugs. Whatever George leads her into the dining room, where they are greeted by another crystal chandelier, a shining darkwood dining table large enough to seat twelve, and George's father, who rises up from his third martini, the flush in his face and the gleam in his eye gives him that away. George boy he says, a little too loudly. George boy, you finally came, and with a girl, too. He appraises Vivian with a knowing eye, a pretty little thing, isn't she he says finally, she's in her forties. George's mother screams from the kitchen, Vivian flinches, now don't listen to her, George's father says in a low voice, taking Vivian by the elbow, she's just jealous, he winks and guides her to her place at the table, George pops open the bottle of wine they have brought for the occasion and serves Vivian, himself, and his mother a glass, George's father declines, gesturing to the martini pitcher on the sideboard, got a dance with the girl that brings you, he jokes, in a few minutes, George's mother sails from the kitchen with a rolling cart packed with food, a glazed ham, scalloped potatoes, asparagus wrapped in prosciutto, tomato slices topped with basil and broiled mozzarella, and a huge bowl of fresh garden salad. Well, help yourselves, George's mother cries. You both look about half-starved. Thank you, Mrs. Schaefer. This looks amazing, Vivian says politely, hiding her smile. George's mother heats an extra spoonful of potatoes on Vivian's plate. Oh, I do what I can, she says. There is only the sound of chewing and the mumbling of appreciative comments for a while. Then, so where did you two meet? And George's mother asks. Oh, we were neighbors, Vivian explains. Didn't have too far to move. Then, did you? George's mother jokes. George and Vivian both nod. H.M. George's father mumbles into his ham, so George's Tourette's doesn't bother you, and George's mother continues, it runs most of the girls off, then again, with you being so old and all, ma, George whines, Vivian's not old, well, the girl knows her age, George's mother says huffily, she turns back to Vivian, anyway, we're just so glad that you gave our Benny a chance, he needs a lady around, someone to pick up after him, you take good care of our boy, don't you Vivian, Vivian grins, of course, Mrs. Schaefer, George is a little rough around the edges, but he cleans up real nice, she reaches over and ruffles his hair, both George and his mother stare at the affectionate gesture. George's father snickers slightly. The Tourette's isn't catching. You know, George's mother says, continuing on her favorite topic. You don't need to worry about coming down with it. The orchids might. Ma George snaps. The last thing he needs is his mom putting ideas in Vivian's head. Ma, he continues, changing the subject. How is everything down at the club? Oh, same as ever, Benny dear. She says, patting his hand with her own. Those same bitches always sniffing round with their noses in the air. And your father's tennis game is as bad as ever. I don't know why we bother to keep up our membership. Huey, it's so damn expensive. Dear, it doesn't matter that it's expensive. George's father says very carefully, we already have more money than we know what to do with, Vivian glances over at George to confirm that this is true, his face is still a stone, but she can tell that George knows his father is right, this explains so much, like why George never seems to worry about not having a job, so, Mr. and Mrs. Schaefer, Vivian breaks the tension, where did you two meet oh, it was so romantic, George's mother gushes, we met at the beach, under the moonlight, do you remember it, 
Huey no, number, we met at the restaurant, remember George's father shakes his head disdainfully and turns to Vivian, well, we knew each other in high school, of course, but we met up again at a restaurant here in town, or, I like the beach story better, Huey, George's mother whines playfully, well, you can't make it more real just because you like it better, George's father snaps, Vivian and George begin to pay very close attention to the food on their plates, gosh, Huey, don't get so upset, George's mother says in a hushed voice, we've got company, George's father mumbles, polishes off his martini, and attends to his potatoes, we met at the beach, George's mother continues, as if nothing at all had happened, at a party, we were so young back then, but even then, I knew that Huey would ask me to marry him, someday, oh, we danced all night, she stops abruptly and looks at Vivian and George, do you two go dancing she asks, you really should, maybe Penny's got two left feet, but you should still go dancing, George shrugs, maybe sometime, Vivian says, George's mother nods, once, twice, three times, Finally, she says, are you ready for some dessert? I bet you're ready for some dessert. She stands up and waddles from the room. George's father helps himself to the martini pitcher on the sideboard. While Vivian tries to catch George's eye, she had come here to humiliate Georgie in front of his family, to torture him with their disapproval and disgust, but she finds that she is too late. They already have plenty of disapproval and disgust with George. They can hardly stand each other, let alone him. Having dinner with his parents is torture enough for him. Vivian wonders if there is a way to utilize dinner with the parents' torture without her actually having to be there, but she suspects that if she is not there to drag George along, he probably wouldn't go. She can't really blame him. Here it is, George's mother sings out as she comes back through the door. She has a three-tiered cake on a beautiful silver pedestal, blazing with candles. It's for your birthday. Benny she sets the cake down on the table. The top is decorated with race cars and checkered flags. It's not my birthday, George says solemnly. Still, his eyes light up as he looks at the cake. It might just be the glow of the candles. Though, it's for all the birthdays you missed having with us, George's mother said. Vivian wonders if the guilt trip is on purpose, but all she can detect in the woman's face is a happy glow. George's mother exudes guilt. It's not that she tries to make people feel bad, just that her very existence makes people feel bad. When Benny was little, he always wanted to be a race car driver, George's mother explains to Vivian. Ever since he was little, he wanted to be a driver, who wouldn't Vivian exclaims. When no one is looking, Vivian sneaks one of the candles off the top of the cake. She holds it at an angle under the table, so that the hot wax drips slowly on the crotch of George's pants. She knows it doesn't hurt him, not much at least. It is more like a pact, of sorts, or a gesture of friendship. George finds her free hand with one of his and squeezes it, tight. She can see a tiny tear glimmering in the corner of his eye. Then, with a long-suffering sigh, George blows the candles out. Isolate me, destroy me, tear up my eyeballs and do your dance in the sockets. You know you love me, I know you hate me, let's love and hate our way to the bank to the grave to the back of my shiny new car. Trap me, smother me, strangle me into nothingness. I want your blood and flesh to become apparent to me. I want to meet your hungry, tearing in it to go. There's only one way to go, now, and that is to disappear in your loving strangle, your twisting dark galaxy. Isolate me, love me, destroy me. George opens his eyes and realizes that everyone is staring at him. Everyone, who are these people? Why am I here? Don't you remember Vivian's voice taunts him? You wanted this. George blinks and looks around, not finding Vivian anywhere. Instead he is surrounded by a wall of faces. They all stare at him, mouths agape. A child makes a small sound and its mother pulls it close, protecting its face with her hands. What George finally croaks. A man steps out from the crowd. Just what do you think you're doing the man demands. His voice is angry, though his eyes convey something of an understanding smile. I, I don't know, George says. The man's face distorts with mockery, with hatred. There's obviously something wrong with him. A woman to his left whispers. George looks down at himself. He is naked. George staggers away from the people, trying to hide himself behind his hands. His face is a ball of fire that ends in bright splashes on his back. Fuck. George mutters, fuck, fuck, fuck. 
He has no idea how he came to be naked in the streets, only the vague sense that it is Vivian's fault. He doesn't even know where he is. He steps into three different stores before finding someone who will not scream and shove him back out into the street again. Finally, he steps into a dingy corner drugstore, which is being watched over by a wrinkled old clerk who has probably seen everything there is to see. Can I use your phone? George asks desperately, panting. The clerk eyeballs him, from the slight fat rolls of his neck to his thick ankles. You'd better cover up, the clerk says slowly. His face doesn't twitch, not even an inch. George gapes at the man. He gestures up and down the length and width of his naked body. I can't, he squeaks. I just woke up like this, the clerk shrugs. He points to the bargain bin in the corner, which overflows with t-shirts. Buy a t-shirt, then you can use the phone, the old man suggests. Does it look like I have my wallet on me? George gestures frantically to his pocket less, bare legs. The old clerk raises his eyebrows and points at George's right hand. George lifts his hand and realizes that he has been holding his wallet the entire time. Really, he wonders, what's real? Really, George pulls out a tin and buys a t-shirt. It is so long that the cotton falls around his knees. He feels like a little kid in an old-fashioned nighty. The old man smiles. Phone's back here, he says, gesturing behind the counter. George comes around to the back of the counter and feels an instant sense of relief. From behind the counter, his legs are hidden. To anyone on the other side of the counter, he's just a guy wearing a really long t-shirt. Hello Benny's voice speaks into his ear through the phone. Benny, George gasps with relief. Benny, you got her to come get me. I'm, I'm, Vivian. Shit, you just have to come get me. Now there is a muffled sound on the other end of the phone. Sure thing, Mr. Schaefer, where are you up? George looks around and then lifts his mouth over the top of the receiver. Hey, he asks the clerk. Where am I? The old man snorts unbelievingly. Don't ask me, he says. What? You don't know where we are? George exclaims. It's your store, isn't it though? I know where I am, the old man says, a smile tugging the corner of his wrinkled old mouth. But as for you, I thoroughly believe you are somewhere else entirely. Yes, George sighs. Just the address please, he tells the clerk. Please, when George hangs up the phone, the clerk gestures towards the door. No pants, no service, he says. Bad for business, but you don't sell any pants, George points out. The shopkeeper crosses his arms and sighs audibly through his nose. What if I stay behind the counter, George pleads. No one can tell I'm not wearing pants when I'm back there. The old man shakes his head. Last thing I need is a man swinging loose behind my counter, he says gruffly. George suddenly gets the idea that this might be one of those stores that carries a shotgun somewhere behind the counter. He whisks himself out to the street and leans against the corner of the building, trying to hide in its narrow shadow. Finally, 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 Benny pulls up in the limo. When George arrives back at his house, Vivian is reading a book in the living room. Did you have a nice time? She asks without looking up. What do you think? George yells. He gestures to the long t-shirt, which drifts around him like an old-fashioned nightshirt. Vivian looks at him finally. She snorts. This isn't what I wanted. George wails. He sits down across from her. The shirt rides up to his waist, exposing his balls. They look shriveled and sad, peeking out from beneath the cotton drape. He doesn't seem to notice, or if he does, he doesn't seem to care. How did you do it? He asks her. Vivian points her chin at the bookshelf. One of the books has been pulled from its place and lies face down on the shelf, its binding facing outward. Everyday hypnotism, George reads out loud. Christ, with a sinking feeling, George realizes Vivian could do the same thing to him again. Every day, if she wanted, he doesn't even know what the trigger is, the special phrase that'll send him into the streets naked again. There is no way to stop her, to undo what she has done. From this moment onward, George's nakedness is her plaything, her bare plastic doll. She can dance his boys out on the street anytime she wants. The fear of her power over him tightens his gut. This is part of the torture. You can't do this kind of stuff, George explains. What will people think? Vivian looks at him steadily. Since when do you care what people think? He can't. George mutters. You love it, she insists. George pulls out his wallet and gives her an extra grand for the month. Although he would never say it out loud, the money is proof enough. She has earned it. Where do you come up with this shit? Vivian smiles vacantly, her eyes cold and unrevealing. She says nothing. Shuddering, George turns from her and moves carefully upstairs. Later that afternoon, George hears the doorbell ring. He doesn't move. Maybe it is the police, to take him in for public exposure. If not this time, sooner or later they will come. The doorbell rings again, and he realizes that Vivian has not answered it. 
grudgingly, he trudges downstairs, he can hear voices in the doorway, when he reaches the bottom of the staircase, the door clicks closed, the hall is empty, George moves to the window that overlooks the front porch, who is she talking to, rage and injustice course through him as he considers the thought that Vivian might have struck up acquaintance with an old lover, he peeks carefully between the blinds, she is talking a woman, whose back is to George, I just wanted to make sure he's okay, the woman says, the voice is Margaret's, George's heart skips a beat, a friend of mine saw him downtown earlier today, he's fine, Vivian says with a slippery smile, the afternoon sun slides across her cheek, really, I mean, of course he's embarrassed about it, but he's taking the whole thing awfully well, Margaret sits down on a wicker chair, turning so George can see her face, she frowns, I just don't understand how it could have happened, it's not the sort of thing that happens by accident, Vivian looks at Margaret with something close to pity, George has issues, Margaret, she says, you can't just take a person to meet the Dalai Lama and assume he'll be magically healed, then he's not doing awfully well, is he Margaret says heatedly, Vivian cuts her off with a gesture, he's seeing someone, it's being taken care of well, I, I just want to make sure he's okay, that's all, Margaret stutters, of course you do, Vivian sniffs, you spend two weeks nursing him back to health in an exotic location and the second you get back you abandon him, you want to make sure that he's okay only as long as that means that you don't have to do anything, George feels a pang in his stomach as he watches Margaret's face twitch with guilt, he wants to yell, don't hurt my friend but he doesn't, he just keeps watching, I, I, Margaret stutters, you have no stake in his future, anymore, Vivian insists, I'm taking care of George now, for time, Vivian stretches herself up tall, and George is amazed by how imposing she is, Margaret's face fills with a suppressed panic, oh she says creakily, then she seems to find some strength in herself, well, then I can only hope he's in good hands, she says then flees the porch before Vivian can say another word, at the sight of Margaret's small figure turning swiftly up the street, George feels the dark not inside of him grow bigger, Margaret he thinks, but he can't quite finish the thought, Vivian turns back toward the house, a satisfied smirk curling her lips, she notices George peeking out at her from the blinds and laughs, George looks up at her in horror, she She's my friend George yells at her through the window, she frowns for only a second, then she mocks him, her voice muffled by the glass, or, poor George, your friends don't like you anymore, is that it she says in a sing-song voice, he gapes at her, she steps inside the front door, it's your own damn fault, she hisses her, face coming close to his, the sad truth is she's right, George sinks into the despair that is clamoring inside him, trying to find peace in numbness, instead, he finds only turmoil and fear, the misery is part of the torture, he reminds himself, but still he finds it difficult to believe, this is not what I wanted, something insists, yes, it is, you're so pathetic, Vivian continues, she can see that he is sinking, but wants to plunge him under, you care so much about what other people think that it even makes you look desperate, the well-trained George tries to argue, no, I'm an individual but the secret, drowning George knows that what she is saying is true, he despises himself, you're so pathetic, you beg for love and attention, but don't even know how to get it, Vivian continues, you're such an idiot, hopping around in that silly blue hat, moping after your cigarettes like a fucking zombie, if you want people to like you, why don't you just act like a normal person, George tries to straighten up as an overwhelming rage builds in him, fff, ff fuck you he shouts, he charges out the front door, turning up the street in the direction where Margaret went, she is nowhere to be seen, but he keeps walking anyway, Vivian dreams that she is having dinner with the Shaffers, except that instead of the ham, there is an entire roasted pig on the table, an apple shoved in its snout, and there are tall, slim candles lighting the dark wood table, dripping rivulets of wax, wasted wax, Vivian thinks in the dream, George's mother comes to the table with a pair of thick, round goggles over her eyes and a leather helmet on her head, she sits, Benny always wanted to be a driver, she says, Ma George whines, in Vivian's dream he is only five years old, although everyone treats him like he is thirty, George and I are lovers Vivian blurts out, everyone looks up at her, now she's done it, well why wouldn't you be, dear George's mother asks, dishing out more potatoes, through the dream, Vivian realizes that George is not married, he is not Greg, she can't hurt George in the same way that she wants to hurt Greg, and hurting George will not hurt Greg, not one bit, Vivian wakes up from the dream filled with an aching sense of loss, for some reason, she can't say why, it feels like someone she loved very dearly has just died, George, Vivian says quietly, 
Kindly one evening, he looks up at her in surprise, her eyes are wide, her expression innocent and caring. George feels a sudden certainty that everything they have been through in the last few months has just been a dream. He will wake up any minute and discover that they are actually happy together, and considerate, the American dream couple on the outside and in. Maybe they will go for a drive in his shiny black car and dance together on the beach. He is surprised at the sudden bliss this thought gives him, that a satisfying, loving relationship with Vivian is the dream. The nightmare is the reality. He realizes that the bliss between the moments of torture, just an accidental current of happiness, is what makes up his orgasm now. His life is just one torturous sexual act interspersed with brief spurts of joy and relief from pain. I was thinking, Vivian continues, looking on him with eyes filled with adoration, maybe false adoration, but Benny would take it. What if we went out for dinner tonight? Vivian asks, you know, like, an actual date her voice sinks down to a whisper, like real couples do, George wonders again if the whole arrangement is a lie, his mind could have created all the dormant during an episode, a way to explain all the pain of their normally loving relationship, but that is impossible, is it, Benny, is it really, why yeah, sure, he stutters, looking up at her with hope, wonderful, Vivian seems to glow, she drops down and plants a lingering kiss on his forehead, I have to take a shower, shouldn't we look nice George can only nod in silence, George and Vivian step out of his shiny black sedan in front of the neighborhood's premier Italian restaurant, Vivian is dressed to the nines in a slinky green dress that shimmers with eyes, her hair falls in soft, red waves down her back, George wears a dark grey suit with pale blue pinstripes, they glide together to the front door of the restaurant, a doorman in a tuxedo opens it as they arrive, George, it's beautiful, Vivian says in a hushed tone as they enter the dining room, it is dimly lit, but filled with mirrors, lighted candles, and glinting crystal, the two are seated in red leather chairs in a corner near the window, where the glow of nearby shops lights their faces, thank you, George, Vivian says after a sip of water, her eyes seem to shine, almost, almost, George convinces himself that their arrangement is a lie, that this momentary connection and consideration are truth, almost, their conversation is light and pleasant, without any bitterness or mention of what has passed between them in the last weeks, Vivian's face seems to glow in the candlelight, her freckles have all but disappeared, when George squints, he decides that Vivian's hair looks almost like Margaret's, the waitress is attractive, tall, and graceful, her eyes shine, too, as she meets George's gaze, his momentary happiness overflows, and he smiles at her radiantly, he includes Vivian in his smile, feeling suddenly like the three of them wholly understand each other, that the world is at peace and that they are at one with themselves and with the universe, when the waitress glides off, George sets his hand on the table, halfway between himself and Vivian, he beckons her with his fingers, this was a good idea, he says, I can't believe you, she hisses, what George frowns, for a moment, he disbelieves his ears, but her face is a horrible sight, despite the she spent making it up, it is twisted into some horrible snarl, an evil mask, she looks like a demon, a gargoyle, what do you mean he tries desperately to hang on to his earlier happiness, I saw how you were acting with the waitress, she says, do you think I'm blind she's insane, George realizes in a moment of inspiration, completely nuts, what are you talking about George replies, his voice rising slightly, you know what I'm talking about, you were flirting with her, Vivian says, accusingly, an older couple at the next table looks at them disapprovingly, I was not, George says, I didn't say anything, like you need to speak, Vivian scoffs, you have all people should know that you're more attractive when you keep your mouth shut, w where do you, how, Christ, Vivian, we're at one of the nicest restaurants in town and all you can do is insult me, don't change the subject, she insists, you were flirting with that girl, she's young enough to be your daughter, fellow patrons are becoming tense at George and Vivian's display, some of them stare at George openly, hostility etched on their face, she's young enough to be your daughter, Vivian repeats, one of the women at the table nearby gasps, she glares at George and stares pityingly at Vivian, men are scum, the woman mutters to her companion, who knows, I can't believe you, Vivian says a little louder, all I want is to have a nice dinner with you, that's what I want, too, George interrupts, and all you can do is ogle the waitress, Vivian barrels forward like a freight train, you disgust me, at that moment, the waitress brings their food, and George no longer cares about Vivian's disgust, instead, he stares unflinchingly at the woman's breasts, 
She seems nice, he thinks to himself. When he turns to his dinner, Vivian slaps him hard across the face. You're embarrassing me, she screams. I spent hours trying to look beautiful for you and in front of all these people you just ignore me and stare at that girl like you're at Hooters or something. These people wouldn't have a clue about it if you weren't yelling so loud. George roars back, losing his temper. So you admit it, you were flirting with her. Vivian screeches, triumphant. So what if I was George returns? What's the big fucking deal? The woman at the nearby table looks sharply at him and he returns her glare. What the fuck are you looking at? He snaps. You're always doing this to me, Vivian yells. You have no respect for me or for any woman. She turns to the sympathetic woman nearby. He walks around naked. You know, she reveals. Downtown, it's disgusting. The woman gasps. That was whom she murmurs. She whispers something to her partner. With a glare, they both stand up and leave. Sexist, one of the women hisses as they pass. Bitch, George mutters. He looks down at his food, his appetite gone. You really are something else. Vivian starts in on him again. What does she have that's so great? How George rolls his eyes. Nothing, Vivian. You're perfect just the way you are. She grunts, unsure what to make of this sarcasm. Can we just eat? George asks, poking at his food with a fork. That's all you think about, Vivian says, slamming her napkin down on the table. Your stomach, and your dick, pumping the table with her hip as she stands, Vivian glowers down at him. Then, she walks out of the restaurant, leaving George alone in front of two lukewarm plates of food. Vivian scurries down to the car in her heels clacking against the sidewalk. The secret to Vivian's fake-outs is that they are not really fake. There is a small, secret Vivian inside her, who's actually kind of pissed about the way George and the waitress seem to have a special moment back there. She doesn't think about the fact that she was included in that moment, too. If she did, it probably wouldn't help George's case. Anyway, a second after she slides her feet across the smooth carpet of George's shiny black car, she doesn't give a shit about the waitress or about George anymore, or so she tells herself. Instead, she laughs a quiet chuckle and leans back against the seat. She rolls down the divider that separates her from the driver. Hey, Benny, she says, her voice throaty and seductive. How about a drink when George comes home? The lights in the house are blazing. Music plays loudly over the wireless sound system. Vivian is nowhere to be seen. George briefly wonders what horrors are in store for him now. He wonders if an apology would stave off the torture. An apology would be more likely to cause pain, he decides. Vivian would use the moment of weakness to shred his heart. He pays the bills, after all. What does he need to apologize for? George stands indecisively in his own front entryway. He could turn around and leave. He could run away, and she would never find him. The Galapagos are nice, this time of year, any time of year. Maybe he should do it. She can have the house as long as he is free of what is in it. He won't. Even if I did run away, George thinks, there would be someone else. Someone else likes her to torture me. There's always a Vivian, no matter what I call her. In that case, George would not be in control. The torturer would be part of a love-hate relationship that he is doomed to always repeat. But with Vivian, at least, George is in control. After all, she is only doing what she does it because he pays her to. George fingers his wallet, wondering if he could pay her to stop. He is afraid of that question, afraid of the answer. He goes upstairs, on the covers of his neatly made by Vivian bed, George finds a note. Dearest George, the note reads, My dismay at your behavior at dinner this evening, and my own, can know no bounds. You and I have hurt each other so many times that there is nothing left for us to do. It is obvious, as well, that your affection for me has dwindled, and there can be no reviving it. What else is there for me but despair? You are my shelter and my sustenance. I should so much rather lose my life than my heart. Remember me fondly, love ever. Vivian George's mind whirls and he considers the note. What does it mean? Has she left him for good? At once his stomach sinks into his groin and his brain rips free of his skull. His thoughts float happily for a second when he thinks about life without Vivian's torture. He feels himself becoming aroused at the thought, all his past rationalizations, for a moment, far behind him. Then he looks at the note once more, and is filled with terror. Has she? Could she? 
racist of the bathroom, she lies on the cold towel in a pool of blood, her arms are sticky with it, her eyes are glassy and horror filled, George drops to his knees, she's slumped against the counter, which overflows with water from the running sink, the water coats her black, charred skin, exacerbating the still sparking hair dryer that rests just beside her fingertips, George drops to his knees, her face is bloated and strange, her hands limp at her sides, her toes pointed down just an inch from the lid of the toilet seat, George drops to his knees, she lays in the bathtub, her arm limp over the edge, her face white and empty against the still water, a nearly empty prescription bottle holds a few white pills, George drops to his knees, Vivian his voice makes a gargling sound, his tongue seems trapped in his throat, his thoughts are filled with horror, his heart a bleak, terrified thing, and yet the hope, a small hope that now she has disappeared forever tugs softly at him, Vivian he feels her slippery hand and finds a pulse, the hope disappears in a cloud of impossibility and guilt, George slaps her across the face, Jesus, George, she yells, sitting bolt upright, I'm not really dying, you dolt, she rubs her face with her hand, ow, sheesh, she says, George gapes at her like a fish, but, the pills, the note, he babbles, Vivian sinks back into the tub and smiles lazily, she lifts a glass of wine from the rim and brings it to her lips, you really think I'd give up all this she says finally, but what about the waitress, I'll date what the hell do I care if you flirt with the waitress or if you don't Vivian says with a wave of her hand, she closes her eyes, I don't kid myself that I have any hold on you, yeah George looks at her unflinching face, he tests the waters, I guess you don't have a hold on me, he says thoughtfully, he hopes it hurts her, even if it doesn't hurt her, he's glad to say it out loud, if only to show that he doesn't give a shit, either, as George leaves her there, he thinks, for just a moment, that he hears her sab, but as he looks back into the tub, Vivian's face is pure, serene, calm, he decides that it was just his imagination, when George wakes up the next morning, all he sees is darkness, darkness again, this time literally, he blinks for a moment, waiting for his eyes to adjust, but there is no light, none at all, before him is only a vast wall of blackness, George pushes his hands up before his face and sits up straight, adrenaline coursing through him, he cries out, one hand brushes against soft cloth, the other clutches the matted substance to his side, he is sitting on carpet, he stands and it's his head on something hard, which vibrates with a soft dong when he strikes it, where am I, George thinks wildly, is this hell, am I dead, Vivian, he screams, the light switches on, he is in the closet, sheesh, George, Vivian says, rubbing her eyes, she is wearing her pajamas, what are you doing in the closet, George shakes his head, Vivian shrugs, can you hand me my robe without a word, he hands it to her, Vivian closes the door, after a moment, she turns out the light, George sits on the floor in the closet, staring into the darkness, it is quiet, and still, a night with no stars, no moon to confuse it, it is a new kind of nothingness, he likes it all right, George walks down to the kitchen, Vivian is huddled over the coffee maker, making small noises, her shoulders are shaking a little, George wonders if she is crying, again, what does she have to be sad about, anyway, she is not the one who has to undergo daily torture, George scoffs softly and Vivian straightens up, you put me in the closet he says grumpily, grabbing a coffee cup, Vivian sends him a withering glare, George wonders for a moment whether he has begun sleepwalking or if it was just another one of Vivian's hypnosis tricks, judging from Vivian's face, he figures that he will never know, he decides to laugh, that was pretty stupid, he tells her, I mean, the closet, it's not like I'm claustrophobic or anything, Vivian shrugs, yeah, you sounded pretty calm and collected when you were thrashing around in there, she says sarcastically, hum, George mutters, he pours himself a cup of coffee and stares at her, he remembers the nothingness of the closet, it was not orgasmic, but it was peaceful, it was alright, he thinks, define alright, Benny, you're supposed to be the doctor, Bane, you tell me, I'm tired of the way you've been treating me, George says, last night, this morning, I mean, can't you let up even a little Vivian stares at him, you don't pay me to let up, she says finally, I don't even get weekends, so am I supposed to feel sorry for you, you're the one who's torturing me, you've done the most despicable things to me, isolated me from my friends, I can't even trust myself right now, I never even know where I'm going to wake up, anymore, 
George realizes he is screaming. What do you want me to do? George Vivian screams back. He is shocked to find that tears are streaming down her face. Her face is shining red and mottled like a cherry. I'm just doing my job. Now you're telling me I can't even do that right? George squirms under her despair. It's just that I'm doing it all too well. Vivian accuses him. You can't handle it, is that it? How is it my fault if you can't make up your mind? He can't believe the storm that he has unleashed. You can't ask me to do something and then bitch at me when I do it. Vivian screams. You can't have it both ways. George, I can have it any way I want. George insists meanly, irrationally. I'm the one who's paying you. Vivian stares at him for half a second then bursts into fresh tears. You are so cruel. She sobs. Oh, shut up. George says, tired of the guilt trip, not believing her tears are genuine. You love it. You know you do. Vivian buries her face in her hands. The sound of her crying fills the kitchen, the whole house. George can't handle her misery. He leaves. I need a smoke. He mutters to himself, slamming the door behind him. George wanders up and down the aisles of the grocery store, or a pack of cigarettes and a small sack of limes in his hand. He watches the shelves of goods slide past him. Red, green, yellow colored labels. It's a rainbow, George thinks. A rainbow. He stands for a moment, staring dumbly at a can of fried onions. George, Margaret calls, George, over here when George hears her voice, something in him lifts, he turns to see her waving from the end of the aisle, I stopped by your house the other day, but, Margaret pauses, I wasn't feeling well, George supplies, I heard about, um, what happened, downtown, yes, that George pauses, rubbing his chin meaningfully, that was embarrassing, wasn't it, well, I've just had some trouble sleeping, lately, actually, I've been sleepwalking, Margaret, that's what it was, pleased with this fabrication, George asks Margaret how she's been, oh fine, fine, she says, smiling, work, you know, well, I signed my first book deal, I guess you wouldn't have heard about that though, right that's great, George exclaims with a big smile, wondering since when Margaret wrote, what is the book about he says finally, Margaret looks confused for a moment, oh my god, I never told you about it Margaret beams, I wrote it years ago, and I've been submitting it for publication, I had all but given up, but it was finally accepted, she says, it's about, well, it's about a girl, like me, but with Tourette's and schizophrenia, and well, things get really bad for her, one thing after another, you know, and then she meets a man who can support her, who has the time to care for her and the money, too, well that's just great, George's smile is frozen on his face, really, what a great story, thank you George, Margaret smiles, so, ah, uh, I met your girlfriend the other day, when I came to meet you she says it's like a question, like she is not sure whether Vivian is his girlfriend or not, yes, Vivian, George says, she's just great, isn't she Margaret starts, oh yeah, she mumbles, so, you guys are really happy, you bet, George grins, he's playing the part of a lifetime, she's like, my soulmate, she's so thoughtful all the time, really takes care of me, you know every word pierces her heart, she actually flinches, well, as long as you're happy, she says, oh, I am, George assures her, his utter bliss gives her no room for doubt, she puts on a happy face, and the mask is complete, well alright, George, make sure you tell her that I'm glad she's taking such good care of you, Margaret pauses a moment, and a light flashes in her mind, did you get in touch with your nanny, yet what George looks at her blankly, your nanny, the one who used to, you know, I thought you were going to confront her, yeah, George says, well, no, I haven't found her yet, she's really hard to find, you know she can tell that George is lying, but drops it for now, she places her hand lightly on his arm, I'm glad that we're still friends, she says, smiling up at him, he smiles back with real pleasure, it sucks to hold a grudge, doesn't it he says, she nods, if you need anything, anything at all, she says quietly, well, you know you can count on me, and with that, she turns and rolls her cart down the next aisle without a backward glance, George knows that Margaret doesn't buy his story about Vivian and his everlasting bliss, but he would not have it any other way, what is the point of being miserable if everyone knows about it, the house is rocking when George George gets back from the store. The windows are blazing light, with only shadows of the people who crowd his living room. Music booms from the windows and walls, the frame seems to shake and creak from the sound waves. Someone yells at him from his own porch. Hey, buddy George sneers at the man. Sheesh, what's his problem? The man snickers. Hey, who the hell invited you? Anyway he yells at George's back. George slams through the open front door and bumps into a teenaged looking party girl on her way out to the porch. She smiles up at him drunkenly, her eyes shining with bright blue makeup. 
Hey, you got a light she giggles, I need a smokes, she laughs again and looks over her shoulder at no one, did you hear that? A smokes she takes one look at George's face and then slides past him, bumping arms with the man on the porch, a smokes she snickers, and he laughs loudly with her, dropping an arm lightly on her shoulders, ordinarily, George would be all over this party, he would be its wildest fiend, hey, party, he would mumble drunkenly, punctuating the air with a pack of smokes. Hey, party, you ain't seen nothing yet, but not here, not in his own little sanctuary, the cave that he has made for himself, and Vivian, oh number, instead he is angry, crazy mad, he wants to go ballistic on Vivian, smack her around a little, something anything, strange alcoholics and druggies have invaded his untidy little world, some are knocking over the stacks in the living room, others are raiding the almost empty refrigerator for mayonnaise scrapings and a last water pickle, worst of all, with all the people, he can't even find Vivian, fucking bitch, he mutters, George walks into the kitchen, where there is a blender wiring in the corner, he wonders if it's his blender, does he even have a blender? The man with the controls takes his hand off the top for a moment to grab the belt loop of a pretty little blonde standing next to him. With a triumphant rush, the contents of the blender free themselves, sending an explosion of orange liquid and crushed ice all over the counters and floor. George gapes at the mess, the orgasmic spurt of alcohol that has tainted his otherwise sterile environment. Don't worry, man, the guy who took his hand off the top leans his face close to the blonde, although he is talking to George, he fingers a lock of her hair, basks in a willing smile. I'll take care of it. First thing tomorrow, then he addresses the girl like no one else is even there. Shots he suggests. George stomps out into the backyard, where a crowd of 20 and 30-something men and women dance together to the blaring of music from a fat set of speakers. The crowd gyrates, crooning and boning together. The muscle heads have all taken their shirts off, and so have some of the skinnier girls. One girl, a waist along, slender board, wanders around in nothing but a purple lace bra and matching panties, bouncing from chest to chest as she tries to dance. It is like one big orgy in George's backyard, reminding him of the fetish houses where he used to play, except the people at this party are almost all, without exception, remarkably attractive. George sees a flash of red, kai, wild, or rangy red, Vivian, he weaves his way through the bodies, bumping elbows and pushing past the naked flesh of the pulsing, sweating dancers, the stench of collective body odor shoves its way up his nostrils, he tries hard not to gack, the dancers part a minute and he sees Vivian wedged between two well-muscled young men and doing a good job on both of them, neither of the men can take their eyes off her, and George can hardly blame them, she is wearing her most fetching black leather halter, her tightest and lowest cut black leather pants, a shimmering red thong pokes up from her ass crack, Vivian sees George and winks at him, she flicks the whip she is holding in her right hand so that it curves gently around the cheek of the young man who rides her belly button, it's a party, George, she cries drunkenly, flinging her head back, her hair rises above her face, swirling like flame, I threw you a party, I didn't want a fucking party, Vivian, he yells, grabbing at her elbow, her eyes open wide, like she is surprised by his anger, he tries to pull her away from the two, hunky, young men and out of the pumping, thrusting crowd, but one of the men steps in front of him, give the lady some respect, the man says, he crosses his arms over his ridiculously bulging pectorals, yet, the other man chimes in, he's stockier than the first and still bigger than George, hey guys, Vivian laughs, trying to lighten the mood, let's just dance, high with one last glower, the two boys turn back to their sexy cougar and resume their half-frenzied attempts to fuck her leather-bound ass, they will probably both do it, too, once the sun goes down, George pictures the two of them riding his Vivian, their sweaty and strong young that is working in tandem with her, forming a cage of flesh around his Vivian, jealousy twists through his heart like a thick, rusty wire, shoving him deeper than he knew existed, why does she bother with me if she can get that, George revels in disgust and self-hatred, because you're paying her to, Dumbus, is the obvious reply, and that brings along a whole new brand of pain, George thud noisily up the stairs, in the bedroom, some black-haired bimbo is giving 
giving a surfer dude a back massage in Georgia's bed, get the hell out, he yells, and they scram, Christ, he mumbles, climbing into the bed with his shoes on, in 10 minutes, he is asleep, when George sleeps, he dreams of the deep dark of the closet, the silence and peace, the strange anonymity of blackness, soothe his rattled nerves, my dear, my deepest love, your peace is music to my senses, come and be nothing with me, sink into the bliss of blackness, have a world without us, when George dreams, Vivian is his slave, he strings her up until she is hanging from the ceiling, her wrists chafing from the rope, George, please, she screams, terrified, she is not paying him to torture her, after all, he's just doing it for fun, please, George, just let me down, who's George he answers and laughs, there's no George here, George sharpens a knife carefully as he watches her swing, her eyes soar back and forth with every swipe of the blade, George, I couldn't help it, she gasps, you made me do it, you wanted me to, I just did what you wanted me to do, George takes the tip of the knife and embeds it into her calf, she screams, you wanted to do it, he says finally, I may have a skew for it, but you wanted to do it, he slowly drags the blade down to her ankle, he has to tug on it when he gets towards the bottom, then he slices her Achilles tendon, psycho style, George gets nothing from Vivian now but a series of screams and weeping, no, 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 she moans, sobbing between cuts, how could you do it, how could you know how far to go, how can you know when to stop if you don't know what it's like, Vivian he argues with her, he grabs each side of the cut with his fingers and begins to tear the skin away from the muscle, tearing slowly from the back of the calf all the way to her shin bone, Vivian's screams are a constant, never ending nightmare of pain, she, George soothes her as he gives the skin one last tug, ripping it from her leg, blood drains from her and pools on the floor, this is for your own good, George soothes her, then he starts to work on her other leg, when George comes back to reality, reality, it is in the strange half darkness of morning, a searing pain in his arm brings him full awake, George tries to sit up, but a heavy weight holds him down, Vivian straddles him, naked, she grins fanatically, her hairy glowing orange halo, good morning, lover, she murmurs, then she slashes at him again with a razor blade, in the chest this time, out, George cries, but as the blood seeps from the cut, the exclamation turns to a low moan, the numbness and nothingness of this pure, blessed pain is all that he has missed and more, again, he begs, George doesn't hear the Mexican cleaning crew when they arrive, but they can hear him, they stand uncertainly on the front porch as his voice drifts down from the upstairs window, George is moaning and groaning, Sanchez looks over at Rubeni, gives him a swift shrug, sounds like fun, hey he mutters, Rubeni just grunts, hey, Maria, why don't you get a coffee started Sanchez suggests, he tosses her the keys, she stares up at the upstairs window with eyes large in fear, poor favor, she whispers, Sanchez gives her no pardon, with trembling fingers, she puts the key in the lock, she enters the house of pain, which echoes with George's cries, then the door closes behind her, Benny and Sanchez each light a cigarette, occasionally glancing upward and snickering, Margaret stands uncertainly at the threshold of George's house, the door is slightly ajar, inside, the sounds of thumping and knocking echo, along with whispered words in Spanish, more worrisome are the sounds of screaming and moaning from upstairs, Sanchez pauses when he sees her, a mop is in one hand and a bucket filled with cleaning supplies is in the other, excuse me, he says finally, she moves away from the door to let him through, just cleaning up, she asks as Rubeni passes by, closely followed by Maria, who keeps her head down, she is shy, oh, yeah, Benny whistles through his teeth, what a riot in there last night, hey he winks at Margaret, not so quiet this morning, either, Margaret returns his attitude with a cold smile, and he shrugs boyishly, then Ruben Benny, Sanchez, and Maria load up the van and drive off, the screaming and moaning continue from upstairs, it is George, Margaret knows it is George, what is that woman doing to him, she thinks frantically, whatever it is, it can't be good, stealing herself, Margaret rings the doorbell, the moaning cuts off amid gasp, Margaret hears the slamming of the door and a gentle thumping from inside the house, the front door swings open, it's Vivian, the woman's hair floats around her head like fiery orange snakes, her eyes are shadowed with purple circles, her freckles strain to jump off of her parchment white skin, ah, uh, hi, Margaret begins, what do you want Vivian interrupts, Margaret stares open mouthed at the woman, 
George, she finally sputters, she stands up a little straighter, I wanted to talk to George he's not home, Vivian says impatiently, her eyes narrow, her message clear, scram, but I heard him, Margaret insists, almost choking on the words, Vivian's eyes are like smoldering coals, Margaret cringes back from them but refuses to leave, did you Vivian raises an eyebrow, then she sighs, her face softens into a small smile, I suppose you did, Margaret can't help but relax slightly at Vivian's sudden change of attitude although she is still terrified of the woman, why don't you sit down Vivian gestures gently to one of the porch chairs, Margaret collapses into it weakly, Vivian's smile increases slightly, to Margaret, the woman's canines seem pointed, wolf-like, George has not been feeling very well lately, Vivian explains, Margaret raises her eyebrows and opens her mouth to express her worry, but Vivian cuts her off, not that, mentally, he is fine, it's just, ah, the flu, a really bad case of the flu, that's what the noise is from, it's hurting him a lot, Margaret gasps, shouldn't he be in the hospital, if it's that bad, Vivian shakes her head, I took him there last night, but you know George, he can't stand the hospital, she smiles, they sent me home with instructions for caring for him, and I know who to call if he takes a turn for the worst, but they say he should pull through all right, it just has to hurt him a bit, first, before he can get better, can I see him Margaret says, no, Vivian says, her breathing becomes short, and her eyes go wild for a moment, he's really contagious, Vivian's eyes narrow evilly, trust me, you don't want to catch this one, Margaret nods slowly, then her own eyes narrow with suspicion, I just saw George yesterday, at the grocery store, she says, he seemed fine, Vivian seems shocked for a moment, and then, is that jealousy, is she actually jealous of Margaret I don't know, Benny, is it, does Vivian love George, really, who can really love George, Doc, isn't real, remember, who can love what isn't even there, and what does love have to do with jealousy anyway Margaret starts, what can Vivian have to be jealous of, it came on quickly, Vivian says, her smile stiffening, her sharp teeth glistening, Margaret shudders, in the afternoon, I took him to the hospital last night, they sent him home this morning, Margaret nods again, what else can she do, Vivian's story is airtight, will you tell him I came by to see him Margaret says, tell him that I'm worried about him and I hope he gets better soon, Vivian's grin widens triumphantly, oh, I will, I'm sure that he'll be back on his feet in no time, Vivian rises from her chair, Margaret stands with her but doesn't move away, she hesitates a moment, looking up to the bedroom window, wondering, George has been absolutely silent since Vivian came to the door, almost as if, goodbye, Vivian says pointedly, showing her teeth, yes, Margaret jumps a little, and takes a few steps back, yes, goodbye, as if Vivian is the one who is causing his pain, Margaret puts as much feeling as she can into her next words, I'm sure we'll see each other again soon, she says, Vivian's face seems to indicate that she would rather not, but Margaret doesn't see, she is already halfway down the sidewalk, running for the street, when she hears the front door slam, Margaret sneaks back up to the side of the house, after a moment, she hears George begin to moan again, he actually screams, the sound reminds her of a terrified child, with this proof in her pocket, Margaret flees the sounds of her friend's pain, that night, George dozes on his bed, he feels his cuts oozing slowly into the bandages Vivian applied so expertly, the tingling, burning pain consumes his whole mind, he relaxes into the sensation, wrapping it around him like a blanket, a fuzzy, pinching, biting blanket, the doorbell rings, George dimly hears Vivian's voice as she answers, a loud, booming male voice answers hers, George perks up a little, he wonders if it is an old boyfriend, Vivian answers the voice, but it insists, the door opens, and two sets of loud footsteps clomp on the hotwood floors, a soft knock on the door, and Vivian pokes her head in, I'm so sorry, dear, but there are some officers here to see you, she says in the kindest, most gentle voice that George has ever heard her yours, what he says groggily, he's sick, she explains to someone behind her, you can't just come in, you might catch it, we'll take our chances, mom, the booming voice says, George sighs, 
They can come in, Vivian, he says. Two blue suits tramp into the room in heavy black shoes. When they see George lying on the bed, they exchange glances. We're sorry to bother you, sir, says the first suit. His voice is quiet, but serious. I'm Detective Marley, and this is my partner, Officer Carver. Detective Marley is thin, with a mustache. George wants to laugh at him, but remembers to play his part. Is everything okay? What's wrong he says weakly. There's been a report of domestic violence. Carver begins, his voice filling up the room. He is a large man, with a shock of black hair that sticks straight up towards the ceiling. What? Vivian George looks over at her. It wasn't me, darling, she says innocently. He wonders if this is a new sort of torture. Maybe she will send him to jail, and let the inmates and the guards do the torturing for her. He would have to pay her double for that, maybe even an extra grand as congratulations for her genius. She's riding me all the way to the bank, he thinks lazily. Then George realizes that the cops are staring at him. I never hit her, he stammers. Not once, the officers glance at one another. Detective Marley turns around. Would you mind leaving us, Ms. Babylon, he says calmly. Vivian looks at George. He shrugs weakly. Don't be too hard on him, Vivian says. He's in very fragile condition. She walks over to George's side and kisses his forehead, just like she loves him, just like she cares for him. So this is what it would be like, George thinks wonderingly, amazed at the momentary bliss that floods him at her gentle touch. Then she leaves, closing the door quietly behind her. When the latch clicks closed, both cops direct their attention entirely to George. The tip wasn't about you abusing Vivian, Marley says. It was about her abusing you. For a moment, George can't even speak. He stares at them both. A hysterical chuckle rises in his throat, but he disguises it as a cough. That's ridiculous, he says finally. Marley shrugs, maybe. Carver pulls out a pad of paper from his breast pocket. Just what is your relationship with Miss Babylon, he asks. His pen poised above the paper. She's my girlfriend. She lives here with me, George says. She's my tormentor, my torturer, he wants to say. She's my love and hate, my twisted perverted sex goddess. Don't judge her, officers. I asked her to. Do you think there are people judging you, Benny? Of course there are, Bane. And you judging me. Isn't that what this is all about? Carver scratches down his answer on the pad. Does she ever hit you? Mr. Schaefer Carver continues. Of course not, George says. This time, he really does laugh. Although he's not sure why. Look at her. She, she couldn't hurt a spider. The cops take a moment to think as one of their radios buzzes an encrypted message. There are many different ways of hurting the ones we love. Marley says quietly, with an understanding smile. Love George says quietly, pretending to mull it over. Yeah, love. Marley and Carver shake their heads. Clearly, the man is a goner. Do you have any reason to believe that Ms. Babylon would want to hurt you? Mr. Schaefer Carver asks brusquely. Oh really? Is this necessary? George says in a brash tone. He hopes his facade is intact. Marley smiles again, seeming to agree with George at the ridiculousness of the questioning. It's just part of the routine, he says. Paperwork, you know, shouldn't you see a doctor? Carver interrupts. You look pretty sick. George readjusts the bunched up pillow under his elbow and shrugs. I feel better today than yesterday. I'll be f fine. The officers exchange a look when they hear his stutter. Sir, I think you should see a doctor, Marley says. You don't look too great to me. What do you shithead know about it? George cries out. Then he closes his eyes. Marley whispers something to Carver. George can't hear most of it, but the word poison passes his lips. He laughs. You two are really something. Really, he says. You're not going to get me into the hospital. I'm fine. Everything's fine here. My girlfriend is not beating me, or torturing me, or even making me mad. Most of the time, he laughs loudly at his own joke, but Carver and Marley will not laugh with him. He sobers up. In any case, you two are completely out of line here. I have no intention of charging my girlfriend with abuse, nor do I have any reason to. Now if you'd please, the officers look at each other in confusion. Come and get out, George finishes. They stand, but hesitate. Get out he screams. Vivian opens the door with a bang. What are you doing to him in here? She demands. Out George screams again. His screams and her nagging tone follow the officers all the way out the door and to the street. Bane goes deep Benny. Bane says finally, one day, 
For a long time she just listened as I told the story, but today, Benny, she says, yeah Benny, she draws the word out, spends a long time saying my name, Benny, she repeats, why is the driver named Benny I look at her, she is going nuts again, why is anyone named anything I point out, why was I named Benny she pushes her lips together, is there a story there, behind your name she asks, Bane is some kind of detective, but she is always digging in the wrong direction, if you ask me, family name, I explain, we're all a bunch of inbred blue bloods, you know, too many names would be tough to remember, her lip quivers a bit, one of these days I will get her to smile, why is the driver named Benny she repeats, is it a family name for him, to how the heck should I know I retort, you don't see me or George talking much to Benny, do you maybe that's the problem, she muses, what I swear, the woman has really lost her mind this time, Benny, are you George's driver I laugh, ah, no, Bane, I haven't been driving since the robbery, you know that, she waves me off, no, Benny, what I'm asking, are you the vehicle, and George rides around in you, that is why Benny's the driver, right I don't know, Bane, it is a hell of a lot more complicated than that, in her dream, Vivian is having dinner with the Shaffers, only instead of the Hamel roasted pig on the table, this time it's George who's curled up on a large serving platter, an apple shoved between his teeth, his skin is still crackling, roasted to perfection, his eyes are glassy, sightless, George's mother approaches with a carving knife and fork, crisscrossing their edges, sharpening one against the other, she poises over George, I'm so glad you're not one of those vegetarians, she says, grinning horribly, I just wanted to thank you for taking such good care of our Benny, she says and then slices downward with a flash of steel, George squeals his pain and Vivian jerks out of bed, she glances at the lump that is George, his screeching still echoing between her ears, I am sorry, she whispers, I am so sorry, with a glass of wine in her hand, Vivian mopes around George's bungalow, it's nothing like what she had expected, the sterile counters are not clean because someone cares for the place and its inhabitants, someone who tenderly scrubs down the surfaces with loving consideration, number, the counters are clean because no one uses them, because the place is devoid of life, no one actually lives there, Vivian and George drift around the place like ghosts, replaying the tortures of ages past, Vivian wonders if George still feels the pain, if he still gets off to it, as for her, she doesn't feel the satisfaction of torturing him anymore, George is no longer every man who has hurt her, and hurting him is no longer a way to get back at every evil she has ever known, George is just a man who's tangled up in her life right now, the man she can't seem to convince herself to leave, like all the others, she loves him, still, she's being paid to torture him, so that's what she'll do, walking into the cluttered yet organized living room, Vivian kicks over a stack of George's sketches, let that be the latest blow, she thinks to herself, now he'll have to stack it all back up, she snickers to herself, any petty meanness can be justified, but that doesn't make it right, Vivian drains her glass of wine as she hears George's alarm go off, the digital clock on the wall reads, 10am, she thinks about starting a pot of coffee, but stills restrated, she opts for more booze and considers how she might torture George this evening, screw pain, she thinks, she is not into pain, not tonight, that night, when George walks in expecting dinner, Vivian breezes past him on her way out the door, where you going George says, confusion all over his face, none of your business, Vivian grins wolfishly, don't I get a night off every now and then he can smell that she has been drinking, but then so has he, she is wearing tight jeans that show her pretty bottom, her thick thighs, a scanty halter shows the small royal love fat at the back of her shoulders, George wants to laugh at her, a little, but he thinks that maybe, just maybe, some other man might find her attractive, if he had been drinking, if she was just his type, I thought she was your type, George, older, unfettered, nice feet, George tells that voice in his head to shut it, you live with a woman long enough, and her skin doesn't seem all that sexy anymore, in fact, it can just about make you puke, sure, he grins, diabolically, I could use a night off, too, he flashes her a lopsided grin as she leaves, imagining her being unsettled by his cavalier attitude and decides it's more likely that she doesn't give a shit one way or the other, probably, she just needs a break, like she said, maybe, Vivian slides into the greasy sleazy bar like she owns the place, it's been months since old Vivian has been around, for a minute everyone looks up, surprised to see her, within seconds, the novelty of Vivian's reappearance is gone, and the crowd goes back to what they all do best, drink, Vivian fits right in, her favorite stool still bears her name, Jim Gimlet, she orders, 
her green eyes glistening. The bartender, although drunk, is not quite as gone as the other regulars. He looks at her, tilting his head slightly. Been a while, he says gruffly, pouring her drink. Yeah, yes so, she grins at him. Damn it feels good to be out again, on the prowl, Vivian thinks. Rah. She shifts her shoulders easily, feeling the stale bile air on her exposed skin. She can feel eyes on her, but she's not here for just any old fling. Oh number, Vivian has a particular gentleman in mind for tonight. She has a plan, and she is sticking to it. Of course, she started the night early in order to work up her resolve, in order to keep George from sucking her into his company. After a few drinks she plays a round or two of darts, a little pool then bangs around the jukebox for a minute or two, catching up with the regulars. There is nothing new in their lives, luckily, nothing to catch up on except the same old shit played over and over again. And, luckily for Vivian, they are all so wasted that they can't remember what she has told them, so she tells them everything and more than everything. She tells them everything she wishes she had a nerve to do to George, but can't. Then a few minutes later, one of them will stagger over to her again and say, Hey Vivian, how the hell you been and she can start it all over again. Maybe talking about it is better than living it. She wonders if George would modify the deal to make imagining new tortures, without actually doing them, a still payable double offense. She knows the answer to that before she even begins. Vivian sighs and puts her chain in her hands, with her elbows on the bar. She sips deeply from her fourth gin gimlet. She is starting to warm up to it. Her shoulders slouch. Her belt pulls in at a cut, cutting off circulation to her nether regions. The door creaks open, and in walk her lucky bear. Vivian smiles to see their faces, their arms wrapped around each other. They are so damn happy, she thinks. She knows she would hate them nearly as much if they weren't so damn happy all the time. She glowers a little, until they notice her. She arranges her face. Greg. Sarah she calls, over here, you two with intoxicated smiles, Greg and Sarah float over to where Vivian waits, maybe they are dumb, or maybe they are too trusting, or maybe Vivian never got a chance to tell them everything she thought of them, they don't seem to think that there is anything wrong with the picture of Vivian waving to them and hollering friendly greetings at the top of her lungs, Vivian, Sarah gushes, Vivian, Greg belches, how the hell have you been, we haven't seen you in ages, yeah, Vivian says, I guess because I got fired, Sarah and Greg look at her for a moment with fixed terror, then Vivian laughs, and they both laugh with her, they are captivated by her, her wild hair, her free spirit, her open toes beckon to them both. Vivian, I'm so sorry, Greg says presently, I don't know what I was thinking, back then, it was such a terrible mistake, Vivian grins easily, it is not Greg that she loves and hates, it is not Greg that she wants to make suffer anymore, it is George, just George, and for now, that means that Greg is forgiven, Sarah, too, by default. Vivian puts a hand on each of their legs and leans into them, breathing her hot, ginny breath in their direction. That's all in the past, she insists, her vocal cords humming. Craig and Sarah croon along with her. Oh I'm so glad, Sarah says, her eyes shine bright. I've missed our friendship. Vivian wants to laugh at the woman who can call their love and hate relationship a friendship. Maybe you can, though, maybe you should, but instead she just smiles and keeps her features smooth. This rounds on me, she says. The three former lovers sidle up to the bar, whispering and pointing fingers and bursting into loud laughter. And then my house burned down, Vivian yells finally. Craig and Sarah crack up. Can you believe it she goes them, wordlessly, with tears streaming from their eyes, they shake their heads, Vivian, you live such a crazy life, Sarah says, giggling, yeah well, it gets better, Vivian grins, now I'm living with the guy who burned my house down, oh, you're not, Sarah insists. Craig laughs out loud, of course she is, you should come stay with us, Sarah squeals, in her drunken haze, she thinks this is a good idea, Vivian waves the woman down, oh, I am feeling really settled where I am, George, that's his name, he's actually such a sweet man, like an uncle, really, her eyes light up, almost as if she had come up with an idea on the spot, hey, you guys should meet him, she says, how about tonight Greg and Sarah not enthusiastically, I've got to meet this guy, Greg says, alright, Vivian smiles, one more shot and then we're out of here, Greg and Sarah nod again, their eyelids drooping, half an hour later, the three stagger in the dark towards the front door of George's house, one of the shadowed figures giggles and stumbles into a bush, Sarah one of the other shadows laughs helplessly then bends down to scoop her up, Vivian's shadow strides purposefully up the front steps, 
tripping only slightly on her way, George sits in his dark office with his feet on the desktop that shimmers from the light of three video cameras, cameras that he now addresses, cameras that have been set up, that have always been set up, for the single purpose of recording him and perhaps, perhaps, catching a moment of sanity, you never know, it could work, but at the moment, George is as schizo as ever, babbling on into the night about what a poor, tortured creature he is under Vivian, how even her leaving him for a night is still a torment to him, poor, Poor George, and then he hears the voices at the front door, when he recognizes Vivian's voice among them, George relaxes, but only slightly, regardless of what he has been saying to the cameras, about how being apart from Vivian is torture in itself, he really doesn't want to face her, now or ever, he can't imagine what new torture she has cooked up for him, and he doesn't want to learn, George dives under his desk when he hears the footsteps climbing the stairs to the second floor, just as he manages to tuck his feet in behind him, exposing his pudgy bottom to the coldness of the hardwood floor, the door slams open, George, Vivian calls drunkenly, there is giggling behind her, George Porridge, she snorts with laughter, huh, where is that little muffin, my uncle type, that is, my funny uncle, another explosion of laughter from the hallway, and Vivian exits, leaving the door partially open, George squeezes his eyelids tight shut, he hardly dares to breathe until he hears their voices in the next room, then he stands and crawls to the cameras, he stands up next to the one on the left, which is positioned in such a way that he can jump behind the door if anyone comes, you see what I'm talking about he whispers into the camera, Hearing noises coming from Vivian's room, he detaches the camera from its tripod and creeps down the hallway. I'll show you, George whispers, his heart hammers in his chest. When he gets to the doorway, he can hear Vivian moaning. He knows what is going on but can't stop himself from opening the door. Anyway, it's one aspect of the part he plays, the part they play together. The room is dark, but the moonlight glows through the single window. Vivian and her two lovers are entwined, like one massive, gyrating, screeching creature. George trains the camera steady on the beast. You bitch, he screeches, hardly recognizing his own voice. The beast barely acknowledges him, it just keeps right on. You bitch George is screaming, although there is no sound. When Vivian wakes up the next morning, her unexpected double pay awaits her on her bedside table. George is nowhere to be seen. Vivian thumbs through the cash. If the insurance doesn't come through on the house in another year or so, she will still have enough money to build a new one. At this rate, if she can make it that long, if she can stick to sleeping around and skip the cigarette burns and the S&M shit, she decides she can make it. After all, sleeping around is not that hard. George can't even look at Vivian, let alone talk to her about what happened. He mopes up and down the aisles at the grocery store, but Margaret is nowhere to be seen. It's not a shopping day. George considers waiting around until she does show up. It will only be a day, maybe two days. The store is open 24 hours a day. George could live off the free samples and produce and fresh baked bread until Margaret shows up. Margaret will know what to do. George thinks, Margaret will fuck me. She'll make Vivian look like a two-bit hooker, an over-the-hill beauty queen. George knows that Margaret will never fuck him, not in a million years, but she might give him some relief, just a little relief. Then George, still moping up and down the aisles, realizes that Vivian might end up at the store, too. He has never seen her there before, but you never know. It's something you with Vivian every day, and maybe first thing on today's list is to go shopping. George rockets out of the grocery store like a cat out of a bathtub. Where does George go to avoid Vivian? To the same places he used to go. George slides into place in his old haunts, the sicko twisted sex clubs of his past, like a foot sliding into an old shoe. He walks up to his favorite, a century-old woodhouse with a maze of rooms on the top floor. He sighs as his foot hits the third step, a rotted, warped piece of wood that creaks every time his foot hits it. It's as though nothing has changed. The club is not a business on the outside, but a private residence. Nothing to see here. Mom, just as lonely, heartbroken suckers for pain, having a friendly get-together. Hello, Mr. Schaefer, says the woman who sits at the foot of the stairs. We haven't seen you here for quite some time. I've been busy, George says grinning at the woman. In these places, George doesn't feel quite like the self that he presents to the rest of the world. In this house, filled with sicko-twisted perverts with their nauseating fantasies, George feels quite suave, almost normal. Is Samantha here he asks, in the mood for a good old-fashioned foot-smothering. H.M., 
Samantha has a prior engagement, the woman says, consulting her clipboard. How about Taylor? George shrugs. Whatever, he says. The woman shows him to a private room, a small room, with a queen-sized bed, large closet, and several mirrors. Aelia will be in shortly. The woman says, with an artificial smile, she leaves. George sits on the bed and waits. After a few minutes, he lies on his back and stares up at the mirrored ceiling, which stares back impassively. George looks up at his own face. It's not a bad face, he thinks although he has a hard time believing that it's really his. Finally, the door opens again. Aelia George asks. He props himself up on his elbows. That's me, the girl says. She is dark-skinned and petite, with bleached blonde hair or a wig. George can't decide which. Huh, George says. Aelia walks closer to him. You wanted a foot smothering yes. Well, number George's thoughts are racing. I changed my mind. Is that okay? Aelia smiles softly. Well, that depends on what you want me to do, she says. Tie me up. Cut me, burn me, whip me. George entreats her. He can't meet her gaze. Instead, he glances over at the bedside table. Propped on it is another mirror, a small round hand mirror. George's face surprises him again. Oh, you want it rough today? Is that it, Aelia purrs? Well, I think I can manage that, Mr. Schaefer. Yes, indeed. George watches with detachment as Aelia ties his hands with handkerchiefs to the bedposts, avoiding her eyes and his own, which, if he could stand to look in the mirror again, would beg him to stop, to come to his senses. Vivian brought this on herself, he reminds himself. She cheated first, with those, those. George remembers the sight of the beast and anger flares hot in him. He clenches his fist and rattles the bedpost. HM, someone's getting excited, Aelia notes. She slowly undoes the buttons of George's shirt. Then she pulls a penknife from the top drawer of the bedside table. She draws the blade gently across his chest. It is just a tickle, just a reminder of what pain could really be. She is too soft, too gentle, this Aelia. She lacks Vivian's rough edge, her true penchant for pain. She probably never gets angry. This girl, just uses her soft voice, the voice of reason, to keep everyone under control. Do you do hypnotism? George blurts out. Aelia lays a hand on his shoulder and smiles, afraid not. She draws the knife a little harder now, causing a bit of a burn on his skin. She uses the sharp tip to prick at his collarbone. George feels a small bit of wetness where she has been. He groans with the release that this gives him. Vivian will flow out of him as his blood leaks through fresh cuts. Maybe he will forget all about Vivian. Maybe Aelia will do the trick. You like that? How she encourages him? She scratches his neck and throat with her fingernails. Yeah, you do. Then she stops for a moment. She dips her fingernail into one of the small drops of blood oozing from George's chest, where she pricked him. She draws a tiny, thin line across his throat. What is your safe word? She asks finally. What George says wonderingly. Safe word? How could anything in this world be made safe? You know, Aelia explains. The word you say to make me stop? If things get too rough for you what George understands now, but he is too incensed to respond properly. Untie me, he commands her, biting her lip. Aelia slowly complies. George sits up abruptly once he is free buttoning his shirt with rapid hands. I think that's enough for today, he says in a huff as he stands. I'm sorry, was it something I did? Aelia asks. Don't go, I'll do it right next time. Just tell me what I did. George turns in the doorway. A safe word he scoffs at the thought. You've got to be kidding me. After his encounter with Aelia, George gets down and dirty. Only the worst of the worst will do it for him. He could not stand to sit and be tortured by another nice girl. He sits through innumerable foot smotherings. He is tied down, cut up forced to crawl across hard rock crystals, all be for the anonymity of strangers. The strangers are a nice touch, George thinks. They add an element of humiliation to the situation that a private room never could. But George is even less fulfilled now than he was before he met Vivian. Before Vivian, George did not know what good was. Now he watches all his so-called tormentors, his fellow sufferers, and he feels nothing but contempt. These masochists do not know what it is like to have a Vivian on their chest, digging holes into their hearts. They do not know what it is like to have her in their oxygen, destroying their perfectly controlled environments. They have not woken up locked in a closet or naked in the street. They are vacationing masochists, dabbling in a pastime they do not even understand. They don't know what pain is, they don't have the slightest clue, they are weak, 
George has outgrown them. By the end of a week, George has had enough of the same old S&M fetish houses. He wants the big guns, something he has never seen before, something that is bound to shake him up. He takes the recommendation of a friend, if you could call him a friend, who gives him a phone number without a name. Just trust me, the guy says, shaking visibly, this is some heavy shit. Here, if this doesn't shake you up, then you must be dead. George finds hope in this promise. He calls the number and is sent straight to voicemail. A lonely mechanized voice repeats the dialed number to him, then commands him to leave a message. There is the beep. Hey, up. My name is George August. I got your number from a friend of mine, looking for something to shake me up. Looking for some heavy shit. You know, he told me you could help. George trails off, without a name, without even knowing what the number can offer him. He doesn't have a clue, can you? He concludes lamely. Can you? Help me. I mean, thank thank you. An hour later, George gets a text message with an address, a date, and a time. George's shiny black limo wins its way through a forest of pine trees. Up. Up they climb until the trees dwindle into small, gnarled grey things, and rocks begin to jut up from the lichened earth. The road grows increasingly narrow, the cement finally dissolving into a single lane gravel road. The road rises high above the rocky ground and meets the towering metal doorway of a thick granite wall. Benny gets out and presses the buzzer beside the doorway then gets back in the limousine and drives it backwards about 10 feet. The metal doorway slowly opens outward, revealing a circular plot of land surrounded by the wall. Benny creeps forward, following the narrowed earth road that hugs the interior of the wall. In the center of the circle sits a sizable stone cottage. Benny completes the circle while George stares out the driver's side window, studying the cottage from every angle. Soon, Benny has the limo turned around and is facing the road once more, ready to drift back down the mountain. He opens the door for George, who crawls out slowly and unsteadily. George strolls to the front door of the cottage. It is made of thick, dark wood and has a heavy, round, brass knocker in the center. George stares at the knocker for a moment and lifts it. With a blink, he drops the knocker. It thuds hollowly when it strikes. George waits, shivering a little at the coldness of the rock walls. It is not long before the door creaks open, revealing a haggard woman of indeterminable age, bent at the waist in an effort to open the door. George is amazed that she is capable of pulling the huge thing open at all. I'm George, George Schaefer, he says, I'm here to up. I know what you're here for, the woman says with a toothless grin, come in, it will only be a minute. She gestures to a sagging chair in the corner and shuffles off to the back. George sits in the chair with a loud thump. Sending a cloud of dust into the air, George coughs, starts to chokes, as the particles clog his lungs. When the dust settles, George looks around in alarm. The walls are dirty, covered in soot. Bits of paper and clumps of dirt and pine needles are scattered across the tabletops and floor. The whole place smells like something inside the walls has died. Or maybe it's the basking rug in front of the fireplace. George wonders if the rug has ever been properly cleaned. He imagines bits of fat and meat still clinging to the underside of the fur. Bile arises in his throat as he thinks of it, and yet George finds himself strangely turned on by the filth. It is strange and new, a different kind of pain, the fear of the filth that now surrounds him. He rejoices in the newness of the feeling. His penis swells. The woman returns. She is naked, but covered in a shining film that might be, George's nose twitches, look, the woman has drowned herself in shining, slippery lubricant, it glistens from the caverns of the wrinkled skin, drips from her sagging breasts, which swing pendulum-like, George can't help but stare at them, fixated, they hypnotize him, George wonders if their swinging can reverse the naked sleepwalking thing that Vivian's trained his subconscious to employ, the woman is as filthy as the cabine, if not more so, crime clots her wrinkles and lint is trapped by the lube across her vast belly, her forward jutting chest tapers to a sagging, concave backside, with flesh that seems to drip from her bones like seaweed. As she reaches for George, the dirt beneath her fingernails seems to grow, to stretch, reaching for him. George can't move, he stands staring, transfixed, couldn't look away if his life depended on it. The woman rips the clothes from his body, tearing the buttons off his shirt, and breaking a nail, dirt still embedded beneath it, on his belt buckle. Whoops a daisy, she cackles, then whips off his belt. 
George is a statue, frozen, his cock stands erect in the cold mountain air, he has prepared himself for anything to happen in this place, and the fact that this old woman presents herself as lustworthy doesn't faze him, nothing can, not after Vivian, George can tell this old woman used to be trouble, she was a pair of doubledies who could get anything she wanted with a wink and a giggle, but time and gravity have betrayed her, have dragged her sideways and down, until now she looks more animal than human, and now, now that men no longer want her, will no longer have her, she'll have them, George is locked in her gaze, snake-like, she slithers before him, her arms wrap around and around him, pulling him tight to her, choking off his air, he is drawn into her flesh, the lubricated rolls and wrinkles mold around him, he can't breathe, he doesn't need to, she will breathe for both of them, with nothing but a smile she heaves him to the rug and then swallows him whole, the rancid scent of an unwashed creature brings George to his senses, he is nose deep in the bearskin rug, groaning, he pushes himself to his knees, he is naked, covered in lube and lint, bare fur and dust, he vomits into the bare fur, realizes what the smell truly is, and vomits again, the woman lies before him on the rug, illuminated by the rays of morning sunshine that dance mockingly through the grimy window, she quivers a moment, wumbles incoherently, her hand twitches, her fingers crawl across the rug to find him, slowly she reaches for the pile of vomit that George has left, his is not the first one, of course, that is what the smell is, with a stifled yelp, George leaps to his feet and runs to the front door, the woman's hand finds the pile of vomit, for crying out loud, she moans, what the hell is that George presses frantically at the door handle, shoving into the heavy wooden door with his shoulder, hey, you're not leaving so soon, are you she looks up and grins, her gaping mouth is a cavernous black hole, she will swallow him again, with a cry and renewed vigor, George shoves at the door, it won't budge, she is standing now, she is coming after him, George wishes that he lifted weights, that he had the almighty strength to push open this door with a single stroke of his arm, the woman, the hag, the creature is almost upon him, her fingers, still vomit covered, reach for him, George screams like a trapped animal, he pushes against the door again and again, it won't open, it won't open, and then, then he remembers, he has to pull, he has to pull the door open, success, the door opens easily, light slashes through and the woman shrieks, raising a hand to her eyes as George races to his limo and safety, then he looks up groggily as George slams his palm against the door, then he seems to be laughing at him, laughing as he unlocks the back door, the woman, whom George has begun to think of as the creature, appears in the doorway to the cottage, and Benny raises an eyebrow, Benny's attitude is wasted on George, who yanks the door open and collapses inside the limo with a gasp and a long, whimpering sigh, she get the H hell out of here, he commands, when Benny locks the doors and begins to roll out of the driveway, George sinks into the seat, his arms and legs are buzzing, weak from exertion, he slips into blackness, into nothingness, eternity, when George comes to, Benny is pulling in front of his house, it is noon, the sun overhead glares down, making the world too bright, too harsh, with a groan, George pulls himself out of the car, Benny helps him walk inside, Vivian is not there, leaving feeling relieved yet sad as well, considering what he has been through, a little reassurance would do him some good, but Vivian is not there, and neither is Margaret, the only reassurance George has is himself, and he is no consolation at all, not to anyone, George crawls upstairs and into bed and falls asleep immediately, then he pauses for a moment in the doorway, poor son of a bitch, he mutters, when George wakes again, it is nearly five o'clock, the sun is setting, and its light gleams orange through his blinds, he rolls over, trying to convince himself that the cottage, the woman, the creature, were not real, that the whole thing was just a dream, but when he looks down at himself, at his still slick skin, and smells the stench of bare fur and vomit, he knows that it happened, this makes him want to break down and sob his heart out, but he can't, he can't even bring himself to cry, eventually he gets out of bed and staggers into the bathroom, he turns the water to hot, sits on the toilet, and waits for the shower to steam then climbs in, Vivian is still not home, George putters around his house, stacking up his physics notes into neat and cluttered piles, putting Vivian's books back in their rightful places on the bookshelves, he thinks about going back to bed, even stands in the bedroom door, staring at the rumpled mess of his blankets, but the stench of himself, of the woman, the creature, is in the sheets, so he rips them from the bed and stuffs them in the hamper and remakes the bed, still, the stink of the old woman's cottage clings to him, George grabs the new sheets off the bed, turning his nose away from the smell, Vivian is still not home, but no matter where he goes, the smell clings to him, these sheets, George tosses into an old 
of metal barrel he keeps stored in his shed. It dumps a canister of lighter fluid on the sheets than lights a cigarette. The smoke fills his lungs and his soul. George begins to calm. The shaking in his fingers ceases. Halfway through the cigarette, George grins sadly and tosses the last of the burning cigarette into the barrel. He jumps backwards as the pile of sheets explodes in a ball of flames. It's like a huge candle, George thinks to himself, the biggest candle this backyard has ever seen. George lights a second cigarette, and sits on his back step to watch the fire die. Vivian comes home. George hears the front door open and close. Please, God, he pleads. Just let her go easy on me today. He can hear as Vivian Hollis's name. I'll do anything just make her go easy on me. I'll go to church. Anything. The sound of her clamping footsteps on the stairs makes his heart skip. I'll even pray. Come on, we got a deal? There is no answer. But, George, Vivian says softly. Her voice sounds like an angel's. George peeks through the glass shower door. Through the hazy shower steam, Vivian's face glows. Her eyes are wide and luminous. A child's eyes. George, I know you're in there. She teases. Can I come in? To up? Sure. He croaks. He cracks the door open an inch. George, I missed you, Vivian purrs as she steps inside. She is still fully clothed. Immediately, her clothes get drenched with the hot water. The George George's voice sounds strange even to his own ears. Where were you are? Now, that's a secret, Vivian says putting a finger to his lips. Slowly, she pulls her wet sweater over her head. She is wearing a white cotton bra, and her nipples poke out through the wet cloth. Pencil erasers, George thinks. After all, it's not like you're going to tell me where you have been, Vivian continues. George stares at her for a minute. She gives him a secret little smile. She already knows. Maybe Penny told her. George sighs. No, he says. Well, what makes you think that where I've been has been anything better, Vivian whispers. Maybe I really missed you, you know. Maybe I'm tired of all this. Maybe I'm just looking for a break, for a bit of relief. It's tiring keeping you happy all the time, Mr. George. She laughs, but he can hardly blame her. I'm a little tired, myself, George admits. He sets his hands on her waist. With a groan, he buries his head in her breasts, fumbling with the clasps at the back of her bra. She replaces his hands with her own nimble fingers. He sinks to his knees, clutching at her, resting his head against her soft belly. Vivian, he mutters softly. Suddenly she has stepped off her jeans. How he doesn't know. She lifts him up with her gentle hands. He finds himself hardening under her fingertips. How about some good old-fashioned lovemaking? Vivian whispers, nibbling at his ear. I think that's just the ticket. George groans and nods. He presses against her. The condoms, he mutters. He reaches for the shower door. Not so fast. George Porridge Vivian insists. She holds the door handle firmly in place. How'd she get so much stronger than he is? George wonders. We're doing this the good old-fashioned way, she tells him. She takes his penis in her hand and pulls it to her. He's powerless, he is drawn inside her, an ocean in an underwater cave. It is good, he thinks, good clean fun. In a moment he erupts, shuddering, he withdraws. Vivian pouts, and then proceeds to feel herself up, finished herself off under the blast of the shower. She shivers, moaning, and then gasps. Her back flattens against the wall, her knees buckle. George watches as his semen rips slowly from the tangled red orgy of her pubic hair. Too slowly, no condom. His mind screams at him. Wake up, you crazy fuck. What if she gets pregnant? At the thought of bringing a child into this world, George collapses, striking his head hard on the way down, hard against the shower wall. Poor George. So much wealth, so little else. George wakes up again, for the fourth time that day. At least, he thinks it is still the same day. He's in his bed, in clean fresh sheets. Vivian is stretched out beside him. For a moment, George imagines that they are the happy couple, living the American dream. Vivian rolls over and grins at him. Compared to that woman, that creature, don't think about the creature, her face is smooth and beautiful. Her body is near flawless. George loves her, her whole self, even the part that hurts him, especially the part that hurts him. Her eyes glow as he looks into them, into her inner life. I love you, George says. He says it out loud. He feels the words transform his soul. Everything is different now. Everything is better now. I know, Vivian whispers. She smiles at him. She shines with the dying sun, which sets behind her. 
Do you think we made a baby? She whispers. George feels their weakness overcome him again. His limbs go limp. But it is not so bad. This time, he can take the thought. This time, he can live with it. He turns his head at her snicker. Vivian lifts his limp hand high in the air. She drops it onto the bed. It strikes the mattress with a hollow, woody sound. Vivian rolls swiftly to her side and reaches over the side of the bed. When she comes up, she is holding a thick piece of rope in her hand. Stay still, she whispers, as she ties his hands together and then his feet. George would fight, if he could. Number, no, he wouldn't. His arms and legs are weak bags of flesh. His mind, his heart, his soul, his son belong to Vivian now. He can't muster the will to fight her any more than he could develop the strength in his limbs. His will is hers now, she hefts him onto a flat, wooden dolly that lies beside the bed. There is a jump rope tied around it. To George, she looks like an adorable little girl, tugging a little red wagon around the yard. She is probably just playing a game, he thinks. She hauls George down the hallway and then shoves the dolly down the stairs. It bounces and bangs against the hard steps. George's body is jostled and tossed. He slams hard into the banister, breaking his nose. He cries out, feeling the blood spurt. He wants to touch his face, to protect himself, but he is still tied to the dolly, falling helplessly down the stairs. He wants to stop, to cover his head, but his hands are tied behind his back. As he strikes the downstairs landing, his shoulder takes the full force of his fall. With a snap he feels it dislocate. He screams in pain, screams again and again. He is still screaming as Vivian comes up to him, straps him more tightly onto the dolly. That wasn't so bad, was it she says brightly. Then she drags him into the backyard. George wakes up, for the fifth time that day, if it is still the same day, to a heavy thud and a softer pitter-patter of something striking wood above his head. He's in a dark place, a pitch black place. His breath shudders raggedly in and out. George rolls over and onto something hard that will not budge. He tries to sit up but knocks his head on the same hard substance. He falls back, groaning, panting. Another thud, then that pattering noise echo overhead. George screams, the bitch is burying him alive. When George wakes up, for the sixth time that day, if it is still the same day, he is covered in pain. His body is bruised and battered, his hands and fingernails throb, and he is panting frantically. George remembers that he is in a coffin. He doesn't remember where the pain came from. For a moment, he recalls a wild thrashing, or a panicked horror. Don't think about it, okay? The thud of dirt falling on top of his coffin continues relentlessly, but it's no longer the insistent noise he remembers. Rather, it is more a vibration that he can feel coming from the earth around his coffin, reverberating in the wood walls. George inhales deeply. There is not enough air, he thinks desperately. He begins to pant again. I'm going to die down here, he thinks. Fear and peace rush over him in successive waves. Death will be better, anything will be better than this, he thinks. George relaxes into the dizziness that threatens to overcome him. He rides it like a pro, daring nausea to join him. It doesn't. George circles the borders of a vast, dark whirlpool. The force of it lashes his mind with a cool terror. In the center is a splash of light, a tiny, brilliant white speck. Hell will be better than this, he thinks, sighing softly. Down and down George spins, down towards the beautiful speck. It beckons to him. He hears a slight giggle. He can't see himself, but he is smiling. When he reaches the light, it winks over him. It swallows him whole, and he is nothing. George gasps and air floods his lungs. It stings and burns. The life of it rushes through his skin, setting every nerve fiber tingling. George moans then coughs. He is overcome with another mighty gasp. Oh God, oh shit. Vivian weeps. She huddles over him, cradling his head in her lap. She wipes her mouth with the back of her hand. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, George she clasps him tightly to her. I'm so glad you came back, she whispers. Ah what George chokes out. Then he remembers. Look at you, Vivian sobs. She caresses his elbows and wrists, gently running her fingers over the bruises and open sores. I really hurt you, you almost died. You did die, you were dead, she explains. For a minute, her eyes are wet with tears. I have to give you CPR. George places a hand on his head and sits up. He has a headache. She grabs him in an embrace that he is too weak to shake off. Christ, what a day. I'll never do it again, Vivian sobs. I promise, I'll never hurt you again. I love you, George. I'm sorry I didn't say it before. I love you. I love you. I love you. She bursts into fresh sobs. George looks away from her disdainfully. What a spectacle this woman is. How dramatic. He holds his head with both hands. It's fine. 
He groans, in the hopes that she will just be quiet. She throws her arms around him, once more. It's not fine, she gasps. But I'll show you. I'll prove to you that you can trust me. I'll never hurt you again. She begins to kiss his neck, his jaw, running her tongue along his earlobe. George's penis rises weakly to the challenge. It is tired, sure, but just maybe. George grabs at Vivian's chest. Oh George, she cries, giving herself up to him. Let's make love. Let's make real love, the way that normal people do. I'm so tired of hurting you, she gasps as George's penis pokes hard against her. In a moment, she rips off her pants and straddles him on the lawn. George wonders what the neighbors will think, then remembers that Vivian's one of the neighbors. He tries to hide his smile. Please, let's just be like a normal couple, Vivian begs, moaning as she rides him. You would it have to pay me or anything? George flips her over and mounts her from above. He pumps away inside her, willing her to shut up. Oh George, oh George, Vivian cries. She is nearing orgasm, and so is he. At the crucial moment, George pulls out of her. Vivian gasps and moans plaintively, reaching for him. He dances out of her reach, then releases, splashing his wad over her toes. M.M., George hums as he finishes off the final spurt. George, Vivian whines. He chuckles. How about? No, he suggests. Then he turns and leaves her, naked and yearning, on the lawn. A few days later, George and Vivian have nurtured their bruised egos and are back to business as usual. Vivian is giving George small cuts on his arm with a chef's knife as she prepares dinner. There is a knock on the door. George rolls down his sleeves and answers it. George Margaret screeches. I'm so glad that you are feeling better. George is bewildered. He wonders if Margaret knows about the old lady in the stone cottage or his being buried alive. Margaret sees his confusion and greets it with a slight smile. Is Vivian here? She says in a low voice. George nods and opens the door wider. Margaret peeks in and sees Vivian, who waves a knife cheerfully from the kitchen. Oh, I've interrupted your dinner, Margaret says, her voice reflecting disappointment. Perhaps I should come back at a better time. George hems and hoars for a moment. Of course not. Vivian finally yells from the kitchen. Why don't you stay for dinner? Sure. Margaret stutters. Just let me make a phone call. Only a short time later, Vivian, George, and Margaret all sit down before a roast chicken, frozen vegetables, and a homemade fruit salad. So Margaret, what have you been up to lately? Vivian says. Margaret proceeds to tell Vivian about her book deal and the progress she has made. Vivian nods and asks insightful, thoughtful questions, charming as can be. Meanwhile, she slips her foot under the table and applies strong pressure to George's testicles. Ow. Oh, George stifles a moan as the pain washes over him. Are you okay? Margaret asks, looking at him with concern. Fine. George squeaks. How do you like the fruit salad? Oh, it's great. Vivian, you're such a good cook. Margaret says. She smiles at them both. You know, I have a great idea, she continues after an awkward minute. I was planning to go to a play with a friend of mine tonight, my girlfriend, actually. Would you guys like to come as well? It should be a really good show. Um, George looks at Vivian, wondering if going to a play would interfere with whatever nastiness she has planned for him tonight. She nods imperceptibly. Public humiliation it is, George thinks. I think that would be great, George says. We don't get out much these days, and I can't believe I still haven't met your girlfriend. The four of them, George, Margaret, Vivian, and Mandy, pull up outside the auditorium just before the play is about to begin and slide into their seats as the lights dim, jostling a few people in the process. The complaints silence as the stage lights up. A man, dressed shabbily, walks onto the stage. A cringing, frightened-looking woman follows close behind. The man stands in the center of the stage in the halo of the spotlight. I thought I'd never be free of her, the man announces to the audience, sneering at the woman behind him. Every moment of every day I would turn around, and there she'd be. He pauses, that's what they call love, he announces, and then spits on the stage near the woman's feet. The audience rustles uneasily, and then, and then, when she told me that she'd gotten pregnant, the woman rubs her belly, gazing on it tenderly. Well, I knew it had to end right then. I mean me, a father? I can't even take care of myself. The woman looks up at him, pleading, shaking her head. But how to do it? The man continues, ignoring her. I tried before, and yet she always found me again, always wormed her way back into my life. The man's face transforms into a hideous mask, with a snarling that appears to hate the world. There is only one way, he concludes. 
death, the woman wails, the stage lights drop and, when they light up again, the scene is of an exotic, Middle Eastern marketplace, filled with bright splashes of red fabric and chains of gold. The man strides onto the stage, accompanied by a different woman. Behind them follows the cringing, terrified woman child of before. The man and his new woman peruse the marketplace. With a grand gesture, he buys her a beautiful necklace. She protests for a moment then accepts it with glee, as she wraps it around her neck. The man steps forward, even before we'd met, she was with me. Following me around, he accuses, pointing a finger at the cringing woman, who tries to hide herself behind a rack of shawls. In the next scene, the man is wandering through his neighborhood in a bathrobe, seeking the woman he bought the necklace for. The woman is nowhere to be seen. The cringing woman appears. The man is surprised, but not unhappy. Hey, why not he figures? It really couldn't hurt to give her a try. The man and the woman make love in the bathroom. They eat at a fancy restaurant. They dance on the beach together. They fall in love, as people do, with pleasant dates and just enough similarities to get along. Just enough differences to keep things interesting. As the play continues, the man and the cringing woman grow close. They begin to depend on one another. They love each other, in the way, but the man is always pushing her away, and she is always clinging too tight. She wants to move in, but he needs his space. She wants to cuddle, but he has an early meeting. He doesn't have an early meeting. He actually likes to cuddle, but the thought of actually giving in, of giving her what she wants, the thought twists something deep inside of him, and he must refuse. Soon, they are both entwined in a relationship that makes them miserable, which transforms them into creatures they no longer recognize, no longer love, but without whom they'd die. I love her and hate her. The man says, I know there's someone better for me, but I'm trapped. The woman he bought the necklace for appears from time to time. The man yearns for her, he can't get enough of her. He practically begs her to stay with him, to supplant his cringing, loving girlfriend. He buys her extravagant gifts, always greets her with a pleasant smile, a smile his girlfriend never sees. But in the end, his dream woman always escapes. Maybe she sees beyond his superficial charm, or maybe she's just too much a blow the wisp to stay too long in one place. That is what makes her the perfect dream woman, her perfect distance, the promise that her perfection will never be marred by the machinations of the man's filthy soul. She knows that's what makes her perfect. She loves that she can ensure his yearning by constantly avoiding him. In this way, she feels the satisfaction of being loved without the responsibility. George, Vivian, and Margaret watch the play in horrible discomfort, afraid to be who they really they think they are, never completely confessing to themselves how much they can relate to the characters. I'm not really like that, they think, all at one time or another. I'm not. One night, the man on stage meets his dream woman at a bar. They are both there by accident, and alone, and she has already had a drink, or five. She is alone in a bar, as she is heartbroken after yet another failed relationship with another failed man. The perfect woman lets down her guard. She lets the man buy her a drink. It's been too damn long. She mutters into her tequila. She looks at the man accusingly. You ever go three months without a lay she demands. He grins, shakes his head, lays his hand on the small of her back. A gorgeous woman like you he says softly. I hardly believe it. She scoffs. You must be punishing yourself. He whispers. You don't need to punish yourself. Her hungry lips reach up to touch his. They meet, tequila churning like fire in their bellies. In moments, they are tearing each other's clothes off in her apartment. They can't even wait to move to the bedroom. He pushes her against a wall and shoves into her. Hard, she loves it. The perfect woman likes it rough. The next morning, racked with guilt, the dream woman confesses to the cringing girlfriend, who is five months pregnant with the man's child. I didn't mean to, she begs, I was drunk, and he was, I never thought we would, her voice drops to a whisper, her face ashamed, please forgive me, forgive you the girlfriend sobs. what's to forgive, it's him, that bastard, you were single, after all, it was his choice to break my trust, together they wail their heartbreak, I've tried to leave him, so many times, the girlfriend says, shuddering, but he always draws me back in, you know the dream woman stares at her with wide eyes, I know exactly what you mean, in the final moment, they bond of shared grief gives way, in a fit of madness and jealousy, the cringing woman knocks the dream woman down and beats her with a thick, phallic shaped paperweight, he loves me, she screams, he does, he will always love me, coming upon the gory scene, the man strangles his cringing girlfriend, you killed her, my dreams and my hope, he screeches, when she is limp in his arms he tosses her corpse to the floor, then a hideous look floods his face, my son, he whispers, you killed him, too, sinking to his knees, he weeps, and when he stops, 
The man slowly climbs onto a chair and hangs himself with a piece of wire, laughing and sobbing all at once. Well that was a trip, Mandy gushes as they exit the theater. Can you believe that? Where do they come up with this stuff? George becomes intensely interested in a poster on the wall, while Margaret and Vivian exchange a desperate glance and then look away, embarrassed. Vivian wonders if Margaret ever would sleep with George. Margaret is wondering the same thing. She hopes that Vivian doesn't believe it of her. She wonders whether Vivian would kill her, if she had reason to. I think the ending was a little unrealistic, Margaret says, with hollow laughter. She glances over quickly at Vivian to see if she agrees. Vivian stares blankly, not listening. She is thinking of the cringing woman, how much she hates her. I'm not that woman, she decides. I'm in control of this situation. I am the tormentor. George is the one. He's the one who can't leave without me. He wants me. He loves me. He told me so. Vivian briefly considers getting a new job, but for some reason she can't hold on to the idea in her head for more than half a second. Well Mandy says. She looks up at both Vivian and Margaret and then searches for George. What's wrong with you guys? She mumbles. Vivian scrutinizes George, watching as he scans the poster on the wall. She wonders how the play has affected him. How worried is he? She starts thinking about how she can drive the knife in even more deeply. Several weeks pass. Vivian watches George as he mopes around, and wonders when the time will be right for twisting in that knife. She takes a break from the torture, gives him time to heal, time to become complacent. She still burns him now and then, and sometimes, she brings out the whip and chains, just to keep him on his toes, but that's just child's play, not the real deal, not true torture. Vivian slides into a bit of a slump, weighing her jealousy against her job, and her satisfaction of destroying George, against her own possible pain, they hear nothing from Margaret. Vivian hopes the place scared Margaret enough to keep her away from George, forever. Finally, Vivian climbs out of the slump, she works through her reaction to the play, and when she becomes just crazy enough to go through with it, Vivian speaks. George, Vivian says in a soft, slightly sing-song tone. George looks up at her. Her eyes are wide and glimmering. I was talking to Margaret earlier. She begins. This is a lie, but she says it anyway. We were thinking it would be fun for the four of us to take a trip. You, me, Margaret, Mandy. What do you think it doesn't sound horrible? That's what George thinks. After all, things with Vivian have been pretty nice lately. Except, where he asks, well, you know that cabin your parents own? Out on the lake George doesn't think he ever told Margaret about the cabin in this trip is probably old Vivian's idea. A nagging doubt begins to creep in. We were thinking, Vivian says that it would be a nice opportunity to get away, try something new. I mean, George, you and I haven't spent one single night away from this house, not together, not once since I moved in. Vivian's expression is very clear, no will be an unacceptable answer. George wonders how bad a trip away could be, trying hard to ignore the strong possibility that it could be very bad indeed. Very bad. Yeah, sure, he says, sounds like fun. Vivian squeals. Oh, George. Thank you she gives him a hug, and proceeds to bounce around like a little girl. Oh, it's going to be so much fun, you are not going to regret this. George thinks that he is going to regret this a great deal, he sighs and rolls his eyes. She's probably planning on skinning him alive and hanging him upside down from a tree. Yet, at this point, George is beyond caring. After everything Vivian's put him through, he can't imagine her hurting any more than she already has, and still at nagging doubt, maybe, as they say, he hasn't seen anything yet. They decide to leave the weekend after next even though Mandy won't be able to come. Instead, Margaret invites her friend Carl. Just one more man, like George, who wants desperately to fuck Margaret, and never will. The morning they leave, both Carl and George fight to hold the limo door open for Margaret, and as they continue with the macho positioning, the huffing and puffing and kicking up dirt, Margaret goes to the other side of the limo where Benny is holding the door open for everyone. Vivian sniffs derisively and crawls in after Margaret. Men, she says, rolling her eyes. Oh, I know, Margaret giggles, lowering her voice, that's why I prefer women, you know, she winks. Vivian smiles awkwardly, George and Carl finally get the door open, they settle down, but not before grunting, snorting, and clearing their throats. 
Then Benny puts his foot to the gas pedal, and they are on their way. Benny drops the four off at the cabin and reverses the limo and backs down the road. George watches him drive away, not sure where Benny stays and not sure he cares either. The cabin is more a mansion, rising three stories among the trees, rows of gabled windows greet the travelers. The front entrance is surrounded by a massive deck adorned with the thick trunks of two spruce trees, which form giant columns and cast shadows on the door. Vivian pulls a roll of mints out of her purse, offers one to George as they walk together towards the front entry. George shrugs, and takes it, not noticing that she doesn't take one herself. He knows that when someone offers you a breath mint, you should take it. He wonders if she's offered the breath mint because she plans on fucking him soon. The idea cheers him significantly. Sex with Vivian has not been half bad lately. He pops the white strip into his mouth, and it quickly dissolves. For the next half hour, George gives everyone a tour of the cabin, shows them to their rooms, and points out the few walking paths around the lake. He shows Carl how to start the generator, and then the two men flop down onto a soft and well-used sofa as Vivian and Margaret unpack coolers and put food in the refrigerator. George and Carl stare at each other with intense hostility for about 15 minutes until George becomes distracted by a fly buzzing against the window. George Margaret's voice seems to fill the room around him, echoing off the walls. George, she repeats, are you okay? George stares at her, her cheeks seem swollen, I'm fine, he answers, his voice coming from somewhere very far away, be cool, George thinks, be very cool, 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 his tongue begins to feel like it's crowding his mouth, taking up too much room, crowded against the roof of his mouth, he looks over at Vivian, she looks just as evil as always, George decides not to look at her anymore, instead, he looks down at a plate full of spaghetti and wonders when it became dinner time and when he sat down at the table and when he even moved from the living room to the dining room, he doesn't remember any of it, and he doesn't understand why his spaghetti is moving, undulating, and swirling uncontrollably on his plate, George laughs, there's a black hole in my spaghetti, he announces, what Carl asks peevishly, which doesn't surprise George, Carl strikes him as a peevish man in general, a bit of a complainer, George thinks, he watches as Carl glances at Vivian, who shrugs, George snorts, you don't see it he asks, pointing at his still swirling spaghetti, you're missing out, Margaret gets to her feet and crosses the room to George's side of the table and places a hand on his forehead, are you sure you're okay she asks, the worry in her voice is unmistakable, weird, George says, I'm feeling a little weird, he looks up at her with hope, and with love shining brightly through his eyes, he pushes the love out of his eyes and into her eyes, if he does it just right, she will love him back, George knows that, just as he knows that he's not sure he knows how to do anything right, and what if she doesn't love him back, what then, a loud, rumbling thump distracts him, his spaghetti trembles in fear, an earthquake, a low flying jet, number, it is Vivian's fist is on the table, George, orgy 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 orgy, she says, behave yourself for once, you're not my mom, he says, he sticks his tongue out at her, is Vivian his mom, what if Vivian is his mom, if Vivian is his mom, then he is Vivian's son, no, his mom is just a stupid, old fat lady who can't speak proper English, and has a drinking problem, that's his mom, not Vivian, but, if Vivian is like his mom is, always, then any minute now she will leave, or she will come to him crying, wearing the pink silk, lace trimmed nightgown she bought when she was just a chubby, not fat, old lady, that nightgown that doesn't fit her, hasn't fit her in years, so tight that her breasts are always spilling out of it, taunting George, such big, untouchable breasts, breasts he shouldn't see, shouldn't think about, so don't, don't think about them, George, okay, he answers dutifully, Margaret speaks, George watches her mouth move but can't hear the words she says, the words that mean she loves George, has always loved George and always will love George, George basks in the attention, the love he feels entering every pore, setting a fire every nerve, it is good to be loved by Margaret, to be treasured by such a good person, still George wishes he could hear what she's saying, Vivian speaks now, too, but George is not sure he cares about hearing what Vivian has to say, she loves him, George knows that senses that, but Vivian hurts him, and as good as it feels to be loved by Margaret that's how bad it feels to be loved by Vivian, she's a bad person, evil even, her face is covered in dark spots that move, swarm across her face like wasps, stinging, George hopes she's allergic to bug bites and stings, George hopes her throat will close and she will choke, that's what George hopes, but number, she's not choking, 
she's talking and laughing, covering her hand with her face, Vivian, George says, Vivian, he repeats, Vivian, 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 I'm in love with Vivian Babylon, me, in love with Vivian Nesbitt, me, in love with the woman who hurts me, the one who tortures me, the one whose face is a mask of stinging, swarming wasps, George tries once more to call her name, but the words don't come, and he finds himself singing, sinking into the couch, the cushions, someone throws a blanket over him, it's a scratchy blanket, its fibers irritate his arms, the blanket is nothing but scratchy fibers, and so is George, in his mind, the fibers grow through the edges of the blanket and into his skin, burrowing beneath his flesh like a bot fly until George is nothing but blanket, and the blanket is nothing but George, he opens his eyes, they are magical, like camera eyes, lens, they zoom in on the ceiling, going in for the close up, George is the lens, he is a convex universe made of glass, the wood grain of the ceiling flows like a river, an unmoving wooden river, wham, 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 the wood river goes nowhere, still George wants the wood to flow, to flow like water, up and out, spilling over the dam, breaking free, George Porridge, George Porridge, George Porridge Vivian sings, he enarges her with pigtails, like a little girl, how are you liking your little nappy poo, George, baby Vivian whispers, wham, 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 Margaret's face appears over the couch, she shines with the light of an angel, Vivian is little more than shadow, is he any better someone asks, not yet, yet, bet, debt, yeti, should we call a doctor he'll be fine, Vivian lays her hand on Margaret's wrist, encircling it with her fingers, such a dainty wrist, that Margaret, that angel, has, it's just an episode, Vivian says, Vivian, that bitch, that whore, that woman I love and hate, she created a paradise and then set it aflame, she is my world and its end, my kinky sex goddess, my creepy crawly nemesis, she never stood a chance, I never stood a chance, we love and hate, no matter whose face she's wearing, whose heart she's tearing, I want to see her in those sling backs, her perverted, cotton candy bootos peeking out to play, a popping noise reminds George to look sideways, there is a glow, a fire, and there are three people sitting around it, George wants to roll over, but that would be too hard, the three pass around a glass bottle filled with a clear substance that sloshes around, they bring it to their lips, taking turns, he knows what it is, George's tongue feels like a piece of felt in his mouth, he wants to move it, but can't, clear slushy would be a bad idea anyway, George is in a good place, two of the people are girls, and one is a boy, the girls are laughing together, one has bright, fire like hair, one puts her hand on the other one's leg, George is angry, he remembers that he wants both of the girls for himself, and he can't have both, he's angry they can have each other, he watches them kiss, the bright fire like hair glows and blends into the fire, the fire wraps around them both, walls of gorgeous flames surround them, George wants to burn with them, the boy reaches out and touches them both, George wants to be the boy, they all collapse together in front of the fire, and George, watching, is with them, too, George walks through a doorway into a dark hall, stop right there, a voice commands, George stops, be careful, the voice continues evilly, seductively, or else, you don't want it to get you, do you George hears the heavy panting of some enormous creature, he freezes, terrified, hi, princess, Vivian's voice whispers close to his ear, come on in, George tiptoes sideways to avoid the hole he knows is in the floor beside him, the monster that waits salivating, waits hoping George will misstep, he creeps into the living room, now out of the hallway, where he finds Vivian kissing another woman, it's that Sarah girl, Vivian and Sarah stand topless in the center of the room, Vivian is wearing her latex suit, there is a small audience beside George, watching, Greg is mid-fifties with long, white hair, he has a pot belly, a fuzzy navel, George ticks, Vivian sees George's neck jerk and his eyes roll, she waves him to come closer, just don't come too close, the creature in the dark hallway breathes heavily drooling, just, behind George waiting, to devour him, the breathing rives up to a scream, or a pulsing wail, don't leave, Vivian shouts, fuck you, I fucking love you, George yells at her, you're fucking with my mind again I'm not, Vivian insists, I'm really not, I told you I wouldn't, and I'm not, the screaming becomes louder, and evolves into a high pitched screech, George presses his hands against his ears, and just a habit, George, an addiction, Vivian soothes him, she tapes his mouth shut and cuffs his wrists to his ankles, he is done for, captive once again, George struggles to break free of his bonds, his shirt slides up and exposes his rounded belly, yet the veins on his neck do not stand out, they are nowhere near the surface, Vivian laughs, her hair glows like fire as the flames shadow her face,
face. It is dark. George can't see. He can't see anything. You disgust me, Vivian whispers. She nibbles at his ear. You're pathetic. George screams and yells at her, but his mouth is still taped shut. Oh, what's that? Princess Vivian simpers. Are you trying to speak like a real person? Let me help you with that. George watches Sarah caress Vivian's breasts as she rolls down Vivian's latex suit and exposes her fiery bush. Vivian moves away from Sarah long enough to shove her shiny red sandals up against George's nose. He inhales deeply and then freezes as the noise resurfaces, that screeching. Don't go Vivian commands him. His mother leers over him, a flickering candle intermittently lights her face as she clenches a carving knife and fork tightly in her fists. Flames lick at the legs of a chair. George struggles, pulling against his bondage. He pleads to Vivian through the tape on his mouth, but she can't give a fuck. She cannot care. That's what he's paying her for, not to care. He's not paying for love. He's paying for hate, for pain, to be ground into nothingness, and waste away in a vast, dark emptiness. Vivian pulls out a condom from George's wallet. She sticks her tongue out at him. She unbuttons his pants, and coughs from the smoke in the air. Her hair is on fire, too, but it doesn't seem to bother her. Her hair, that's the source of all her power, George realizes. Vivian brings her face close to his crotch and sniffs. Her face distorts, lengthens, until she's no longer human. She's a fox, a coyote, canine, with dangerous teeth and crafty, clever intelligence. The monster begins to scream and screech, again, the smoke rises around them. Vivian strips the latex off and stands naked before him. She tears open a condom and bites a hole in it. Laughing, she tosses it at his feet. You can't be safe, she snarls. What's the point of trying, when it always comes back to this George strains, and screams through the tape. He tries to hide, but his penis is pulsing, trying to spring from his pants. He hates her, he wants her, what's that? Princess Vivian rips the tape off his mouth. Fucking whore, bitch, cunt George screams. Vivian laughs. Good, she purrs. Vivian and Sarah lie face to crotch, burying their faces between one another's legs, moaning in ecstasy. George wonders if they'll let him join them. The creature shrieks, breathing down George's neck. No, 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 George screams. He's just a little boy, a kid, not strong enough to fight back, only strong enough to know what's going on, know it's wrong, and to be terrified by it. Leave me alone, something small and alone pleads, but he can do nothing to stop her, stop the pleasure, he is sold. She is on top of him, riding his erect penis faster and faster. Get me pregnant, George, she demands, give me my fucking love child, she spits in his face, George shakes his head back and forth protesting, his entire body shakes in protest, come inside me, George, she hollers, come inside me, you fucking waste of the man, you prepubescent asshole, her voice, wretched and horrible, rises and evolves into that of screaming alarm, she is evil, wrinkled and horrible, bent and wicked, she is the crone, the hag, that creature from the forest, they blend, become one, all the women George has ever known, they are one, and he fucks them all, son of a crack whore, bitch, cunt, George screams, and then something deep inside him releases, gives up, explodes into nothingness, he shoots his wide again and again and again, into every woman he's ever known, for an eternity, his orgasm lasts an eternity, suspends all life around him, he is gone, brought back only by the incessant whine of Vivian's voice, I don't love you, she is whispering, shuddering, I never loved you, I only want to hurt you, make you suffer, just like you wanted, just like you asked me, you, you're not worth it, not worth anything but pain, and that's what I love, George, not you, never you, the alarm rises overhead, smoke chokes their lungs, and her hair is a vibrating nest of flame, then, counting on the door, someone save them poor, poor George, Vivian's face is now peaceful and blue, her lips open and close slightly, her eyelids are shut, calm, and dreaming, her hair splashes purple around her head, it moves, swims, it's got a mind of its own, Vivian's here does, George gets to his feet, he wobbles, nearly trips over her, her hair, he thinks, slowly, he unclenches his fingers, and feels them as blades, and they slide apart, snip, he cuts and cuts, sliding the blades through every inch of her serpent-like hair, and douses the purple flame. No, 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 no. He snips her ear, and her eyes fly wide open, and she screams. The blood seeps out, and forms puddles on the dark, wood, moonbeam-splashed floor. George is screaming too, but he can't hear a sound. And, then, there is nothing, and nothing so deep there is no more room, not even for bliss. 
George, a soft voice calls, his eyes flutter open, the angel stands over him, she breathes gently in his face, she is white, brilliant white, and she overcomes him, I'm dead, George realizes, I'm dead and this is heaven, why did you do it, George the angel asks softly, I didn't mean to, George replies groggily, what did I do, you know what you did, number, no, I don't, if you don't know what you did, how do you know you didn't mean to, because I never mean anything, number, you meant to, you know you did, but, I didn't, you've got to believe me, I didn't mean to, it was intentional, George, you did it, you meant it, I thought I wanted it, but I was wrong, can't a guy be wrong, Vivian, he gasps, the angel soothes his forehead, I don't think it's a good idea to see her right now, Margaret says, what Margaret shakes her head in sympathy, don't you remember, George George remembers the fire, their loving orgy, the fire, you cut off Vivian's hair, Margaret whispers, she's furious, George laughs, is that all he says, Margaret looks at him sternly, a woman's hair is nothing to mess with, she says, and, what did Vivian do to you, anyway Margaret comes to a realization, and she bites her lips slightly, George laughs again, you have no idea, he says, his voice is empty, terrifyingly empty, I don't even know the worst of it, not yet, anyway, George, Vivian, Margaret, and Carl slowly climb into the limousine later that day, George has a massive hangover from the drugs Vivian slipped him, Vivian, Margaret, and Carl have hangovers from their own night of revelry, Vivian needs to see a hairstylist to do something about the wreck George left, and for now, she's not speaking to him, which makes the atmosphere in the limo strained and uncomfortable, the one time he manages to get her alone she hisses at him, like a snake, and when that doesn't work, doesn't make him go away, she slaps his face, this, this is not what we agreed on, she snarls, gesturing to her butchered hair, later, Benny suppresses a smile as the group silently exits the limo, you could say he's not surprised by how things turned out, you could say that, George and Vivian drift into their separate worlds over the next few weeks, George returns to his old fetishes, his sicko twisted paid for fantasy world, Vivian returns to Greg and Sarah, now that she has a new job, it doesn't matter if she fucks her old boss, and his wife, actually, if she stops fucking her new boss, she might lose her job, or get double pay, it is a toss up, that one, George returns to the stone cottage on the mountaintop, but there is no one there, he lies on the basking rug, his dip limp and useless, like a boy's, he breathes in the smell of the rug and waits for the disgust to come, he is empty, there is nothing in him anymore, no cause to strike, no emotions to feed off, his life is as boring as he always feared, you, it would be, George returns from his empty trip to the cottage, decides he needs groceries and wanders aimlessly up and down the aisles, he's like a ghost waiting for someone to haunt, someone to scare, to touch, weighing for something, anything, nothing could be worse than this, he scans the sterile shells crowded with prepackaged food, watches the mouth breathers who stalk their prey, the Oreo cookies, the ding-dongs and twinkies, and who graze on potato chips or fritters, sugar or salt, salt or sugar, the basket shudders uneasily in his hand, it is empty, from behind he feels movement, then Margaret's voice, hey, George, she must have snuck up on him, proving once again that George is no predator, he's prey just like the ding-dongs and twinkies, Margaret relief quiets his poor, angry, tormented brain for one sweet second, she stares at the floor for a moment, clutching a package of a bargain bulk cereal to her chest, George knows that she's thinking of the cabin, of how she saw him, the town fool, an utter idiot, George knows, she's been playing it over in her mind, trying to make sense of, wondering if she saw what she knows she saw everything I know that you didn't find your nanny, she says finally, she looks up at him, eyes glistening, I know that you didn't because you're not any better, if anything, you're worse, George knows, there's no use disagreeing with her, so, she says, I did some research, and the thing is, George, I found her, I found her for you, she drops her head and rummages through her purse, eventually pulling out a piece of paper, George thinks about her skin as she presses the paper into his hand, Margaret steps closer to him, she is in the small cloud of heat his body emits, her hair smells like flowers, she looks up into his face, begging, go see her, George, she says, please, if not for me, then for yourself, he rubs the scrap of paper between two fingers, he stares doubtfully at Margaret, she notices, you have to see her, Margaret says, it's the only way, the only way what George says, Margaret looks at him reluctantly, the only way for you to get better, George looks down at the paper, if he rubs the ink away, it will be impossible for him to find her, it will be like she never existed, like before, he squints at Margaret, accusing her, 
Why do you care, whether I'm better or not? It's none of your concern, I'm your friend, George. He snorts at her. You and your one-hit wonders, he glowers, face distorted. You think a trip to the Dalai Lama, a visit to my old nanny, and a self-help book are gonna make all my problems disappear. George hurls the note up to her face. What's next, Margaret? A magician? More doctors he grips the paper in both hands, threatening to tear it. Ever think that maybe I don't want to get better? Don't want to believe in all the bullshit people tell themselves to pretend they are happy? Huh, Margaret? Ever think of that? Is that it, Benny? Is it that you don't even want to heal? Is that what you call it? Healing? Hell? Doc? I don't know, because if you don't, if you really don't want to get better, then why do you keep coming to see me, Benny? I don't know, Bane, you're the doctor, why don't you tell me, Margaret's eyes are full of tears, and yet, behind those tears is a fierceness George is never, I care about you, she finally says, even if you don't, George looks at the slip of paper in his hands, more bullshit, he mutters, love, healing, it's all bullshit, then it's bullshit, George, Margaret turns, walks away from him, leaving him to wonder if she's leaving for good, if she'll stop being his friend if he doesn't get better, if he doesn't want to get better, it's too hard, he wants to scream. Vivian putters around George's house, a mug of warm water and lemon in her hands. She sips at it slowly, squeezing her eyes shut. She tries to pretend that it is coffee. It is not. It never was. It never could be. Why doesn't she just make some coffee? Shh, Doc. Give the girl a minute, would you? With George gone, Vivian stands in front of the living room window and stares out at the view, at the narrow strip of grass between George's house and the sidewalk, the carefully trimmed fichus trees, the hydrangea, and across the street is her still, burned down house. It's an eyesore, but eventually, she knows, the insurance will come through, and she'll move back, move on, move out. How long does she stand there, staring at the unchanging view? Finally, she gives up, moves to the kitchen, the window above the sink, a different view, one of the side street but still the same carefully trimmed fichus trees, the overgrown hydrangea, window to window, Vivian moves, hoping for expecting a different view, unique somehow, and when she doesn't find it, she collapses on the sofa in the living room, cradling her stomach, she doesn't feel well, and for today, she has given up food. What's the point, after all? Vivian thinks about the how, the why, and she doesn't worry about George. She worries about herself, she presses gently on her belly, trying to keep it all in, trying to prevent anything from getting back out. Wait, is she? She brings her hand to her mouth, belching. Oh, this isn't good. This isn't good, at all. Number, she can feel the bile rising, jumps from the sofa, and runs to the bathroom. Not again. Vivian collapses against the toilet, retching again and again. There is nothing left, nothing but a little bit of lemon water. She brings that up as well, to the uninformed observer. It looks like little more than vomiting, but for those who know, who understand, it's clear that Vivian is ridding herself of every rotten thing she has ever done to George. The times she humiliated him, hurt him. The time she twisted his pinky until the knuckle broke. The time she buried him. What was she thinking? Vivian sobs into cuffs. She belches, vomits again. She always knew it would come back to haunt her, didn't she? It was only a matter of time. When George comes home she is standing in the hall waiting for him. The corners of her mouth are crusted with vomit. Her eyes look haunted and tired. To George, she looks like some ghoulish version of her older self. He stares at her, walks toward her to engulf her in his arms. She looks like she could use a hug, and steps in a splash of vomit. He is completely repulsed, can think only of getting the puke off his shoes. He steps back away from her, and again slides. Jesus, he can feel his stomach begin to heave. George, Vivian cries, are you okay? Don't fall, she reaches for him, but George withdraws. He's never been good with sick people. George, she sobs, George, I'm pregnant, she falls dramatically at his feet, her shoulders shaking with silent tears. Years from now, George will wonder if he did the wrong thing, if there was anything he could have done to make it right, but for now all he can think is to get away from this woman, this woman who reeks of vomit and self-loathing. He stares at her, huddled on the floor, her arms snaking towards his feet. Get up, he tells her. She remains motionless, glued to the spot. George glances at her, then lifts one foot, staring at the sole of his shoe, streaked with the remnants of Vivian, her vomit, her disgrace, her shame. He can't figure out the best way to erase that shame, without touching the vomit. He's perplexed. Maybe he'll have to wear these shoes forever. Vivian moves, slithers toward him, tugging at his pants. George, she whispers. What are we going to do as a twine here asks. 
Vivian hangs her head, it isn't, is it he says, she says nothing for such a long time that George loses track of what he's asked, his mind drifting back to the shoe issue, these are his Hugo Boss loafers, the ones he likes to wear without socks, the ones he's had for years, the Hugo Boss are his favorite loafers, his favorite shoes of all the shoes he's ever had in his entire life, and now they're dirty, smeared with vomit, ruined, because of Vivian, who still lies unmoving at his feet, she stares up at him, pleading, I don't know, she finally says, I don't know whose it is, but George, by now, has completely dismissed her and her problem, it's none of his concern, she's the one pregnant, not him, he's got more important problems, his shoes, and now, at last, his mind is beginning to work, beginning to solve the problem, he remembers the hose curled in the front yard, tucked neatly beneath the hydrangea, Vivian now forgotten, George races back out of the house and down the stairs, pulls out the hose, then balancing perfectly on one leg and looking a bit like a flamingo, George begins hosing off his shoes, he is meticulous, methodical, he stands first on his right leg, lifts his left foot, and hoses down the sole, then he stands on his left leg and repeats the process, he is pleased that he has figured out the problem, come up with the solution, except, except now, except now that he thinks about it, how can he be sure that the vomit is only on the soles, how can he know for certain that nothing splashed on the top of this Hugo Boss, truth is, he can't, so he hoses off the tops then starts wondering whether anything splashed on his jeans, hoses them off as well and his shirt, while he's at it, and then to be doubly safe, he hoses down his hair, his face, every last part of himself, until he is standing in the middle of the front yard, dripping wet, and still, it's not enough, there could be vomit on the porch, on the windows, anywhere, and then, feeling like a fireman, he turns the hose on the house, washing away the stench of vomit, the chunks he knows that Vivian's left behind, bitch, finished washing his own house clean, he turns his attention to the burned out lot where Vivian's house once stood, he aims his hose at the lot, flooding the ash, scattering it to reveal even more ash, he thinks about Vivian's house, what it must have been like to live there, how it must have felt like for Vivian walking room to room, what it feels like now knowing she'll never have another chance to walk room to room, not in the same house, and then he starts wondering if she's still stretched out on his hall floor, she shouldn't be, he wants her gone, she should know that, and he wonders if she does know that he wants her gone, then he wonders, worries, that maybe she's still puking, getting his floor greasy with vomit, and he wonders if the hose will reach inside, let him clean the hall floor, the whole fucking house, washing it clean of Vivian, or maybe he'll just wash her down with the hose, hose off all those freckles, hose down all those curls, the spray would be so fast, so hard it would knock her senseless, push her back against the wall, he sees it, her body being blown apart, pieces flying, one arm in the kitchen, the other draped over the lamp in the living room, a leg in the hall, a foot on the porch, and her head, her head in the attic where all heads belong, there is a precision to it, no, George thinks, that's not how it would work, she'd stay intact, there'd be nobody parts flying, but the water, so hard, so fast, would dig into her, cut a hole through her belly until he could see right through, or maybe no hole in her belly, maybe the water would just wash away her color, her skin until she was completely translucent, a holy creature, he snickers, Vivian, holy, Vivian, clean, the water in the hose begins to sputter and with one final spurt is run out completely, no more water, none at all, the hose is flat, George turns around, Vivian is waiting for him, her hand on the spigot, while she asks, he walks close to her, her eyes are still haunted, stained with tears, her face is old and wrinkled, her chin sags, and her hair still has flecks of vomit in it, in all seriousness, who could love this woman, what are we going to do, George she asks, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I do, do whatever you want, he tells her, I don't care, she looks at him, slowly, oh slowly, her eyes begin to narrow, like mountains forming, her face becomes an angry, bitter mask, fuck you, George, she spits, fuck you hard, right up the ass, her eyes glow red, how does she make them do that, just go fuck yourself, she says, raising her chin, daring him to hit it, I don't need this shit, George shuffles through the house, hating every wall, every window, every tile, every everything, he hates it, everywhere he turns he sees Vivian, here she strung him up, there she burned him with cigarette butts, over in the chair she cut him, in the bathroom she drowned him, on the porch, she humiliated him, time and again, numb now, George wonders how he ever thought he was bored with Vivian, with her, life was a tortuous show, a jagged toothed adventure, without her, 
He is back to making thermoses of 10 shot espresso. It does nothing for him, doesn't give him jitters or clear his head, doesn't jumpstart him in any way. It's Vivian's fault. Without her, nothing jumpstarts him anymore. He wants her back. His days are endless, ceaseless. If he had the nerve, he'd end it all. Instead, he pounds coffee, smokes, does his laundry now and then, and goes shopping. George roams the aisles of the grocery store, searching for Margaret or the perfect snack food or a two-for-one sale on cigarettes. Nothing comes of his endless searching. But George, the eternal optimist, thinks maybe tomorrow or the day after, he'll walk these aisles and there in aisle 7 will be Margaret buying the perfect snack, and she'll smile at him and tell him the story's having that two-for-one sale on cigarettes, and he better hurry before someone else buys out the entire supply, maybe, it could happen. George knows what people say, the truth is stranger than fiction, so he wanders the aisles, weighing for tomorrow to come, for Margaret to show, for his cigarettes to go on sale. He wanders for so long, nearly three, one stroke two hours, that the clerks and cashiers begin to notice him, begin following close behind him. Maybe I should have changed, George thinks. Maybe wearing my robe to the store wasn't such a great idea. It makes him noticeable, and George doesn't want to be noticeable. Can I help you? George looks around, alarmed to discover that a tall, stooped man, in a crisp white shirt, red vest, and gabardine pants, was talking to him. He looks like a store manager, George thinks, wondering if a store manager has any kind of legal authority. Excuse me, the man says again, but are you looking for something in particular? The man knows George is not looking for anything in particular, and George knows the man, the manager, knows that George knows, and still the man persists in asking. People are a mystery to George, he stares into the man's face, and for the briefest of seconds, the man's face seems to melt, to morph into Vivian's, and George begins to panic. He can feel the breath catch in his throat, the sweat drips down his face. Sir, the man asks, are you all right? Do you need help? What is it with strangers always asking if he needs help? And Vivian, that bitch, that whore, never once asking, what is love if not offering help? Vivian never loved him, sir, the man repeats. George blinks, deciding he's had an epiphany although he's not absolutely sure what an epiphany is. No, he tells the man in the vest, I don't need help. Just tell me, is it true your cigarettes are on sale this lovely day? Five short minutes later, a stocky, young woman wearing a blood-spattered apron holds George by one arm and the man in the vest holds the other, as together they usher him out the door. The door whooshes shut behind him, catching George by the tail end of his robe, making him think, for a second, that the store wanted him back, that it truly did value its customers. But no, not even the store wants him, and George trudges home, empty-handed, where he finds the message light on his blinking, winking, a mile a minute, a mile a minute, it's blinking. He presses the message button, recoils in horror at the sound of Vivian's voice echoing in the empty house. Hey George Porridge, she purrs, I was just thinking about you. I was at this lecture, and it was so boring. All I could think of was getting back home, back to my snookum. I George Porridge Pumpkin Eater. George wants her voice out of his head. He blinks, wondering if the torture was all in his mind and if really Vivian is still his, all his, and she really hadn't moved out and they really hadn't broken up and that she really is just at some sort of conference, and everything is as it was, as it should have been all along, maybe. The man can dream, can't he? George doesn't want to dream. He shakes his head, clearing his thoughts, realizing the message is old, from way back when. The real message plays, Hi George, Vivian once again purrs, just wanted to check in, see what's going on, see how you've been doing, what you've got planned for the holidays, Vivian's voice rises at the end of every sentence, or rather at the end of every though, why has he never noticed before, where has he been, and still Vivian's voice echoes in his head, I know how absent I've been, she says and, how rough it's been but, George look, at it from perspective, it's just I needed to put 100% into my own family, you understand, don't you? George? Don't you George Reels? Who is this Vivian? This self-assured family woman. This woman George has never met. Then, then he remembers, Vivian was pregnant. She had the baby and raised it with her lesbian lover. His baby. His sperm child. But then yet another real message plays, and George realizes that, don't think about that, that George, the one with the baby, must have been a different George. That Vivian a different Vivian. As far as this George is concerned, the real George. None of that never happened. And so George, the real George, listens to the real message from Margaret. The real Margaret. The only Margaret. Hey George it's me, she says quietly 
quickly, sounding a little scared. I just wanted to check in with you, see if you got in touch of your nani yet. I think it's really important. I care about you a lot, you know, it's just, well, anyway, just go see her. That's all, a pause for a moment, nothing but silence, dead silence, then a fast goodbye and a click. George has not heard it all from Vivian, only Margaret, Margaret, who says she cares for him, Margaret, who wants him to get better, Vivian never wanted him to get better, Vivian just wanted to hurt him, make him worse, she was happy to take his money and walk him into a twisted fuck, George forgets that he's the one who asked her to, that he wanted to be sick, that healthy was just too hard, too dull, he forgets all that, he just thinks, with relief, have a possibility of that happy dream couple they could have been, if only he had applied himself, George digs frantically through his closet until he finds the jeans with that slip of paper in them with the nani's address on it, he unfurls the paper, stares at the address in amazement, the house is close, practically in his neighborhood, what kind of sick fuck moves into the same neighborhood where his old nani used to torture him, then again, his parents bought in the house, George looks out the door at the front lawn for a long moment and jogs sluggishly down the steps and across the grass, Vivian drags herself out of her old beater of a station wagon and leans against it, staring at the dull, gray building before her, the parking lot seems to stretch in front of her like something only Ishul could have imagined, her tender breasts scream at her as they push against her bra, against the fabric of her shirt, she reaches inside the car and bends, carefully and slowly, to pick up her purse from the passenger's seat and is overcome with another wave of nausea, she retches silently, grateful nothing comes out, and then with a dark determination staggers up the walk to the clinic, whatever George planted inside her is pure evil, as it's eating her alive, and it's got to be removed, George climbs out of the town car, Benny shuts the door gently behind him as he takes his first steps, the house is a two-story, grey frame house with faded blue shutters that hang crookedly aside windows that are nearly opaque from years of accumulated grime and urban air, the small, front yard is practically a jungle, overgrown and out of control, salt grass brushes George's knees and the hydrangea and pyrocamphor tower over his head, Dead Ivy hangs limp and withered from the porch railing, and climbing honeysuckle peaks from the gutter. The sound of bees buzzing and leaves decomposing fill George's ears, as he walks the overgrown path to the front porch. He sees her, furiously rocking in a bent wooden rocker and glaring at him. So you found me, finally she asks. Her voice is coarse as if she's spent her life smoking unfiltered camels, and wisps of her cotton white hair blow around her face. Ah what George stammers, wondering how she knew, how she could have recognized him after these years. Through all that mess in my front yard, she says, pointing a skinny arm at the front lawn, and George realizes he was wrong, she doesn't recognize him, she couldn't. Still, he finds himself asking, do you remember me? He peers at her through the dark shadows of honeysuckle trees and dead vines. How could his nani, the woman who had such power over him as a child, had made him tremble with terror, had pinched him, tormented him, swung him from his dick? How could she have become this scrawny, pathetic old woman? Was it the ultimate justice that she, who had once towered over him, now struggles to get to her feet out of that old, creaking chair? Or just a cruel twist of fate? George briefly wonders what fate is in store for him, after all that he has done. Remember you the woman cackles again, harsh ancient air escaping from her lungs. Who in this goddamn world will bother to remember a pudgy little vermin like you? George trembles, his foot pausing in midair on the first step. Oh, course I remember you, George Schaefer, the woman cackles again. I never forget her pretty face. George shudders, as he tries to remember what he's doing here. Is he supposed to confront this old woman? Beat her? Torment her? Now that now that she's the weak one? Or beg her? For what? Forgiveness? He looks at her again, as malevolent as Vivian but in a rocking chair. Maybe she's not so weak, after us. Age isn't everything. Yeah, well, I was a... Uh, George clears his throat. It's just that I wanted to see how you've been fine and dandy, she says, gesturing at the decay that surrounds her. Living the dream, George walks up the steps, sits down uneasily on the empty rocker next to her. She grins at him, showing a mouth missing a myriad of teeth. Yet, yeah, George says falling, easily into the casual drawl of her speech. Just thinking about the old days, you know, used to have a lot of fun back then. His throat threatens to constrict and choked him on the word fun, but he gets it out anyway. She smiles at him, a slight question in her eyes. Yet, yeah, you used to spend hours and hours here, she says finally. Sometimes it was hard to get you to go home. Yeah, George feels something twist in the pit of his stomach, like he is going to blow chunks. Yeah, he says again. She nods sagely then stares at him from the corner of one eye as she jumps slowly on her gums, 
that's not what I remember, he spits out finally, a weary look crosses her face, George continues, what I remember is that you used to torture me, she shakes her head vehemently back and forth, but he knows that she's lying, what I remember, he says, is hating every minute here, I was miserable because of you, the skinny old woman is still shaking her head, no no number, George is relentless, you ruined everything for me, he screams at her, at everything, every relationship I've ever had is ruined because of the WAU, and George does something he really does, something he has not done since boarding school, he bursts into tears, in that vast nothingness, that horrible numbness deep inside me, there is a churning and gnashing, ripping out my insides, crushing my bones, my ribcage, everything shatters and falls apart, everything gurgles up the back of my throat, drips from my mouth, everything Benny, is that you, and then, silence, absolute dead silence, as George grows quiet, he feels a hard, bony hand resting on his knee, he remembers that hand, how it pinched and twisted at his balls, performed unspeakable acts on him, the woman speaks, her voice seems young, now, almost human, I'm sorry, she says, George hiccups, it was horrible, she says, George nods, unspeakable, she whispers, but there are things that must be spoken, isn't that right, Benny, Benny, but it wasn't all like that, you know, the woman says, her eyes plead with him, like Vivian's, what about your friend Marie, you too, you were like boyfriend and girlfriend when you were kids, so sweet to each other, the woman's face breaks into a smile, George can see that she's remembering better days, sunny afternoons, two kids in crisp, clean clothing running circles on the lawn, chasing after one another, George shakes his head, clearing his mind of the memory, I don't remember that, he whispers, until last year, I didn't even remember you, she grins wide, well it's a blessing, isn't it, George steps inside her rickety front door, feeling immediately ill at ease, the door frame is crooked from years of warping from a sinking foundation, the floor rolls away beneath his feet, slightly downhill, it is dark and cool inside, George waits a moment for his eyes to adjust, you see and the nanny's voice calls from the front porch, they are right in there on the wall, George blinks and swivels around, an old sofa and sagging armchair rise out of the darkness, draped with gravity warped afghan blankets and oilers, whose hurls stretch like grinning mouths, their bottom lips drawn ever closer to the floor, then he sees them, the pictures, they lie in the world beside the front door, black and white, sepia-toned, almost all of George, so many of him that it goes beyond the nostalgic and slightly creepy to almost gruesome and nearly unbelievable, do you believe it, Benny, Benny, it's like George was the only kid she ever babysat, or that he was the only one worth remembering, and then there is the girl she mentioned, Maria, the wall is filled with pictures of her and George posing in the bright sunlight, playing childish games, in one, he is lacing up her shoelaces, in another, she is riding him like a pony, the pictures flash in front of him, alternating between photo and memory, memory and photo, he remembers her, the first Vivian, she stood before him in Kedden frilly pink dresses, stamping imperiously and ordering him about, her moods were like storms across the ocean, quickly flashing in moments of terrifying manipulation, subsiding quickly once her wishes had been appeased, he had been her slave, the first George, George Porgy, she had called him, before her, his name had been don't think about that, George okay looking at the pictures, George realizes that this girl, this demanding, tiny, terrible woman, had taught him everything he knows, she was his first girlfriend, his model woman, she taught him how to love, the ups and downs of it, the grim, terrified clutching in a panicked, unreasonable, pushing away, she had taught him that love was pain and suffering, that it was better to hate the one you love, better to blame them for all the wretchedness they caused you, I can do better than that, George realizes suddenly, the fights, the torture, they do not have to happen, they don't have to be a part of me, George races from the house, his mind filled with the image of a happy American dream lover he can be, he and Vivian and his son in his sunny and charming California bungalow, playing happy, number, being happy, where you going so fast, pudding pie the old woman drawls at his retreating back, home, George Hillers, over his shoulder, home, the woman cackles again, her mouth stretching into that impossible jack-o'-lantern grin, wouldn't be in such a hurry if I was you, she mutters, her cackle follows George all the way to the shining black limousine, he climbs into the waiting limo and tells Benny, home, please, George is filled with an impossible delirium, just short of insanity, he knows he can be happy and perfect, if he just tries hard enough, he can make his own destiny, his mind rejoices, he can remake his own damn self any damn way he wants, just like those new age books claim, eh George boy, eh, Benny pulls up in front of George's house, tires screeching to a stop, 
George leaps out of the car without waiting for Benny to open the door. He has no way of knowing, no reason to hope, but he knows that all his happiness is waiting for him inside. His happy dream future is only just steps away. When George flings open the door to his American dream home, he runs headlong into a pitched black room. Thick smoke fills his nostrils, and something rough and scratchy encircles his neck. He is disoriented, frightened, his fingers clutch at his neck, where he finds a rope, a noose actually, which is tightening around his throat. George's fear escalates. George, says her voice softly out of the darkness, it is Vivian, his dream lover, his perfect woman, she will be nice to him if he tells her to be, she said she was tired of torturing him, she said so, he will pay her to be nice if that's what it takes, George thinks dreamly of his future life as the noose tightens, Vivian he says, can't she see in his face that he doesn't want to play this game anymore, the rope is choking off his air supply, George kicks and claws at his neck with his hands, he gurgles, trying to open his larynx to the air, he draws in a hissing stream of oxygen, not enough, then George's mind overcomes his body's panic, she is not really killing him, after all, it is just one of those games that they are playing, she doesn't yet know that he is done with the torture game and wants to move on to something more blissful, ah, uh, what the hell, George thinks, one more time wouldn't hurt, for old time's sake, his gasping, bulbous, red turned face grimaces that resembles a smile, what do you have to smile about Vivian demands from the darkness, there is some movement on the rope as she ties it off, then she steps into the small pool of light before him, what the fuck have you ever had to smile about, you freak she says, George finds his good humor starting to fade, as his face turns purple do you see this she gestures to the circles beneath her eyes, her orange freckles, you, she says, you did this to me, I never used to be this bad, a sick, rattling moan escapes George's lips, spots dance before his eyes, he has heard all this before, when is she going to untie the rope, is she going to bury him again, afterward, she stares at him in silence, for a moment, George feels a stab of real fear run through him, her eyes are haunted, hollow, he can't see anything of the Vivian he remembers, not in her eyes, not in her face, the Vivian he remembers is gone, slowly, she smiles, her curving lips fill his vision, I killed your son, Vivian whispers, the words echo in George's ears as if coming from a great distance, you didn't want him, you didn't care about him or about me, so I killed him, she walks slowly to George, he pulls desperately at the thick rope that rings his neck, he can't see past the fireworks exploding at the back of his eyes, but he can feel her, she touches his leg with her hand, I killed both of us, she whispers, she yanks at the rope, cutting it deeper into his neck, she laughs, and now, she says, I'm killing you, another tremendous pull and George's world goes black, he can't hear her breathing, he can't feel her arms wrapped around him, or the rope around his neck, he is nothing, finally, after all this time, he is nothing, he wakes up in a world of white, a soft white glow, he tries to roll over but can't move his arms, for a moment he panics, jerking his arms frantically at his side, he can't breathe, a small cry escapes him, then, then he understands the white room, and what it is that binds him, prevents his arms from moving, it is a cell, it is a straight jacket, a man about George's age taps on the small window in the door, George looks up, the man smiles and opens the door, I see that you're up, the man says, he lifts a clipboard and props it on his forearm, how are you doing today wh what George says, the man squints at him, do you know where you are he asks, George shakes his head, the man inhales deeply, Mercyhurst hospital he says, remember now George shakes his head number you remember me again, George shakes his head, doctor, Weinstein the man says, your psychiatrist George tries to shake the cobwebs from his head, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm not dead, Dr. Weinstein looks at him with a slight smile, alive as ever, he says, George detects a slightly ironic tone, but doesn't understand it, he decides that it's nothing, where's Vivian George demands, who Vivian, my girlfriend, Dr. Weinstein frowns slightly, notes something on his iPad and glances at George, who's Vivian he says, I told you, my girlfriend, you have no girlfriend, red hair, freckles, George says, there's no one like that, not here, and there's no Vivian, George stares at his doctor and then, as a smile spreads across George's face, his arms, his neck, his entire body relaxes, no Vivian, she never existed, never hurt him, never killed him, 
he breathes a sigh of relief, and yet, at the same time, if she didn't exist, then, then the pain of her non-existence is almost stronger than the pain of her actual existence, if she wasn't real, then what else wasn't, isn't, real, no, he decides, somewhere Vivian does exist, somewhere the doctor can't find, but no, Vivian was too real not to have existed at all, the doctor is wrong, and then, as if the doctor can read George's mind, he asks, do you know long you've been here, at Mercyhurst George shakes his head, he doesn't want to know, 15 years, the doctor says, nearly half your life, George reels back, struggling to free his arms, the doctor notices, the trick to getting out of those, he says, motioning to the restraints, is to stop fighting them, stop fighting us, George's mind is blank, he can't remember fighting anyone, ever, he is complacent, isn't he, acquiescent, he doesn't fight, do you remember what you're doing here again, George's mind is blank, I don't mean at Mercyhurst, I mean here, this time, the doctor gestures around the room, at the cushioned walls, the small barred window, do you remember what you did to end up in seclusion, to end up in restraints George's eyes widen, he shakes his head frantically back and forth, all he can remember is Vivian, Margaret, the house in the woods, the pain, that's what he remembers, well, the doctor says, turning to leave, why don't we give you some time to think, I'm sure once your mind clears, you'll remember, and then the doctor, pulling a jangling ring of keys from his pocket, unlocks the door and walks out, leaving George completely alone, restrained, and still unable to remember a thing, the doctor sticks his head in the door, it's not that bad, really, Mercyhurst is state of the art, state of the art, but it's still 15 years, 15 years of a life only imagined, he stumbles, falls to his knees, Vivian, Margaret, a dream, a dream, a dream, something wets his cheeks, rolls to his chin, tears, George is crying, he sobs, feeling the loss and the terror rise up in him, then it subsides, leaving him empty, clean, some time passes as George tries desperately to comprehend a situation that seems impossible, George gasps, pulling at his restraints, staring at the ceiling above, his personal hell, this can't be happening, this can't be real, it comes to him, then, it isn't real, this, Mercyhurst, the restraints, this is the dream, the hallucination, he screams into the silent room, somebody help me, somebody, Vivian he knows she won't come, he tries again, I demand that all my angels, spirit guides, all of you who know me, who want to help, I demand, touch my head so I know you're here, wake me up from this nightmare, nothing happens, and once again George sobs, but then, he feels a hand on his head, he moves his head, trying to look, trying to see, and then Benny's face comes into view, smiling at him, smiling at George, you Benny nods slowly, I can see you, George says, yes, Benny says, or is it the voice, the voice in George's head, the voice that's been there always, ever since, don't think about that, he stares closely into Benny's face, taking in the nose, the mouth, the cheeks, you're not bad looking, George says, you have the face I should have had, the face I always wanted, Benny smiles as if George has said something funny, something clever, and then George looks deeply into Benny's eyes, a mirror of the soul, his soul, it's impossible to say, neither of us turned out quite the way we thought we would, why can I see you now, couldn't you see me before, I don't know, you don't have to talk, you know, you can just think, you're always listening, and you, yup, George relaxes, staring at the blank, acoustic ceiling, thinking nothing, wanting nothing, somewhere, even if he can't see him, somewhere Benny waits, Benny is there, Benny has always been there, always will be, are we dead George asks, Benny gives a mental shrug, how should I know, you're not good for much, are you, fuck you, George longs to pick at his fingernails, but his arms are still tightly restrained, he can't even scratch himself, he can do nothing but stare at the ceiling, turn his head and stare at a wall, who are you George finally asks, ah, the million dollar question, you, George, am you, just as you, in all your delusions, your hallucinations army, we're one, George wants to jump free, slam himself into the wall, but even if could, what would be the point, what would he gain, instead, why is my driver named Benny he asks, why is your driver named Benny, or why I am your driver, Benny seems to be laughing, you never listen, do you, Ben explained it to you hundreds of times, I drive, you ride, simple as that, or some such bullshit, I don't get it, bullshit, I drive, but you tell me where, when, you're more than the rider, the passenger, and you, George wants to rub his eyes, clear his head, huh, I'm not your alter, George, you're mine, George's mind whirls, he doesn't understand, you're not real, you've never been real or George knows, of course, that's it, 
He's not real. He's not the driver, not the rider, not the passenger. He's never really been here, not in Mercyhurst, not with Vivian. It is a blessing, a relief. George closes his eyes, sinks slowly away. Now, now he gets it. Farther and farther he sinks. The room fades. Benny fades. Life fades. Somewhere, far, far off in the distance, George hears Benny's voice screaming, I want a cigarette, damn it. Somebody in this fucking shithole bring me a goddamn cigarette. Did you hear me? I'm Benny Schaefer, and I want a goddamn fucking cigarette. And I want it now. George hears the voice. He smiles. The weather won't make up its mind here in the unique desert village of Corrales, and M. I'm reminded of the Beatles song Here Comes the Sun, but where is the spring? Thanks to all my fans on Reverb Nation with Schizophrenic and Kirkliver, we had a blast redoing our flagship tune, Pound Puppies yesterday in the studio, Permanent No still seems to be a favorite, between my writing and art, in general, I am so happy to be finding myself, my voice, the real me, some just don't get me, but think I'm starting to shine through, with the schizophrenia pestering, body eggs from the Tourette's and meds, I call them tablets, it can be tough, my beautiful wife, Maureen and I are starting to build a pretty darn good foundation here on the compound, as far as I see it, great network of support and friends, and fans, we learned last year that I'd been allergic to two of the medications I've been on since I was a boy, and since we eliminated them, my anger issues seem to have completely dissipated, I lost a lot of relationships and friends over the years from when I was having rage attacks seemingly out of nowhere, the diagnosis of schizophrenia, as said, alone propels quite a grieving process that takes place, one where lots of brooding and contemplation over the real nature of things takes place, my goal in this journey called life is straightforward, to use the laughter and joy, and occasional peace of mind, to come out as my real deal self, and if that inspires any of you, then that's terrific, I have been through the ringer and had quite an intense, remarkable and perhaps fascinating life experience so far, and I keep going, I learn a lot every day from those around me, and if I have an episode, I call them spells, I try to come back from them as quickly as possible, using the resources I have, whether it's contacting my daughter, who has been absolutely terrific, or taking a PRN, medication as needed, or writing, the list of coping mechanisms keeps growing and my god, it feels great, this is my first post in a while, please see garnish.com when you get a chance, one of my caregivers, Heather, wrote a beautiful bio on me, thank you for that, Heather, Heather and I are putting together the big book project still, one of the old editors butchered the thing, so we're working hard to get it back into shape, Porcelain Utopia is the title, and it's basically a written account of my descent into madness from a few years ago, catchy and shocking, too, of course, there are three parts to the piece, which runs around 1000 pages, after cutting out the junk, I wrote the bulk of it about 5 years ago, part 3 also suffices as a novel in its own right, as a standalone work, it's called Lover in the Nobody, I'm posting a chapter a day on Jarnish.com and if you're using a mobile device, JonathanHernish.com is easier to access and read, anyway, one of the dogs is barking, that kind of bark that says, somebody is here so I'm going to sign off for now, and see what's going on, have a fantastic day and peace to all people, it's mid-morning, seems to have warmed up a bit here in the unique desert village of Corrales, and M. I've been waking up early every morning for the last year or so, no matter when I get to sleep, but I managed to take my wife out for a date last night, though a bit sleep deprived, I ordered my favorite dish, the nachos appetizer, can't beat it for only $6, and it's huge, have lots to do today, and Alex is coming around noon, not sure I'm up to recording another song, but maybe some spoken word stuff, we'll see, going to just try and take it easy, plus I have my daughter's appointment later in the day, I never look forward to the appointment but I end up doing well there, once I am there, I end up wanting to stay longer than the time allotted, I think I've been doing pretty darn well lately, not much else to write about the day, I just want to write what I can, and see what happens, I'm listening to Durand Durant's album All You Need Is Now, I still can't get enough of Durand since I was a boy, be well, my friends, and I'll check in later on, still starting the day, going to grab a coffee and smoke now, I hope you are all having fantastic days, whomever and wherever you are, I am just coming out of a pretty nasty spell, 
The SNAP can be tough, I'll tell you. I had wanted to block while the spell was happening, so as to give my readers some accurate insight, real insight, into these often brief but hellish episodes. But I decided to wait until my PR and tablets kicked and while I sat in the sun, using the healthier part of my mind to think everything through and remembering what some of my self-help books, and even my daughter, might have suggested, that it's more or less all in my head, just thoughts, as horrifying and debilitating and nightmarish as they can get. At the time, maybe an hour or two ago, I felt that I would have, for example, bad-mouthed many people on this page and would thus have to pay repercussions for doing so, later on. So I decided to write this blog post out now that I'm in a better frame of mind in a healthier way than I would have done before. If I were to describe the spell, now that I'm back out of it, I am unable to remember much of what happened. This is a common effect that the spells have on me, a kind of amnesia once the hell is over. This is probably more fortunate than unfortunate that the memories immediately desist when I come back to reality. Basically all my fears and resentments and agitations just took over my mind, and congested it, overwhelmed me with terrifying metaphors and symbols. To describe a psychosis like the one I had this morning is for the most part impossible. Only fragments would come up, it would be like trying to put a shattered stained glass window together and being able to describe its meaning. A true mystic might be able to describe an altered state of mind without effort, but for me, the spells are usually not describable in words, and especially after the fact. So, now that Leslie, one of my caregivers, is here, he actually showed up an hour early, I will get with him and probably not get caught up with creative activities but rather do what my body is telling me right now, to relax and take it easy, and if anything, to get into some mindless activities like filing papers and sit in the sun more, outside, and just be myself and remain present and self-aware. This illness can be a ton of truly mortifying weight on me, but as I like to remind myself, especially since I have been dealing with things in such a more positive way and just plain doing better by a landslide these past few months or so, I consider that I am, in a lot of ways, kicking the living crap out of this darn thing when I can, I can beat this. Heck, I am nearly reversing my diabetes, in a matter of months, and I lost over 80 pounds in the last year or so, I can kick the schizophrenia, too, at least live with it more comfortably, it's part of my mission, as I see it, one has to really and truly be in the right mindset, to commit to certain things in life, or to get rid of aspects and habits that you no longer want or need, I think I am getting there, I will absolutely doubt myself and even full on reject what I am saying here, at times, you know, we all have our demons and angels, but I am 100% committed to gently taking in any tiny measure of peace and tranquility that I can, and so to live the best life that I can, limiting the pain, the grief, the sadness and apathy that would otherwise haunt me until my last waking hour, I'd encourage anyone to go for it, too, it's beyond tough beyond anything that you or me or anyone might be able to comprehend, but as for me, I have to do this, the whispering non-violent fight, for myself, because that's all that I am, perhaps all that I have, there's no getting away from the self besides transcending it, the silence of sincere meditation seems to be the only time, when the body, mind and spirit are able to naturally transcend, sometimes that's all we've got, but it's gotten us all to where we are now, in this moment, so it must be good, although I had made a conscious decision to blog in the first place, I had set it up in my head, or you could say, programmed my brain so as to not allow self-disappointment if I were to miss a day, or two or three, the reason for my not blogging the past few days is because I have been in an exhausted and passionately apathetic state of mind, I still am, but that is the premise to this particular post, to get on here, and valiantly attempt to intercept the symbols and metaphors that the schizophrenia instills on a regular basis, and to rearrange the broken glass, and to pull out, and download some of the chaos, so that I might be able to convey some of the wonder about what I playfully call, fucking wonderland, it may not come out right, though I believe that even just having written what I have so far is enough to explain the illness with some light, and of course, love, I have to fight this thing, I just have to, I am still exhausted and spent, I feel alone in this catastrophic enterprise, though I have many people around me today, since I am the true expert on my experience, I am the only expert, others cannot get into my head or hear or see or know what I know, it's frustrating, I don't know where or who you are necessarily, but I find our connection through this blog quite spiritual, and intimate, and fascinating, my special thanks to all of you who are following me publicly, and I encourage more of you, especially those with mental illness, artists, moviegoers, 
writers and readers in general to follow me, and even interact with me. I love the connection we have and I have hope that more of us connect. It's special to me, you are special to me, I do have good news, I caught up on my sleep last night and was able to start the day with positive energy and a motivated participation, being engaged with the day itself and those who have been occupying it. One of my caregivers and I had one of those college, dorm-like, intellectual conversations about world politics, problems with, and advantages of, as well as socialist economies that seem to work, Denmark. France, we talked about economic fixes, foreign policies and on to Michael Moore style realities. The conclusion to our discussion was there are many elements to fixing domestic and world problems, but there are compromises to be made, and that, with good and decent companies like Starbucks or New Belgium, and other smaller employee-owned places, or those who work and are leading by example, it will still likely take many, many years to fix the American dilemma. As for all agreed, well, those are states of mind that are apparently unfixable. America might come back, I think it should, but we have to be okay with not being the best. A little moderation of thought and belief should be quelled and, honestly, I feel people should be a little more open-minded. After all, why the hell aren't we using the metric system? Anyway, it would have been a cool idea to record our conversation. It was fantastic. It reminded me of the illness, and how I said is a brain disease, thus, it literally affects everything else in the body, mind, and even spirit. I am just elated today that I came out of my funk from the last several days. I feel great. Other than that, I have been going over my big book project and have given the editor a lot of direction. Also, with my treatment team as a whole, I have been in the mode of increasingly setting up my public image which will be, and I believe is, and will always be, a reflection of my own true self. In other words, my more private image. I have spent much of the day figuring out who I want my audience to be, while planning different elements of Jarmish.com, additional blogs and medias, for example, a mini-podcast, maybe weekly, fireside radio chat, unbiased and unbiased blogs from those who know me, who might perhaps get me I would like to include them on the website. Simply put, I am starting to truly prioritize and plan for the things I want in life, what values hold true for me, how I want my arts and crafts to come across, what kinds of emotions I'd like to elicit from my audience, and how I might achieve all of this, realistically, of course. With that said, a lot of commitment, responsibility and passion will be required. When I'm going through the more difficult times, I think I'm getting a head start by getting out of them as quickly as possible. This is important to me, misery loves company, but I don't need the misery, I need peace. And today, I have a sense of peace, and hope, and aspiration. I know this will change, when it does, and I might not be able to expect much, but I sure can try to do what I'm capable of, by using the health that I do have to carry me back to the world, and all other good in what I like to call conventional reality, I have a growing list of films and books that have been recommended to me, which I will also have to prioritize, and, I am finally approaching the last of my hard copy, paper files which I have been organizing, when I am able and willing to, without allowing all of the work to overcome my sense of patience and, yes, resiliency. My wife and I will likely watch some Conan reruns this evening, and once my caregiver leaves for the day, which is coming up in a few minutes, I am going to put down on paper more of my plans, and, even action steps that correspond, and try to take it easy. The little things, the fact that I need to order a new box of post-it notes, for example, usually set my teeth on edge, but I have all that I need and don't have on paper, here on my desk, so everything is cool, as they say. Is that what they say? Well, it's what I'm saying now, laughing at the catastrophe of the mind, the constant, ever-chilling and debilitating, absolutely frightening, terrifying imp of the mind, my mind may be your mind, too, it's all I have the option of doing right now, and speaking of right now, and not whether I am going to sleep on time, later, what I'm going to eat for dinner, later, or how I am going to be or be not, later, I am here and now, and all those corny cliches about staying in the moment, and staying positive and essentially worry-free, without hesitation without a second thought it is possible, and I am doing it now. More will be revealed and shone and learned, and when I slip, I'll do what I can, when I can. I definitely signed up for patience in this lifetime, and it's a tough one, but I'm making it good, to quote myself. I've got to go now, but look forward to my next number, I mean my next post.
As I say on my music page for schizophrenic and caregiver, let's just forget the stigma and be friends. Seriously, if any of you have any ideas for me to improve my websites, or just have something to share that might be helpful in general, please tell. It's been a terrific day, and we're all doing okay. If any of you get down on yourself, what I would suggest to do is just feel it. Identify it. Some might disagree with me on this, but it's what works for me. Know that it will pass, it will pass, and then you can keep going. It's what I'm saying. So it's not the word of God, I'm being intentionally facetious, there's no need to worry, I hope you're all having fantastic days, make them good, because they won't last forever. This morning I woke up early and probably didn't get quite the amount of sleep required for my full on energy and alertness that I would have gotten with, say, 10 hours of sleep, but the coffee my wife's brewed was made terrifically strong and I took just a few sips already, mixed with some soy milk and I'm pretty much up and about. I lie here on the couch using my laptop for this post. Getting better posture has been something I've been working on for months, so these days, I prefer to sit upright at the desktop, but resting on my elbow kind of crookedly for now will do fine. I am doing well. I did miss yesterday's post, but that was alright by me, because I have been working with all my caregivers, who all work different shifts which only occasionally overlap one another. Most of yesterday was spent with my caregivers, having written out short-term goals, plans and even action steps, and I was able to convey some pretty helpful and focused direction as to what and where and when I need assistance with certain projects. I laid out the plans, with the overarching goal of preparing for a press release, which is slated to come out late next week. The press release will focus on my book that's being published online for free. As for one of the new forms of media, besides my movies, art, music, writing, etc., I was able to record the very first mini-podcast, what I referred to the other day as a fireside chat. Its final title is called The Real Me, and the first post is pretty much just a very brief introduction to myself. I have a bit to set up in order to post the audio online and link to it from the main website, so it'll probably go live on Sunday. I work with an engineer of sorts who helps me with the recordings and things. Sunday is our next studio day, I have good help here. Finally, they are people I can actually trust, for once. I also have a psychologist appointment later this afternoon, not necessarily looking forward to it, to be honest with you, but the guy is cool, and is here to help. He's a bit old-fashioned in that he does home visits, which I just love. They are going to work on communication, mainly because of the illness. There are many times I cannot tell when something said or something that I say is a joke, or serious. In other words, besides my not necessarily understanding certain social cues, my filtering system for language and tone of voice could use some mending, so that I can communicate and be spoken to more easily and coherently. That's about it for now. Have to shower, dress, and start my day, get on over to the office and things, and as I sign off for now, my beautiful wife and I will have our morning coffee and chat to catch up with each other, since yesterday was so busy for all of us, make it good, as I say, why not, it's really the only option, friends, p.s. come to think of it, I am fascinated by the fact that I am not looking forward to the shrink appointment and I haven't said why, I am fascinated by the fact that I am in the exact place that I need to be, also, fascinated by the fact that as I read over these blog posts so far, and I think that it would suit both you and me better, to stay on one topic per post, even on my audio posts. How do I know I am manic? What is my overall goal with all of this? Ugh, I'm frustrated, still becoming comfortable with this medium, so I will get down to the nitty gritty, and be able to focus, only in time, and that's okay. So, yes, it might take me some time to get used to this medium, and the whole real me going public thing. I'll get there. It's like when I started shooting my documentary film about overcoming the trials and tribulations of mental illness. I had to get used to the camera in my face and get used to opening up more and more, with honesty and the whole ordeal. As I said, I'll get there. The psychologist's appointment was actually something I wasn't looking forward to, mainly because I feared it would take me away from my work, and that I had been doing so well, that even an hour of my time doing artistic projects so that I could better myself and my surroundings you know how. Sometimes, it's like, enough is enough with all this health stuff, but the meeting was fantastic. 
with so many smaller issues going on, whether it was sleep disturbances, occasional irritability, or just general frustrations especially with all my projects and computer programming and electronic glitches ever present. Well, pretty much straight away, with the help of my psychologist, I came to realize that I simply wasn't taking free time, vacations, or just plain breaks. I had been working my ass off, full time, but never just taking it slow, and letting go when I needed to. So, in a matter of minutes, we came up with an experiment of sorts, which might or might not help me focus on what I need to and let go of what I need to, and just use the power of slow, in order to take the time that I need, not want, need. Immediately following the doctor's appointment, I picked up an old-fashioned wind-up timer, and since last night, when I was on full-on break, wallowing in the whole excitement of this new idea, I started this morning, to wind the timer up to 60 minutes and so to work during that time. Then when she chimed, without hesitation, I left my office and back home, and took my break, listened to music and had a smoke, relaxed and breathed. I had gotten frustrated with some computer issues, so it was perfect timing I could and did take my first scheduled break. Now, I have timed out this blog post writing session for a simple 20 minutes, and it looks like I am going to beat the clock. Then I will do a minimum break of 10 minutes, and in doing so, to think of it as an investment, for when I do get back to work. I absolutely love this idea, this experiment, this true gift. Soon, I hope, this will turn into pure routine, and I am now looking forward to next week's meeting with this particular doctor to explain the results of the week gone by, as long as I don't take breaks so much. I mean, a full day, even a full week of my time is actually better, but, as long as I don't fall into a depression where I stop bathing, and things I think that's unlikely to happen, but I look out for it, might be harder to fix if this were to become the case, than to fix the issue of taking the scheduled breaks. Studies show that, I believe, a 10 minute break out of every hour is most beneficial. At half time during a basketball game, the players are required to take a break, to rest, even though the coaches need to discuss strategy, etc. I just love this idea, excited about actually doing it, and I'm doing it. When the apathy or normal depression comes since I do still, of course have the bipolar element to the schizo effective going on, it's kind of inevitable I'll deal with it when it comes, just letting it happen, I can and should just let it go, and it's so new for me to know it's not just okay to do so, but that it is actually better and healthier, as the doc, basically said, optimal I started posting my new audio blog, not totally happy with the first session, but I'll, again, have to just get used to the new medium, I'll check in with you all later on, I have my favorite playlist blasting on the iPod, and one of my caregivers comes in a few hours, so I'm looking forward to that, I've got to get in the shower now, and dress, etc., making it good, again, and again, once again, I call out my huge special hello to all who are reading, and keeping up with me, it means the world to me that you are there for me, I say that, because I do, in fact, use this blog, and my art in general, as a means of therapy, and you are all a much appreciated part of that, there is lots going on, as usual, and I do have quite a palette of media projects I'm juggling, just recently, I recorded the second episode of The Real Me, which can be found on my main site, or via Reverb Nation, it sure is fun and rewarding, and thank you for all the interest right from the very start in the audio blog, going to mix and post before the day is over, so be sure to look out for it. Today's audio post includes my candid response to a listener's question a question I was touched to receive and one that I thought had a lot of importance, when it comes to society versus the self when dealing with the understanding, or not of mental illness and the available and reliability of treatments, or lack of, whether it is for schizophrenia or Tourette's or any mental illness for that matter. I think even mentally healthy people might find that we consumers, those with mental illness, deal with the ins and outs of the same basic waves and roles of life just perhaps to a different degree. I encourage my readers and followers to send me comments, questions, concerns, and the like. Basically, we are all in the same boat, and the boat carries us through different storms and summers. It's what we do with all our issues that set us apart and make us human all of us. I think it's accurate to think of those with mental illness and those without, to be different only by means of degree, sensitivity, emotions, thoughts and reactions, or responses to conditions and circumstances are really just different as a question of degree. Too many people and lights at Costco one might 
be slightly irked by this kind of environment, while others like me will often go into I need safety, now and run the hell out of dodge ASAP. I can't afford the luxury of negativity, negative thinking, negative behavior, negative feelings. They can be seductive. Like when going through a spell, I am getting better and better at getting the hell back to a sense of calm and peace the moment I'm aware that I without a doubt need to, without choice. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, as they say, and within minutes, I realized that I had a choice. Stay here in Ungroggy and sleep deprived leave me the hell alone, or let me find the peace inherent within me. I noticed one of my kittens, and couldn't resist, the peace. He was adorable, snuggled up at the end of the bed. How could I not want that? The timer experiment is going so well, I am addicted to it. I've been adjusting some of the details of the experiment, and so to suit me best, been taking my breaks, been working, been letting go. This afternoon, I printed out a label for my old-fashioned wind-up timer, it reads in delicately bold print, Tark the Sidekick, one of my many playful nicknames is Tick so I couldn't resist having a Tark Sidekick. I carry Tark everywhere, and I love him. Well, my next break is coming up shortly. What a relief that my breaks aren't breaks from reality at this point, after so much treatment and help. Tablets and onslaughts of trial and error, getting it right, getting my life, and every aspect of it, better, and more consistently better. A damn day is bound to come. I'm still increasing the list of tools needed for life's ups and downs. I'm no expert, but no one else can really get inside here, in my head, so I'm my own true expert. As I mentioned in a past blog, one last epiphany if you'll permit, how awesome that this moment counts and is real, that it works. Just right now, that's all. And so for the first time in my life, I'm catching a glimpse, at least for now, that letting go doesn't mean leaving it to burn away. Letting go is starting to mean to me that you are actually seizing what's being let go. Letting go is beginning to feel like I'm actually doing something, something good and worthwhile. I would just like to start off this post by sharing with you all that I am, yet again, pretty burnt out. My trusty little dark, the sidekick timer has been good to me lately, but here's a rather philosophical idea, I am taking a break, right now, but a break from Tark himself. I'll get back with him another time. I've got so many projects I've committed to, and they are all small. Short films, short audio blogs, short written blogs, short stories, short breaks. I need to continue with them and I will. I am staying on top of them, and whether or not I slept in perfect harmony last night, just to say that I am pretty low energy and plain burnt out should be enough. It's the real me, and speaking of the real me, I'm planning on doing another audio post in a few hours. The goal of staying real, and without anything holding me back from having a much different mood than previous blogs should work whatever place I'm in, of course that place being the here and now. Meanwhile, I'm looking back on an old draft I wrote in preparing for my forthcoming novel, Porcelain Utopia. I do have a lot going on today, good thing I rescheduled an eye doctor appointment I would have had to be at in about an hour from now. Thank you all for your support. Your support is always there, as long as you're reading and keeping up with me, even if I am unaware of it. When you might find yourself down and out, I wouldn't push it, but rather just go with the flow. Yes, it's one of those days, around here for me, as I peruse some of my old notes, I find myself astounded by the progress I believe I've made over the years and particularly the last several months. I thought I'd share some of this with you, I've written most of what follows in the third person, hope you can relate and enjoy, let's connect soon, any heat causes severe agitation, suffocation, jock itch and profuse sweating with a kind of claustrophobia when in restaurants or in stores, restlessness, needing fresh air, focusing problems, he has difficulty paying attention when reading or watching TV movies, feeling lost, confusing thoughts, his mind complicates simple ideas and concepts, he seems separate from his mind, it plays tricks on him, he tries to control it, he obsesses on the same thoughts often, just sitting somewhere, lost in his imagination, daydreaming plain things, he finds himself forgetting what it is he's doing while doing something, walking from room to room, wondering, what am I looking for, what was I in the middle of doing feeling absent-minded, today, I've had and still have mental mania going on, racing thoughts, hyperactivity and pressure to get completely lost and overwhelmed with computer junk and WORK, through staying mindful, I find it amazing, and almost philosophical, that I am not letting my physical self react to the some would call crazy mind, seems that my life depends on staying mindful, as I mentioned in yesterday's audio blog, this very moment, my mind is running wild, but I am somehow not physically reacting to it, in other words, I am in a manic episode this very moment, 
but appearing calm and composed to others who are here with me today, and myself, rather enlightening, and new for me, I decided to stay off the computer as much as I can, without pressuring myself, blogging this entry short and sweet, and hopefully inspiring, and just reading, thoughts that are coming in, worry stuff, and I'm just not willing or allowing myself to entertain them, I'm not letting my behavior complement what's going on above the neck, can't afford to, literally, just letting thoughts and fears, all that I simply don't need pass by, sometimes I identify certain thoughts by labeling them and even considering them, and sometimes I do not, you could say that I'm 50% Buddhist, you could say that I'm smack in the middle of a real nasty depression, way down deep, it's scary as all hell and it's terrifying and tragic, it penetrates like a morbid mystical terror, to borrow the term from Dostoyevsky, this depression is frightening me, it's making me quite paranoid, as well, my goal is to focus on the recovery process in these blogs as much as possible, although I could detail what I am going through endlessly tonight, while I am here in this god-awful state of mind, I believe it will serve you and me better to just wait until this thing passes, even writing what I just did is helping me tremendously, it's past 2am, and I am feeling a little taste of peace. Thank you for that. This is the key. I know this will pass. I've got to hang on to that. I'm letting the thoughts pass me by, and I'm fighting my damnedest to get into a good enough place before I get to sleep. If I can sleep at all, so that this won't carry on into the morning, staying in the moment while kind of planning my way out of this for the coming hours and days, the best I can do, with all that I have. I have usually 100 plus daily hits on this blog, and I've barely begun, so I owe it to all of you, who seem to care, to write about the solutions and recovery tools rather than go through all that are just absurd depression symptoms. I mean just read Sylvia Plath for all the sordid details. You know what I mean, I'll get through this depression, I will be back. Since the last post, when I was in a full on depression, I was finally able to get a decent 12 hours of sleep, and then last night, another good 10 hours or so, I knew I'd be back, resilient as ever, held on to that hope. I had been in constant communication with my psychiatrist, who has been terrific, and we decided to increase some of the tablets and rearrange one and how I am taking them. Apparently, I had been cycling very rapidly, from mania to depression and back, all the while I thought I was only depressed, down, and out. I'm planning on doing another real me audio blog later today, if you buy have any questions, please send them in. Aside from that, I have been taking on my responsibilities slowly and mindfully. Yesterday, I had lost most of my iTunes audiobooks and several songs. I took the time to go into the hard drive and re-download everything to a safe folder, and then add them back to the iTunes library. Mostly this included over 300 audiobooks. It took a lot of time, but it was a good OCD kind of activity. I decided not to multitask, to just do one thing at a time with short breaks more like every 10 to 20 minutes rather than every 1 to 2 hours. It helped tremendously, and now I have one more project out of the way. Medication is extremely important. Since it was evident that my rapid cycling mood were mostly due to the chemical imbalance in my brain, and not as much environmentally related, I needed to adjust the tablets. Yesterday, I felt like I'd rather be all dosed up with tablets and their side effects, in a kind of stupid than to deal with the minute-by-minute -minute mood fluctuations. The fluctuations affect me, and those who love me, the effects of my moods are not fun, for any of us. It got pretty bad, yes, but I'm definitely doing better, overall, these days, staying coherent and aware, etc. At one point I just started to laugh in the middle of talking with someone close to me, and this person asked me why I was laughing. I went hysterical, and said, dude, this illness is freaking crazy, man, it plain sucks, then the laughter became mutual, and I headed off to bed shortly after, schizophrenia does suck, it literally takes over the consumer's life, but, we have to laugh at it, it's impossible to beat something you can't laugh at, or even flaunt, at least, I can't, so, as I said before, if you can handle the depression, the mania's awesome, but it's the mania that might actually be the real killer, it'll never last, and if it does last, too long, I'll get knocked over the head with the depression, which for me comes directly afterwards, so my new words of wisdom might be amended, don't let the mania slip in for too long, get out of there and seek some balance, as much as you can, get sleep.
take a medicine that you are prescribed and hopefully a dosage and kind that you and your doctor have agreed upon, then the only things left are the side effects. I measure them based on whether they are worth having as compared to the symptoms of the illness itself, and then just deal with them, with the art of letting them go, like an itch you are unable to scratch, but it will soon pass, or you'll get used to it in time. Second thing is the knowledge that she is likely to hit a fan again at some point, so be hopeful, but be realistic. You can't cure these illnesses, you can only recover by managing them better, and accepting them, and if this makes sense, to actually love them. It takes time, my friends, so be patient, be very patient, and realize what you can do, and recognize your limitations, of all the hope you can dig up, but just don't expect too much. I don't mean that in a negative way, my point is that there's a lot of room in life for disappointment. All of you, and myself included we all have gigantic talents and strengths. Use them, use them all you can, and just take it easy. We're all in this quest together, having mental illness, or not. I did a double whammy on the Realme audio blog yesterday. It was fun and rewarding, hope you enjoy them. Others around me seem to have their own things going on today, though corresponding with some of my new Twitter friends this morning has been terrific, felt engaged participating, even if just online. As I posted on Twitter, I have been cutting down on my caffeine intake starting today, since others around me seem to believe that my rapid cycling moods, mania to depression, back and forth, all day long, evidently have a biological element, but the too much caffeine has also been contributing to this dilemma, which seems to be affecting those around me, which is something I have to take into consideration, and to come up with some kind of fix, a resolve. Today, I'm sticking to bottled water, it hurts me when the illness has negative effects on others close to me, schizophrenia affects not just the sufferer, but also those around him her. So I am giving this a shot, less caffeine. If my wife is unable to sleep, for example, because I'm up and about, muttering and puttering this way and that, and loving what seems to be the time of my life, I feel a certain responsibility to attack the issue, without delay. Sometimes, when someone else in my circle is affected by the effects of my illness, which I prefer to consider to be a third party because it is not me, I tend to, at least initially, feel like others might actually hate me. When the awareness strikes, I know that I need to step back and consider that this kind of thinking, that someone possibly hates me, for no apparent reason, could be part of the illness. When others react to my apathy, or my mania, or actual anger, often based on fear, I find it difficult to decipher whether somebody else is actually mad at me, upset with me, or if their reactions, specifically when they seem to run away from me, or even blame me, are just normal reactions, human reactions. Certainly, there is stigma looming everywhere, especially in the public arena, but here at home, I guess I need to step back when something seems awry and take a breather, realize that those around me do love me, at least to an extent, and that, say, even if some kind of sly remark is directed at me, seemingly, that the person who is verbalizing something that hurts my feelings or feels like an attack, he she could be just going through their own personal struggle. We all say and do things we don't necessarily mean, we often wish we could take those things back, but time just moves forward. Good and healthy communication is key, for anyone, for everyone, and for myself. We're all here in this boat together, mental illness, or not. I often say that, because I value that we are all human beings living on this planet and mental illness is actually a matter of one's reactions to the environment only different by a matter of degree. It's not necessarily, all about me, as they say. The true paradox of paranoia as I say, I'm doing my best, still, and I can feel love coming from my heart and coming in, from others. Got lots going on, lots of demons and irks. I may not did well on this but schizophrenia plain sucks. It affects every bit of life we suffer as of in us, and every brain function. Just have to deal with the deal. There are times, like today, when I want to scream out, enough with all this taking care of my health, stuff but what can one do? Just keep at it, step back, and sometimes, I just make my day, my own day, everyone's got his or her own demons and angels, and my life is getting good, getting better, overall, that's just a fact, I just have to hold on to that, and let the rest go, especially when that's all I have the option of doing, I guess the point to this blog has to do with acceptance, patience, consideration, mindfulness, and perseverance, among other things, I stay in touch with the source, my own version of the ether, or god, and, I will be back, make your day as fantastic as you can because now is the only time, everything else will follow once you choose the quality of your day.
Since I had been having manic episodes the last couple weeks, I met with a psychiatrist and we tweaked some of the tablets, sometimes prefer to call them, psychomeds. As a result I have been feeling quite irritable, and even paranoid. It will take some time for the new regimen to kick in. Since I tend to recommend to others to stay positive and everything, I think that I need to step back and practice what I preach. I have so many complaints today, mostly about other people, and things that I have no control of, so I need to step back and become an observer of myself. Little things are bothering me and well as much larger things, and a lot of things from the past. When people are paid to do things for me, it is only natural that I will have quips about what they are doing and how they are or aren't doing things, but I have to remind myself that these people, at least on a deep spiritual level do love and care for me, and are here to help, to possibly do things, and behave a certain way, might actually be for my own good. I'm sure this is the schizophrenia talking, but I'm quite paranoid that the people around me do not give a damn about me, and are doing what they want around here, that they are doing secretive things. I know this to be true, but at the same time, I realize this is likely not true. It feels like I am in both worlds at once. I feel like I am in between both realities. I'll try to make today the best it can be, and let some stuff go. I'm likely to record and post another real me audio blog this afternoon. Paranoia and misunderstandings can be a real killer. I hadn't even wanted to write today, or even do much of anything, but I decided to, because the more I share and be open about things, and, of course involve the illness, which I often just belittle by saying that, schizophrenia plain sucks, I end up helping myself, having written the little bit that's above has already made my day a little more peaceful, truly, for anyone, life can really suck, but I'm remembering to keep a reasonable perspective and just go with the flow, I am no son, but we are all saints, in a way, all children, so keep it going, get trampled in the thunderstorms, but just be who you are, that is what I am doing, and it seems to be working, I am definitely irritable, but I had to get some of this off my chest, and stay connected with source, it is literally all I have, all that I know I have, there's likely more that I have that's good and going well for me, and when I'm able to come back to the place where I might realize it, it will likely be a very pleasant surprise, stay well, everyone, now half an hour later, I have found some resolution, communicated with some people, and have found resolve, having identified the issues at their core, and communicated about them in a healthy, non-violent fashion, the rest of the day is mine, thank god for that, I'm doing alright, and will be back, I sent a text message and email to one of my caregivers in order to make up with him, there seems to have been a misunderstanding, my mind is shattering some normal events into pieces of confusion and fear, I am realizing that the jobs here on the property are going to involve some breaking of the rules, I am a more lenient boss than any boss might be in a normal job setting, I think I did well to explain the core of what was bothering me and so to come to terms with it in the healthiest way possible, I think I am thinking clearly today, I am making my day great, I hope this new medicine regimen will work soon, could take up to two weeks even though it's the same tablets, just different dose, I was upset last night, but someone I love asked me, using an idea I seem to have come up with in the last audio blog, to get to the core of what exactly was bothering me with two of my caregivers, though without using the word core, so, instead of ignoring the message concerning this, I decided to use the strategies I mentioned on the real me to actually act on, myself, so that I would walk my own talk, I find this fascinating, that I am possibly helping others, but in doing so, I am helping myself with the same strategies I talk about within the blogs, bottom line is that, and I give you lots of credit for this, too, because you seem to accept me wherever I am, wherever you are, I have a good project set up for at least this morning, what I learn from it, I can use in the future projects similar in nature, I'm expecting the best but preparing for the worst, computer crash, etc, just in case, and although those here on the compound today seem to be dealing with their own off day kinds of struggles, I am, like I said in my last blog, making my day, mine, I'm releasing the luxury of negativity which can often be so seductive and almost addictive, I was thinking of possibly blogging about this idea I had, a feeling I get, a written out theory, which I'll have to look up. It's an Oliver Sacks quote from one of his short stories about Atarita, where he mentions saying and possibly writing shocking things like I had written to one of the caregivers last night, and sometimes to others, as well, but that I perhaps behave this way when I feel trapped and unsafe, for example, in order to achieve a certain sensation of shock out of the person to whom I'm directing negativity, though I'd have to look it up, and I'm quite busy at the moment, but nonetheless, 
I could just add my own reaction to the Sachs theory, as I remember, it seemed to have been on a more subconscious level, even with Tix and Capralalia. I would add, that my take on that kind of symptom is also similar to one I write about, in my novel, Porcelain Utopia, that I want cancer, AIDS, etc., so that, I, can overcome them same kind of thing because when I wake up in the morning and remember that I have to make amends and undo what I did the evening prior, it gives me something to overcome, in a pretty deep, almost philosophical way. Peace and love to all people. P.S. Below is what I consider good and healthy communication, having been wrong, and whether or not I could help it or not, I think this dialogue below has some interesting insight. We all make mistakes, and I find it important to make amends, when needed, sooner than later, then the rest of the day can unfold positively. Caregiver, I hope we can make up. It frustrates me when you come and go as you please, let me know if we can work it out. I woke up in a better place than yesterday, had a crap day yesterday, and a certain kind of amnesia from whatever bad stuff might have happened. This is a common feature of my illness, a sort of blacking out. Love, Sheldon Sheldon, I am sorry to hear that, but I'm happy that you tell me what you feel. Since I am coming in today at 10.30am I took off a little earlier yesterday in correspondence with staff, since you were sleeping and had someone else there already with you. I will see to that my schedule gets more consistent than earlier so we avoid any frustrations. Thanks for the input. Sincerely, caregiver caregiver, thank you for this. I am sorry I overreacted. I basically felt cornered by you and possibly others on my team with what I took as secret stuff. Or upon waking, I realize even the term secret stuff is likely due from paranoia, and possibly due to the recent change in medications. When my routine, your schedules included, is tweaked changed, it tends to get to me. It wasn't my intention to be mean to you last night. I felt stuck, and saw no other way out of that feeling. I will bring this up with my psychologist today. I would like to be able to handle some of these issues better than I am currently. I simply felt trapped. The morning seemed to have restored me. Thank you for understanding. I didn't know that I wasn't told about the schedule change because I was asleep. So thank you for the clarification. Sometimes I fear that I am perhaps too lenient and easygoing. I just have to get used to that, and that this kind of job you guys have is unique and not like. For example, when I was running my own company, it will often mess me up when I fear that people are taking advantage of me. So thank you for your email this morning, it means a lot to me. I think I am a pretty loving and giving guy inside. Sometimes fear, in general, might not allow that part of me to show, and I am sorry about that. I continue to try my best, and work with the doctors and keep with my meditations, and everything else. I'm actually glad you got to see that part of me just in case it was to reoccur. Therapy can be tough. I have always seen psychiatrists for therapy and not psychologists. All these years, I never knew there was any difference. Just that psychiatrists prescribe medicine and psychologists generally do not. The psychologist I see definitely listens more and seems to help in a different way with conflict resolution kinds of issues. My psychiatrist is terrific, as well, and just like my caregivers they all are good to see and talk with for different reasons. They all offer a balance of good ideas, approaches, and energies. I am happy with all whom I work with for my mental illness needs, whether they are medicine adjustments, working on particular issues I want help with, or just plain companionship, and help around the house and with my projects. My psychologist and I talked a lot about being better communicators, and since I felt grounded in relaxation and reality, it was difficult to bring myself to the places where I am not grounded so as to resolve some of the issues that come up, especially with communication techniques, when I am more manic or even psychotic. As for now, all those in my support team have come up with certain code words like calling a truce when something uncomfortable comes up while talking or writing, something that is potentially a misunderstanding or coming from a place of anger or frustration, something that feels like if we kept talking about whatever it is at the time, that it's approaching a dead end of sorts, or rather a circle of never-ending non-resolution, we call, truce, and take 10 minutes to step aside and then come back to re-enter the conversation with refreshed minds, then try again. This technique seems to be working out beautifully so far, and if it stops working for some reason, then we'll come up with something else.
As they say, life is a process, I love that idea. It's comforting to realize that, the process is going well, it's working, it's making my days, my new life. I recommend taking on whatever anyone has going on with their lives that doesn't feel right, to tackle it. Life, heaven and hell, can be a deadly war or a peaceful war, but it's all a challenge, almost a game, but only if you choose to see it that way, and if you are able to choose to see it that way. Interesting note, I actually caught myself in a manic episode last night, I realized it, became aware of it, and identified, all on my own, took my PRNs and watched a movie, stopped working although that's all I wanted to do was to work, and still managed to get to sleep on time, around 10.30, woke up bright and early and terrific, and celebrated my morning, was excited about it, exalted in my day ahead, my commitment to lowering caffeine intakes has been successful for several days now, lowered my intake by about 75% or so, I don't find much difference in how it affects me and I'm not one to get headaches, so I'm not suffering too much from withdrawal symptoms, I'm still sticking to waters, caffeine free diet cokes, smokes, and balanced foods, so as to reverse the diabetes, which seems to be nearly totally reversed, I will find out in a couple weeks I think, when I get my next blood work up, the last year and a half, I've lost 85 pounds, and it feels fantastic, the diabetes is most definitely something I could deal without, so, yes, therapy can be work, can be tough, but no tougher than doing something you enjoy, and its focus is to help you, who wouldn't want that, stay positive and real, the next real me audio blog might be postponed, was going to bang out another one this afternoon but we have other things going on here on the compound which might need to take precedence, we'll let you know, basically I try for about 3 episodes per week, I've been looking through some old notes and this particular post below reminds me a bit of how I feel today, kind of full of complaints, petty stuff, needing peace, feeling some peace, wanting to know that everything is okay, I don't need to still be angry, I'm still afraid, but, hell no, not angry, I'm afraid of what the outcome will be if I do this, if I do that, or if I don't do a single thing, I need to come back, I feel like I'm channeling something, I feel like all the self-help books I've read over the years are doing a number on me, feel like this is some kind of opening act, using the word the letter I to open every sentence, maybe it's not a bad thing, not totally selfish, maybe I need to say I I, to really dig deep and see who or what this I actually is, after all, you and I are still in the same boat together, in many respects, the universal I, the collective self, humanity, in the stillness I seek in between writing breaks, it's the strangest thing all the new age stuff I've already read, all the spirituality I saw it well, just that they're kind of making more and more sense, I think I am starting to comprehend some of this stuff way after the fact, I feel like a woman in love I feel it in my gut my belly, might not have to look into others to know, to see, to be, to believe myself, my god, if I could come to the point in time when I can see others in myself, instead of the other way around, maybe that's what it is, maybe, ugh, my goals keep changing, see, right there, maybe I'm changing my goals, maybe I do have, myself, this feels way deep and philosophical, at this point, I lie in bed with this notebook and it's like a constant splitting of epiphany is totally embracing me, and I have to remind myself, Jonathan, don't worry if these intensely intellectual and spiritual epiphanies and flitting feelings of bliss and grace will end, just go with them, let it all stop if it all stops, just hang the heck out, let it go, Jonathan, let it all freaking go, just give me the energy, no, to hell with energy, give me the grace to just to just let my entire world go for crying out loud, it's okay, so lighten up, man, the mind chatter, the terrifying thoughts I am having this very moment it's not me, they are just freaking thoughts, I may not be able to discern what are normal disagreements or misunderstandings, but, for the love of God, don't worry about it, more than that, don't ever worry about it, the chaos in me is the chaos of God the community of me, and of you, don't worry about how you're coming across to others, I'm not, not anymore, I can't beat it, I can't beat the universe, it keeps changing, like the weather, I dive into it, as painful as it is, I let it go, I'll lose everything I have, I'll be attacked by symptoms, but I have to trust, everything, trust that I'll be able to sleep tonight, trust, that I don't need to find myself through my alter egos or hallucinations, other people, the truth is inside, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, the wizard of Oz, everything will be okay because everything is okay, once again, I woke up early with fantastic sleep, getting a reasonable amount of sleep, 
as many nights as possible, is so vital, especially when one has schizophrenia, as I do, I also find that napping during the day can disrupt my night's repose, I no longer take naps during the daytime, there was a time, when I did, and I found it nearly impossible to just nap for an hour or less, if I take naps, I inevitably call it a night, altogether, and then wake back up, at around midnight, my sleep schedule would be out of sync again, at least a week would have to pass before I could conceivably get myself back on track, since it is Friday today, and I have had a full week of busy work and even fun, I have been taking the morning slowly, I caught up with an old friend of mine and surfed the web a bit, still in my sleep clothes, and just taking it easy, having had a couple good days in a row, feeling a lot more balanced and stabilized, in general, I do have some plans for today, I will be working with my caregivers to create a daily routine written on paper, the goal for creating a schedule is to plan my days even more consistently than they are currently, second, once I get up fully, shower, shave and dress, I am planning to get back on my new book, temporarily entitled Light Under the Shade, I'll do what I can and be sure to take breaks throughout the day, I do not want to overdo it, by working too hard without any rest, we have a few visitors coming by today, but I am in need of more alone time, lately, I'm glad I'm able to realize this, I've let my caregivers know about the space I need, and they all seem okay with it, there's not much time, otherwise, that I have for myself to write, meditate, or just have some shoulder time, that's all for right now, lighten up go with the flow and keep on keeping on, as they say, the day is good, making my day my own, once again, the power seems to be in myself and I am doing okay, someone, probably Einstein, said something to the effect that it's only in the imagination where anything real happens, I agree, often daydreaming, or sleeping, there's just so much activity going on, and it's real stuff, I'm not just referring to hearing voices and hallucinating, I'm talking about self-discovery and who we really are, at the same time, thoughts are probably the only things in the world that aren't real at all, worrying and suffering isn't all that fun and most of our worries never fully manifest, some call it part of the person the ego, and they believe that it is not real law, reliable, I like to think that being out there, whether one's daydreaming or worrying, or fantasizing is actually quite a real experience, and oftentimes helpful, in other words, I think that the mind the ego can actually work for people, it's just a matter of allowing, accepting, and relaxing with one's thoughts, worries, fears and intuition, the mind is amazing, and can even be funny at times, I think of it as being part of the divine collective consciousness, and also symbolic and metaphoric, like dreams, when I'm going through a psychotic episode or while I'm in a deep trance meditation, even just taking a long walk, like I did today, I tend to pick up actual matter-of-fact information from within myself. A psychic medium, for example, might be able to download and share such information, but to the schizophrenic, the information is often fractured. I'm super fascinated with angels, spirit guides and ghosts, even clairvoyants. I have been a student of the new age since I was a teenager. I have been starting to get to know who the real me is inside, not outside, where all the truth is. When I'm in the right space, I love the mind and I'm often able to laugh, even about schizophrenia and dreads. In a way, there is no choice. I enjoy the days when I am able to use my mind, but not allowing it to use me, and enjoying my continuous search inward and seeing who I really am, which, of course, ancient knowledge and texts says nothing, when I can tap into my mind and feel and accept the good, the terrifying, the pleasant and the sublime, all else seems to go off in another direction, possibly taking on their own different lives, a splitting of realities, if you will, so, I guess, today, I just wanted to open up a little more, and let my mind do the writing, it's a whole other world inside, often it plain sucks, but sometimes, it is immaculate and wholesome and absolutely beautiful, just take a look inside, and you might find it truly inviting, I'm finding out a lot about myself, and some of what I've been picking up isn't the least bit of fun, but the more I'm able to relax into it, I mean, maybe it's the illness, but my god, is it just incredible, I have been in a negative space since going out yet again earlier today and contemplating some of the ideas that came out on the real me yesterday, I stepped aside and realized that what was going on was inside me, and as I felt that things were all wrong and what I was doing was worrying, 
I sat down to meditate. I went pretty quickly into a delicate but deep trance, and I let the thoughts, memories, worries, and feelings, both horrendous and profoundly peaceful, come to the surface of my psyche. Then I visualized the thoughts getting smaller and smaller in a tiny bubble and watched the bubbles go away. They simply came. I separated myself from them and then I watched them go away. I came on here to blog about this because near the end of meditation, I realized that being somewhat depressed, or low energy, there must be a lot of energy that is just being imploded, and not exploded. So instead of exercising, I have turned on the word processor in order to share briefly this technique that came upon me. I am now going to go back and meditate some more. I still feel a bit like my intentions might still be slightly imbalanced, and I want my reality to be more peaceful, so that I may truly realize that there is nothing wrong, so I am going to sign off and let my relaxation and tranquility become my reality. The dark side, the shadow, the devil does exist, but it's actually a tendency or an option not really a part of me, I don't necessarily have to choose it, and neither do you. For now, I feel good about myself, and my world. I don't want to wake up from the sensations and the stillness that are embracing me at the moment. I haven't been able to write or record my blogs as much as I had planned lately since I have fallen ill to the flu and a sinus infection. I am still not fully recovered, but feeling better every day. I owe it to all of you who read and listen to my blogs to express at least some of the many things I have been planning to write and say. You are a huge part of my therapy, and I am so grateful for your participation, just by being there. The last couple of days, due to this illness, the physical illness, not the psychological, I have naturally been slowed down. In fact, I was bedridden until this morning. I'd like to remark on this by sharing with you that, to my surprise, I have been able to use the effects of my body being sick to an advantage. My meditations have been lasting much longer and deeper, and since I am unable to do much physical activity, my mind has thus slowed down, and I am better able to engage in smaller projects and simply slow down my days, relaxing into a mindful and compassionate state. I'm noticing that by relaxing, and, for example, taking short walks here and there, today, I am enjoying smelling the roses that are often very difficult to find in the first place. I feel at peace. It is so beautiful. My otherwise uncomfortable physical sensations and feelings seem to be enhancing my mental state. It is pleasant to be able to enter the present moment and just be. Anytime a negative thought might occur, I am finding it easier to not avoid or contract it. Just being able to touch the moment and let everything be what it is. This is not always going to be the scenario. I know, I will eventually have encounters and conflicts, which will require interaction and engagement on my part. Though I am happy where I am presently, I am not able to take many over-the-counter medicines for my physical illness because I am allergic to most of them, so I am essentially using what I already have inside me, and my own mind, to overcome what was at first extremely uncomfortable. The mind is a powerful resource, and I hope that you might all be able to use it to your advantage when you can, and to really take your time to just let me and smell the roses when they shine be for you. The next time I write, I may be in a totally different place, a negative space, perhaps, but for now I am happy and proud that I can write this particular post from my heart and to know that I can come to this place of peace and freedom whenever I'd like. It's just like the roses, it's sometimes just hard to see them, to access them. When you turn away, it's okay, it's okay, as long as you keep turning back, with the schizophrenia, namely the social and more negative symptoms, even cognitive symptoms, which have gotten worse over the years, I must say that it can be a bit awkward to reconnect with old friends, for example, and to basically let them know about certain limitations that I have developed over the years, including that I no longer drive, or leave my house much, nor do I fly anymore, and rarely answer or even use the phone, similarly that I no longer feel comfortable or even able to direct films, on larger sets, but I compensate by sticking to the writing of them, and moreover writing novels, that I can even self-publish, so as not to have to get stuck in any uncomfortable meetings, business deals, those sorts of things, my friends have all been very supportive and understanding of this me that is still here but has improved in many places, and declined in other areas of daily living, last but not least is that I am not only celebrating my wife's birthday today, 
but also my one week, seven days of having zero mood swings, oh my, it's been a whole new world these last seven days, without any manic depressive symptoms, I think that this is due to a slight tweaking of the medicines I'm on, and having had to wait a few weeks for the new regimen to kick in, as well as my caffeine intake being lessened, my fervent dedication to giving my days better structure and absolutely meditating regularly and for long sessions, very deeply, has made an enormous difference, I used to think that my manic episodes actually helped my creative projects, and they absolutely did, now, I simply run on creative energy that is natural and healthy, and that doesn't crash me out, the depression also has helped me with creative projects, while in a state of emotional, even spiritual or existential, despair, I was able to get a lot of ideas and actually grow inside, as a person, I am still able to access great ideas and grow inside, just in a more controlled way, in other words, my emotions used to always control me and what I did, and how I behaved, the only difference now is simple, I am stable, I no longer have the worry or even the not knowing of where I was going to be in my head, in my heart, at any given time, it's not even that I necessarily have more control of the emotional swings, and thus my behavior, demeanor, etc., but that I can just go with the flow now, and not have the things in my life being controlled by any biological influence, or imbalance, let me write this more simply, when the mood swings had been rampant, they control me, there were countless times, where I doubted that or flat out rejected that, I was still able to live my life and often very successfully, it worked, but I had no control, the last week it's not that I now have control, I mean, the medicine, for example, does a great deal, but that I am no longer being controlled by my emotional imbalance, this could all change, I'm aware of that, medicines often stop working after time for no apparent reason, and I may essentially slip, and find myself manic or depressed, but if and when that time comes, I can deal with it then, I'm pretty much in the moment, and just happy the way things are today, right now, so, I will check in with you again later on, as I like to say on the real me, stay positive, stay real, and just go with the flow, use the resources you do have and if you are reading this and struggling, for example with getting proper support, or treatment, I urge you to dig deep and use that part of your mind that does work, that is reasonable and realistic, support and proper treatment is so crucial, I found that there is not all that much help or information on the web or in many rural areas, just keep at it, stigma is everywhere, it's inevitable, and I have had to get through a lot to get the people and support and treatment that I deserve, and you deserve that, too, you'll get there to a place where you are feeling at peace, we all have a lot going for us, keep the hope and faith alive and everything will find its right place in your life and even your inner world, I am no expert, but I am on myself, and there is a lot more of my life and myself that needs to be improved and worked on, and maintained, please do not ever give up the hope, I hope I will never give up the hope, besides love, it's the hope that is what I think really turns the world, best wishes as I sign off for now, much love and light, I send, I woke up with other people around me in negative spaces, my first thought was oh, number, but then I realized that my day is mine and that I do not have to allow others issues of frustrations and imbalance affect me, I immediately had my coffee and cigarette and put on my Mozart playlist to give myself the pleasure of a pleasant morning meditation, during the meditation, I was able to see the day as it might be for those around me, and to be compassionate about their perspectives I've been through a lot through the ringer, one might say, over the years, starting with child abuse, then social withdrawal and isolation, followed by my first break at 18 onto drinking and self-medicating, then the loss of most of my friends and all of my family and finances, the schizophrenia takes its toll, but I know that I am resilient and I also know that you are, too, all of you are fighters, if you have mental illness or if you do not, as I often say, keep the hope and faith alive and well, I am planning for a fantastic day, because I can, today, I meet with my psychologist and I was a little frightened before meditating to think of the topics that might come up in session, but I am an adult and I am resilient and strong, I can handle it, I can also hold on to the situation from yesterday that brightened my day, a Hollywood film company is showing strong interest in one of my award winning screenplays that has been otherwise sitting on the shelf for the better part of 12 years, it might turn out to be nothing but there is hope there, too, just have to wait for the go ahead, if there is any, as I often say on the real me podcast, 
stay positive and real, and make the day yours. Choose positivity and patience. Don't simply try to choose it. I consider trying to be maybe 3% doing. Choosing and doing is 100%, and it makes all the difference. I just experienced a spark that insisted I finally write another blog post. I haven't been around in a while because I have been experiencing increased manic depression symptoms, and lots of abuse issues, traumatic, PTSD, recollections with hallucinations and voices, both positive and negative. I have been concentrating on my music and my computer maintenance. I have 12 different computers and devices to maintain, very systematically and correctly, as my OCD insists. I have been overwhelmed by these projects, while additional tasks pile up as the days progress. I was advised to get away to a local hotel or invite friends over, but I have declined, as shown here in an email I wrote to a loved one, likely not going to hotel, but if I do, I might overlook packing, besides the necessities like clothes and toiletries, but also my laptop, iPads, iPad, and cords, as well as my wallet with identification, in case of a lost room key, and some loose change in AAA batteries for my noise-canceling headphones. Without all of these things I would go crazy, a loved one wrote me back, in witnessing my withdrawal and depression, possibly a mania-induced OCD and overall depression, otherwise, I've limited my blogging and podcasting to once per month, due to my condition and I think that is reasonable because I am likely to beat that goal. There is just a lot going on in my head, but it is all pretty normal for having schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of which is current trauma, both inside and outside my head, but I feel aware enough to separate the symptoms of the illness from the reality. A lot of the realities and the symptoms overlap, which was a large part of why it was so difficult to diagnose me, until I had lost everything, and thus couldn't function on my own, with no family, money or even a home. A loved one wrote back to me, things seem really difficult right now for you, I wish they were easier, whatever you decide to do regarding hotel is cool, I wrote back, and it sums things up, I am posting this because it might help others with illnesses such as mine realize that they are not alone, and though it's sometimes difficult to write, or communicate in general, I am putting out my best, thank you, it's mainly and currently just a nasty depression that I am going through, hallucinations and voices of my family, nuclear and extended, the physical, sexual and emotional torture and the voices, also some flashbacks of being left abandoned while home alone in the house for weeks at a time and I would run out of food, for example, sometimes the voices of my family members, which I recently read for schizophrenia is actually very common, actual people as the voices, are sometimes empty and ignoring the schizophrenic, possibly spiritual telepathy through which I am communicating, go ahead lock me up, they are very alive, the current situation with house, money and my things is unfortunate, but I will not run away geographically to solve my silly problems, I have lots of problems, yes, but I also have voices that are helping me through this, the headphones help a lot to quiet the evil ones, the angelic seraphim voices and people, if it weren't for them, I would have killed myself, but no way that I'll do that, even if the good voices were to diminish although they've been with me since I was very young, I will never kill myself, I'm not even raging, besides, my parents are not telling me to kill myself, it's just a battle in my mind, no one really wins, just that my divinity, and connection with it overcomes the beasts, that's schizophrenia, otherwise, we all have secrets, and a lot of this stuff is actually private matter, it's just the way this illness makes me think, that it is of a private or secret nature, I am pretty aware of the symptoms, find your bliss and own it, take it and allow it to flourish, that's what I have been doing the last couple of days, I made a decision the other day to get away from the normal day to day activities here on the compound, to stay at a local hotel while having access to my computer there, but in order to be by myself, without any of my usual close friends or pets, in order to give myself some mini retreat time, and stay with the silence, to make a long story short, the check-in process was horrifying for me, the front desk clerk was flat out mean, and inappropriate, instead of attacking him back, I let the adrenaline build inside me but simply asked him, calmly if he was having a bad day, he didn't answer, I asked him to take a deep breath and relax, politely, but he just wasn't up for it, the room was hideous, it actually had a rat inside the room, and I witnessed a drug deal just outside the door, way deep in the back of the hotel, near two dumpsters in an offbeat alley, so, instead of staying there for a week, I simply spent the night and returned home the next afternoon, while at the hotel, I experienced lots of paranoid activity in my thoughts, I was suspicious of nearly everyone I saw there, at the same time, I was aware that I was paranoid 
loud and suspicious, and I was glad that I was able to be aware of the unpleasant sensations, and to identify them as paranoia. It was just an incredibly strange phenomenon, because I would see a person walking around in the courtyard, for example, and think that he was watching me, or possibly spying, so that he could burglarize my room. But the healthy part of my mind would think, mindfully, that, sure it's possible that were the case, but when I considered that I could be simply paranoid, and that the feelings and beliefs were probably due to the illness of schizophrenia, I could not change my beliefs, but I knew that they were not real, it felt like I had to separate but integrated brains that had opposite opinions, and beliefs. Once I was able to believe that I was likely safe and just having symptoms of the illness, I found the concurrent mindfulness to be actually quite fascinating. Other than that, my diet has been adjusted by my own volition to hippie vegan salads, enormous amounts of water and vitamin C. I have been feeling great, and at peace, overall. I have been keeping up with the Real Me podcast, my music and social networking every day, studying Zen, which involves not really studying anything. If you are familiar with Zen, you'll understand what I mean. I love Zen and I'm finding more and more bliss, every now and then, which compounds and seems to build up, in layers of peaceful joy and tranquility, I'm dealing with my illness as well, and I feel like I'm on the right path, even with the blips, the falling down and getting back up again, make the day yours and make it great, the bliss is already inherent inside you, tap into it whenever possible because it is absolutely worth it, my intention has never been to accuse, attack, or even blame, my intention is to heal, and to forgive others as well as myself, and, in an effort to forgive myself and those around me, I begin this series, when delusions are real, the point of the series is to get a conversation going about how those of us diagnosed with psychotic disorders get people to believe our truths, after all, once you've been diagnosed as being psychotic, your credibility is never the same, even when you're speaking the truth, I have a podcast on iTunes, The Real Me, on which I reveal a lot about myself, and lately I've noticed how much those podcasts have been teaching me about myself and what I've lost, this illness has taken a great deal from me, including my ability to be recognized for my accomplishments, so, what I'd like to do here is recognize, some of those accomplishments, knowing that had my life been different, they could have been recognized in a more public scale arena, knowing, too, that because I have schizoaffective disorder, which is characterized by delusional thinking, hallucinations, and mood fluctuations, that many times, even when I speak the truth, I am dismissed, not believed, and my truths defined as mere delusions. I want to acknowledge my accomplishments not only for myself but for all of you out there, as well, those of you who may or may not already be diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, or any other serious mental disorder, whose truths, like mine, are so frequently dismissed as delusions. It upsets me even to write this, to realize that those around me can, and do, categorize what I say as delusional, and I wonder if that happens to all of you, as well. I'd like to start off by briefly mentioning that I was diagnosed with Tourette's at age 12 although, according to my mother, I had shown symptoms since I was 2. I sometimes wonder whether even then I was showing signs of the psychosis that has plagued me my entire adult life. I was 18 when I had my first psychotic break. It was Christmas Day, 1994. I was living in New York City and admitted to Bethesda where I was given a number of tests, medical and psychological. My toxicology report came up 100% clean, a clear indication that my psychosis was not drug-induced. My intake report by the doctor shows I had a loosening of association and pressured speech, both of which can indicate schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder with psychotic features. No wonder it took so long for me to get the right diagnosis. So many of the symptoms overlap. But I want to bring this back to delusion and truth, and how people so frequently label your truths as delusional. Once you've been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder, tomorrow, I'll give a more thorough background of my own illness, its genesis and prognosis, and then move on to those accomplishments, for which I've never truly been recognized. In the meantime, leave me a comment, let me know if what I'm writing resonates. Do you, like me, have trouble being believed? As I may have mentioned already, serious mental illness, such as schizoaffective disorder, is believed to be caused first, by a genetic predisposition to develop mental illness, and second, from environmental factors. In my family, I have a grandfather 
father, who seems to have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, according to old medical records I found recently. In addition, I have two second cousins, both of whom have been publicly diagnosed with mental illness, so, I would sure seem to be genetically predisposed to becoming mentally ill, but, having the predisposition isn't enough, you need certain environmental factors, as well. What I've read in some of the army literature is that mental illness can be compared to diabetes. A person may be genetically predisposed to develop diabetes, but if that person gets enough exercise and watches sugar intake, then the diabetes may never take hold. Same with mental illness, in my case, I had the predisposition, and I had enough trauma, sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, and upheaval, like my parents' divorce when I was young, that the illness took hold. Boy, did it take hold. Sometimes though, people, like my sister, who have a genetic predisposition, plus environmental factors, my sister came from the same family, had the same kind of upheaval, do not become mentally ill, nobody knows why, maybe, as my wife says, it's just the luck of the draw, she's kidding, at least about the luck part because having mental illness isn't lucky, but we do have to keep laughing about it, keep positive, you're never alone, if you can laugh with someone about it, as I've mentioned, I have schizoaffective disorder, originally though, I was diagnosed with depression, this was back in 1994, when I was 18, the next 10 years or so, I saw doctor after doctor, moving here and there, trying to find my place in the world. I had 7 suicide attempts and years of alcohol and drug abuse issues. My last suicide attempt was in 2001, and I was freed of my drug and alcohol addiction in early 2003, almost 9 years ago. As I was getting off the drugs, I saw a doctor, who diagnosed me with schizoaffective disorder, which basically means schizophrenia with a mood disorder thrown in, and in my case, that mood disorder is bipolar with manic features. But then, in 2005 and 2006, I saw a doctor who said I didn't have schizoaffective disorder, I had a personality disorder. The point is, getting the right diagnosis can time consuming and frustrating, but necessary, because once I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, I was able to get on the right medication, but that's a different story altogether. What I'm focusing on here is being diagnosed with any type of mental illness that includes psychotic features, which then makes it nearly impossible for people around you to believe your truths. My diagnosis, as I've mentioned, is schizoaffective disorder, which is a form of schizophrenia with a mood disorder thrown in, the double whammy, you might say, but not only do I have the double whammy of a thought disorder coupled with a mood disorder, I also have Tourette's syndrome, which is considered severe, since it usually tapers off in one's twenties and mine did not. I'm 35 now, so along with the confusion I suffer and the mood fluctuations, I also do can sometimes engage in coprolalia, which is involuntary swearing and yelling out racial epithets. Hard combination. Add to that mix, I also seem to have aspects of OCD, have to keep my computer arranged just so, PTSD, I frequently relive earlier traumas, ADD, I can't focus on anything for any period of time, autism or Asperger's, like Temple Grandin. I may be smart, but I can't read social cues at all, makes it difficult to hang out and just be one of the guys. My current psychiatrist, who never hesitated to diagnose me, as others had, saw me when I was at my worst. I was in the middle of a psychotic break, was in the process of a divorce. My wife and I have since reconciled, and I had no money, as my family had cut me off from my trust income. In the past, too many doctors had seen me when I did of my money, and I could hire the people to do what I couldn't, shop drive, clean, those sorts of things, and because those other doctors saw me when I could hire the people to do what I couldn't, they all considered me to be too high functioning to have any form of schizophrenia. As a result of my being considered high functioning, for years, I was diagnosed as having a personality disorder. Some doctors thought I had borderline personality disorder, others thought I had a personality disorderness, not otherwise specified. Let me tell you, having the right diagnosis has turned things around. At last, I'm now on the right meds. My wife and caregivers know the nature of the illness and know some excellent ways of dealing with the illness, and with me. And so, although the illness will never go away, I do have hope that I'll continue to get the right treatment and that my life will continue to get better. Now, the big one, what to do when people assume your truths are delusions. Let's start with just a little bit more background. Last count, I had approximately 30 rehab stints and or hospitalizations. That's a lot. When you're hospitalized, especially involuntarily, people tend to dismiss everything you say as a symptom of your illness. I understand that, but I don't like it because it's hard when people don't believe me. A couple examples.
Angels, I moved to Los Angeles in January 2001 because I wanted to be a Hollywood screenwriter. I was two days shy of my 25th birthday. I was a go-getter back then, a social butterfly, and found it easy to introduce myself to just about anyone. As a result, I met Joanna Cassidy, Dick Van Dyke, and others. Then as my drug and alcohol use spiraled out of control, I got myself into rehab. Because I had access to my trust fund, I could afford the rehab facilities where celebrities went, places like Promises in Malibu. In those places, I met movie producers, writers, actors, musicians, and kids of celebrities. The point is I met all these people, and some I befriended. And, because so many of the rehab facilities didn't help me stay off drugs and alcohol, I, along with a friend, started my own facility, Wavelengths, which also catered to celebrities. Wavelengths took a more proactive approach to getting people off drugs and alcohol. If you ever saw the show The Cleaner, you'll have a better idea of what I mean by proactive, in fact, the show was based on the friend with whom I started Wavelengths, and although I was never credited, I was also co-creator of the show. But now, when I tell people about the cleaner or knowing Chuck Lorre or Robert Downey, Jr. or Mel Gibson, people smile blankly, nod their head, and dismiss what I say as a delusion. That's maddening, if you'll pardon the pun. Another example, the summer of 2010, I checked myself into a facility in Colorado, so I could get on the right meds and try to get myself restabilized, because I was being admitted as patient with schizoaffective disorder, which is characterized by a thought disorder, including delusions, both my wife and my daughter spoke with the facility before I was admitted, so that doctors and social workers would know I wasn't delusional about the people I knew. My wife and daughter also let the facility know about my financial background because I don't always look rich. Lately, I like to dress in t-shirts and pajama bottoms. I like to keep my hair permed and wild, and I like to wear a beard. As a result, sometimes when I'm admitted, the staff person will write that I'm a little unkempt, and when I then start talking about the money I'm worth, that staff person will flash a little, tight smile like, of course, you are, and I have a Swiss bank account. Those staff people don't always know that I can tell what they're thinking, I can see it on their face, and they feel free to openly doubt my truth. More on delusions, the reason I blog and podcast is to share my story, and sometimes, I've got to admit, it's hard knowing that a lot of people may not believe me, I bring this up because I'm sure that those of you who read this blog, or listen to my podcast, must have as complicated a story as mine. I am just spelling out some things, kind of straight from the heart sharing with all of you. My family, as I've mentioned, is rich and powerful. Maybe your family was not rich or powerful, but still I think you'll understand. Their money and their power helped make me who I am, just as your parents helped make you who you are. And I'm not attacking anyone, I am simply telling the story of my life. I have earned the right to do that. Come to think of it though, maybe I never had to earn the right to tell the story of my life. People have a right to their own stories and to tell those stories in their own voice, no one else's. This is my time, my story, not my family's. And I owe it to all of you to share a little taste of the complexity of my life, so you'll understand the complexity of your own life. So, yes, my family is rich and powerful. That is not a delusion, you can look them up yourself. They are public people. Sometimes I think because they are public people, they have had a hard time accepting me for who I am. I know they have had a hard time accepting my diagnosis, and, really, I am not attacking them. Maybe they can't accept my diagnosis because they think it will reflect badly on them. I haven't talked to my family in over a year. I wish I felt sad about that, but I can't. My family doesn't love me. Sometimes I think they might even hate me because they cut off my money, and they cut off contact with me. But I'm getting sidetracked. What my wife calls going off on a tangent, so I'll stop. One area that has always been hard and created a lot of misunderstanding in my family is my diagnosis. No one has ever accepted that I have had the wrong diagnosis for years, and that getting the right diagnosis has helped me move forward. Not that a diagnosis makes the illness easy, and in many respects a diagnosis is nothing but a label. However, with the right diagnosis, or label, you can get the right medication, the right therapy, and people, like caregivers, know how to deal with you. The right diagnosis is a starting point, 
so you can read about whatever that label you might be tagged with, or might need to be tagged with. In my case, for years I was tagged with borderline personality disorder, BPD. On one hand, that would not have been a bad diagnosis because people then wouldn't label me as being delusional. On the other hand, when people did think I had BPD, they accused me of lying, which brings me back to my family. In the past, my family has told me to snap out of it and to get my act together, and then I would be fine. You can't snap out of schizophrenia. You may get the symptoms under control, and you may even, as John Nash did, seem to recover from the disorder, but you don't snap out of it. My family believing that I was capable of getting my act together created a lot of tension between us. I use the past tense here because I don't know if they believe my diagnosis yet. As I've mentioned, we've had no contact since January 2010, so I don't know what they believe. In January of that year, my family cut me off, stripped me of any help. I had no gardeners, no driver, I no longer drive, I had nothing. Based on what they wrote me at the time, they seemed to think they could do a little tough love, like you see on intervention, and I would agree to get better I was never not agreeing to get better. Believe me, it's no fun having schizoaffective disorder, more on this tomorrow, but let me leave you with my opinion that if your family and loved ones already believe your diagnosis, you are that much farther ahead, because if they believe the diagnosis, they can help. I'm taking my own advice today and staying positive. I think of all I have lost, and I can get very depressed. At one time I had editors, and housekeepers, free travel, a huge inheritance, my trust fund, and lavish cars. I'd been to the best schools in the country. I had public figure parents and several celebrities in my extended family, some of whom had actually, quite publicly been diagnosed with mental illnesses. When I compare what I once had to what I now have, I can get depressed. I focus on the past and fail to appreciate the present. Taking in my own advice to stay positive, I have three dogs, seven cats, and one bird. Now, some people might not think having so many animals was positive, but I like walking through the house and being followed every time, at least by one of them. My animals are one positive, another positive. I no longer have diabetes. I've lost so much weight that my blood sugar is normal. I still take one of the diabetic meds because it can prevent diabetes and because the other meds can cause diabetes. I still take that one, but I am healthier than I was. No diabetes is another positive. My wife is the third positive. We reconciled last year, and so far we are working things out and trying to help each other. My work is the fourth positive. The schizoaffective disorder has really affected my thinking and my emotions, but it hasn't touched my creativity. I podcast, make music, and blog. I have even sold a couple songs on iTunes. My memories are the fifth and final positive for today. Although my father and I had a falling out last year, that's his issue. He and I have had great, absolutely fantastic times and memories together. And when I focus only on those memories, I can stay positive. For many reasons, I have had quite a few psychiatrists over the years. My current doctor, who I call Dr. F, is the one who most recently diagnosed me as having schizoaffective disorder. When I went to see her the second or third time, I brought along five bookshelves worth of my journals, my diaries, all my written documentation of madness, the faxes and emails that prove that I had 700 hours of film that I shot that was stolen. That's it. Can't do anything about it. I have proof of a software development proposal I made when I was 15. Got a scholarship to business school, honors, and recognition. I was like John Nash except I was proposing software, not math, and what I proposed would have been the first online shopping interface, but it got taken away, like everything. I have the proof, the actual documents, real, these truths are mine, and I have schizophrenia, and I even have delusions but I know, and my wife knows, and my close friend know, that these are real, not delusions. I spent three years of my life developing a show for A&E television, I have the proof, I save everything faxes to the actual producers, and anyway, my point is that I have lived an incredible life and often, all too often, facts become so-called delusions to others, mostly to the others who actually count, like medical professionals, it matters to me, all of this really matters to me, it means something very special to me because it is about me, from my perspective, only my perspective, that's the only perspective I know for sure, it's part of my story, or as some might consider it the myth of that stupid shoulder kid, I know who I am, and I think I know who my friends are, I know I'm a legitimate and loving and grateful, spiritual human being who deserves to be loved and accepted and who deserves to make decisions and to make mistakes, to be forgiven to be myself. 
the Sheldon Palika who is not alone, who is loved, the Sheldon whose moods and behaviors might be a bit difficult to predict, a guy, a citizen, with schizophrenia, a full spectrum of mental maladies, who believes in some kind of higher power, who believes in himself, who tries, and tries, and tries, who never gives up, or even tries to give up resiliency, who struggles every single day as an adult who is still being abused, who has been abandoned and treated like waste a mistake, manipulated, Sheldon Bleeker, who is a teacher and a student, a rich kid who used to ride up front with his limousine driver, someone who used to be a real hole, often due to his drinking and drugging, and mimicking what he saw growing up in the people who would have done better, but just didn't know how, to protect me, I have been in therapy since I was 9, and was put away on far too many medications since I was 12, some of which I am still physically addicted to, and some which have caused me to gain weight, develop tardive dyskinesia chronic muscle stiffness, and some of which I was actually allergic to, causing me to rage and even increase my tendency to drink alcohol. I chose what I did regardless of what the literature suggests, or what certain medical studies indicate. I am who I am, and I have my own story, my own version of my own story, it changes and adjusts on a constant basis. I've been closed up for so long, I am opening up, I am not being inappropriate, I don't need to be judged, but I will be judged. I don't need to worry about what others think of me, but I actually do care what other people think of me. I can't control other people. Come to think of it, I can't control what thoughts come into my head and I can't control which ones leave. So how can I control other people, or their thoughts, on a deeper, or more spiritual level? How can anybody control the galaxy? How about the billions upon billions of existing galaxies and the billions of galaxies that have not even yet been discovered? That is what we are living with, within, at the same time. Even Jesus, he experienced the full gamut of the human emotion spectrum, having been so called spirit in human form. He was killed for that, for being who he was, for being honest and sincere, and essentially, for being real, his life was far from easy. The most enlightened beings in the history of mankind, Buddha, Jesus, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Krishna, and the Dalai Lama, they have struggled and suffered every single day of their lives, and they too, in a way, live within all of us. I want to let you know that you are not alone, you never, ever will be alone. I'm excited and determined to come to you, who are seeking, seeking something. Maybe you're just reading as you sit there at work, or maybe you're my family, checking to see how I am, if I'm misbehaving, what I am is a disabled, and yes, very troubled adult, but I'm allowed to share my story, my life, I am safe, now, I laugh now when I say this, but my wife is 24 years older than me, and if and when she passes away before I do offer any reason leaves me, I doubt she will, we seem to be doing very well together, I worry that I will be forced into a psychiatric institution back east, back by my family, when we don't even talk, I worry it's inevitable, I guess in conclusion, my life is full of grandiosity, but I still have schizophrenia, and I still have people who seem to have a need to control me, yet, want nothing to do with me, this fascinates me, why do they still want that much to do with me, you are who you are, everyone, don't let anyone ever kid you, if anybody tells you, or not, I am telling you and those I love and those who might be considered my enemies, I love you, I forgive you, and thank you, you are beautiful, special, and you are important, please take my word on that, don't give up the hope, if it slips away, grab back onto it when you can, and relax, take a break today, and every day, stay positive and real, just do the best that you can mistakes and triumphs, learn and grow, inside, you cannot lose what you have right now, and at the same time, only now, be with yourself, you are a temple, so take care of it, be well, and stay awake and aware, contract I will engage only in nudity or erotic content that is portrayed in a normal, healthy, positive, non-violent, and consensual manner, and relates only to normal, healthy sexual desires, I will not engage in nudity or erotic content that is portrayed in an unhealthy, violent, painful, non-consensual, morbid, shameful, sick, degrading, prurient or patently offensive manner, or which doesn't otherwise relate to normal, healthy sexual desires, I will only engage in conduct that I find fulfilling, I will not engage in conduct that I do not enjoy or do not find fulfilling, Signed, Sheldon Bleeker Mentally Ill Artist I'm a mentally ill artist. 
I made a video about that, or three-part talking head kind of documentary all about having schizoaffective disorder and the symptoms and what it was like coping with it every day, a pretty good video, illuminating, and then some mental health organization in Portland, who hadn't even watched the video, told me I wasn't really a mentally ill artist, rather I was an artist diagnosed with a mental illness, yeah, well, as Betty Midler used to say, fuck em if they can't take a joke, sleep deb I haven't been able to get a good night's sleep since I was 12, my wife tells me I fight sleep, whatever that means, sleep deprivation, sleep deb, insomnia nearly every night, I just know that for the past two weeks, I've averaged three to four hours a night, not enough, I get kind of crazy without enough sleep, I start hearing voices, imagining things, kind of like being off the meds I guess because I'm a mentally ill artist, like I said, fuck em if they can't take a joke, Potrusic praised my friend from my Long Beach days, a fellow Tarita, just had another book published, Wish You Were Me by Miriam Gerber, future tense books, it's so good and I want to write her in all my manicky, sleep depth mood, this is an extension of my manically induced, but absolutely necessary Facebook note I just wrote, OMG, your latest publication, wish you were me, what can I say, my dear friend, as says I'm indebted to you, but me, first as usual, for I haven't changed that much, since I retired from being your Santa, other than needing sleep, symptom of schizoaffective insomnia, overall, I'm finally stable, new med removed the voice harlouses and most the SED symptoms, I'm much better these days and coming on 10 years clean, married still, awesome, I see you are too. Fuck yes, miss us, know what I'm saying, but don't miss 2006, it was a turning point where I lost everything, and my family took over, and I just continued to slide, slide slide slide, down down down, but I hit bottom, got diagnosed finally, and redefined my values, I'm about to crash from this rapid cycle, but still I'm reading your chat book, over and over, it is purring, per, per, per perfect, my wife cried, at the Santa part, me, too, too much, you have such luxurious powers over my flitting and fleeting emotional dysregulation, for so many reasons, from our friendship, to hanging out, to that one tranny story in the beamer, I still have it, never follow an outline negate the outline, wander the reader astray, do not attempt to care for the reader, kill the reader, kill him or her, do not mention any borderline personality disorder, perhaps only implying one, no, the schizoaffective nullifies it, rape the neighbor, the character in my head is sublime, her pornographic nipples sting my lips, her lavish cunt stinks, imagine punishment, embed it in the reader's mind, and confuse her, write it as if to Vivian, spend ten years on it and dump all the anger inside, out there, do your Tourette's thing, take it all in, try to fuck a tranny, get high on speed first, do everything you hate, hate getting personal or public, or pubic, say, fuck as often as you can, ode to granny the tranny toretic, schizoaffective anger and buke, only words come out, it's 5am, no sleep, 2 days, 3 nights, I'm really a good person, I think of Johnny Twitch, I write to Vivian, he loves you, Vivian, he just doesn't know how to show it, he's angry and unfocused, and, yes he is still aware of his relationship with you, Vivian, he declares, here's the modern woman so here's the modern woman at her best, white trash princess, hanging halo, suspended above, I become Sheldon Twitch Schaefer, Natalie, I kiss her soft fatty belly, putting kisses there, mother of three, not yet a divorcee, I suck on her second extra long toe, it pleases me, she walks, chest thrust out, proud breasted, I fantasize about our wedding day and that Natalie's boobs are big, her husband beat her, an uncle molested, and now, I love her, I'll date her, with all her baggage cause I ain't perfect either, girl, Natalie, sweet natty, how I'd love to tongue thee, you say you like the finger in the butt trick, my index will turn brown for you, I was eating chocolate covered almonds in bed last night, when I awoke, I thought I pooped in the bed because I fell asleep before I finished eating, I'm a bad, bad boy, but that's perfect, you're a bad, bad girl, you're shy, so am I you say you love me, I say, kill me, eat me, suck me dry I love you, too but I want to give you an all inclusive Mackie over, like that TV show, extreme Mackie over, where they give you $200,000 worth of plastic surgery and you're unrecognizable, my dear, I'll dress you up like a little boy and pretend I'm Jesse Friedman, leapfrog, baby, 
Leap the fucking frog. Throw me in jail, baby. Make me the home wrecker of the year. I'm worse than Angelina Jolie. I'll fucking take anyone, including women with lots of babies. But your tubes are tied, baby. I'd untie them with my teeth if I couldn't give myself a vasectomy with a grapefruit spoon. I'd first give us a thousand babies, for you and me, or thousand baby cakes. A million screaming, whining babies for us to clean up after and for you. They'll suckle at your white, milky teat. Give me your motherly skim latte, you nut job, I beg you. With your pussy juice, I'll make a caramel macchiato. I'll get high off your sweet Hershey ass, you sexy thing. I'm sick over you. I want to throw up all my love on you. If you ever bleach your asshole, I'll have you arrested. So give me that brown eye, you three-eyed brown eye boo-boo. You make me a rattle philosopher. Allow me to spoil you rotten and play mind games with you. You start. I will shove my fist in you, grab you by the entrails, and turn you inside out. Red and slick and juicy, I'll buy you a glass dildo and you can pretend you're a slut while I give you, drumroll, your first orgasm. I want to eat tuna out of your pussy, mix in some mayo in and make myself a salad. I'd rather be fishing. Wanna come on your boat ride? Yes, I'll sail away with you, like the Toto song. Carry me off into the blue sky with its cloudless heavens with your tender caresses and charming rank vinegar smelling toes. But first, let me shave your head and buy you a wig intended for a chemo survivor, you poor thing. I'll be in the bathtub, shaving my legs. Then I'll shave my balls with a straight edge and cut it a little, just so I can see you during the day at the doc's office and have you stitch me up. My poor bathtub will be clogged with my bloody leg hair. I'll have to call a plumber who will also find my feminine products clogging the pipes. Friend, lady, baby, countrywoman, lend me your ass, and your ears, I mean ears, earlobes, lobe, frontal lobe, lobotomy, I need one, Natalie, please, suck my brain out of my ear, my face horns in, make your pussy sneeze, I'll chew my pussy needs to quit smoking, I think it is emphysema, it's an angry woman's face screaming with swollen tonsils, Adelgug, next time you French kiss me, remove the offending masses, those tonsils that swell and block the passage of semen down my throat, let me love you for once, let me feed you lies, let me lace them with a snick, a pretty tasting poison that will make your tongue dance and your eye dilate, I'll make pee pee in your butt, then you make pee pee in my mouth, then I turn that into the pee pee that will go into your, you know, the pee pee look like Gatorade but doesn't taste like it, it tastes metallic, golden showers, roman showers, throw up, yuck, red showers, brown showers, shitty, I'll cook you a thanksgiving feast of fesses and frankfurters, I'll sex you up so high that my temperature rises to fever level, I'll do the cooking in my rectum after I take my thermometer out, I'll buy the cookbook, first, when we're good and full, stuffed with shit and weenies, Wesley Willis will come over and have a threesome with us, serenading us with his big dick melodies, we'll attend a freemasons meeting, we can all have an orgy out in front of the boys in turn for secrets and magic lights, they will dance around in their funny hats, speaking in their silly language, letting us in on the big secret daddy bush and little bush both know, we'll get all your ex-husbands and all of my ex-girlfriends together and we can circle jerk around them, make me, Natalie, eat me, digest me, and we will become one, mug me, anger me, shame me, but love yourself, you tormented, pale child, before you can say you love me, chew on this, it's my big toenail, chew on this, it's my hair, lots of it, and lots of fucking plucked hair, tricky, trichotillomania, tug on this grapevine hanging off my asshole, they are called hemorrhoids, be gentle though, it kind of hurts, it's tender to the touch, put your tongue to it, bathe it in your motherly saliva, it's a new kind of sex, hemorrhoid filia, worship me, capture my raisins in a glass jar and save my small but many growths in a secret place, make ritualistic prayers unto them, invent a new kind of religion, a religion of my secretions and tumors and cancerous cells, those which are my offspring, me multiplying, inside you, in your barren womb, obsess on my medical records you have a copy of, want me to get sicker and sicker, want me to have one billion diagnoses of psychotically bizarre, Buffalo shit diseases, crazy stampeding manias of unknown schizotypical dysfunctions, I require you, punch me in the face, scrout my eyeballs, suck on them like a couple cough drops, I dreamt you'd have elephant pussy, I've got a silly dumbo pussy, her grey leather lips, their broad wingspan helps me fly, I fly away, can you whistle out of your ass, just pretend you ate something sour and blow a duty right out of the park, gross, I ate too many vegetables to just give a whistle, the blow will be more of a yodel, to be heard on the alpine slopes, 
Smell my ass, if you get anything out of me, I will give you a million dollars covered in shit if you love me, give me an orgasm so that I faint and die and my dry bones start to quiver with such delight. The bigger lasts for a century. I want to wake up in Satan's arms in the seventh ring of hell that Dante spoke of. I want to be suckled by Satan himself, at his left breast. Force me into a woman's body, turn me into a flaming tranny, hate me, and torture me, especially my little acorns. I want to be a tranny who working Santa Monica Boulevard and I will give all my money to the Tourette's charity. Clamp my boy nipples, tie them to the bathroom door at Jack in the Bucks and slam the door shut. Start cheering when you hear me yell. I hope you do it so hard my nipples pop off and I lose so much blood that I die and you revive me by holding a jumbo jack under my nose. I'll douche you with a fire hose, if you want. I want a fire hose in every orifice along with a fucking regular garden hose so that I can contrast water pressure. Remove my pubic hair with a burning torch. Keep your pubic hair the way it is, please. Tickle the fungal infection between my toes with the feather of the rabbit pigeon. Chop my head off while I sleep. Look me in my glassy eyes as you kick my decapitation around the room, laughing, cheering more and more. Let a little gassy out for a quick intermission. Play soccer with my bloody thoughts. If you have any questions, please see above. Fucking bury me in the river. My entire, everything, whatever. Finish me, okay, I'm finished. P.S. Tear my fingernails off, all the way. The skin underneath is soft, like a flat boil. Slice off my eyelids with a rusted razor blade so I can see everything. Tell me you love me at last. Give me a death sentence. Drug me up so that I'm so delirious that I jump up and land flat on my face. Take a lit cigar and melt my eyeballs. Make me a victim of massacre. Cremate me and eat my ashes. Why I fucking write my goal. To attain an ounce, a moment of seemingly impossible peace of mind, through complete honesty and self-love, by any means necessary. As I sit here in complete solitude, to dance with crazy, this is live TV, I'm on the air, live and real deal. It's the only way I can see it happening. And that, my friends, is my bluffed face. However it comes out, I can't bluff the truth. I just can't. Not these days, no way at all. Can I see the complete absurdity yet pure possession that this illness is on me silence? Come to think of it, my mind is the problem, the disease, remain silent indeed, those are just thought patterns, thoughts, that's it, not the word of God we are talking about, but, wait, my mind plays tricks on me, I might not be able to trick schizophrenia, but I can play with my mind, let me give it a shot, let me try to laugh, okay, I cannot, porcelain it's very true, there are more iron pots, I think, than porcelain ones, but you may depend upon it that everyone has something, even the hardest iron pots have a little bruise, a little hole, somewhere, I flatter myself that I am rather stout porcelain, but if I must tell you the truth I have been chipped and cracked, I do very well for service yet, because I have been cleverly mended, and I try to remain in the cupboard, the quiet, dusky cupboard, where there is an odor of stale spices, as much as I can, but when I have to come out, and into a strong light, then, my dear, I am a horror from the Henry James's novel The Portrait of a Lady, the worldly Madame Merle, a collector of antique porcelain, describes herself in the following passage, Utopia, simply stated, the ideal place. For now, as I cry my eyes out, in a child there is something about being loved and protected by a parent, or guardian knowing that I can be loved for who I am, not what I can do, or might one day become. Unfortunately it's not usually like this in every single situation. From time to time my parents made mistakes during my childhood, possibly I was the mistake, or unwanted, but I don't know, I had every material thing that I could have ever wanted, but there was still something missing, as if I felt distanced from my parents, or misunderstood, in the ways that they treated me, at times I had felt completely loved and accepted by my parents, but for one reason or another, they were unable to care for me, provide for me, in some ways that would have been very important, sometimes I feel like I am trying to make up for the experiences in life that were absent when I was a child, who the hell am I now, envision a blend of a mentally aligned with unsurpassed resiliency and fiery intellect and your result would be the brilliant me, manic tone scripts with parallel lives, masochistic tendencies in sexual escapades, and disturbing clarities embellished with addiction, fetish, lust, and love, are just a taste of themes found in my glad you don't live my life. Conversely, my award-winning films capture the ironies of life, love, self-acceptance, tragedy and fantasy. I would have otherwise wanted to create art that evokes laughter and shock, elation and sadness, 
that overall forces you to step back and question your own version of reality. To hell with goals, dreams and passions. Just kidding. I want to be a Hollywood baddest truth be told. Scripts, screenplays, and schizophrenia are defining factors of my glad you don't live life my reality, but surface labels are often incomplete. Screw it. I'm diagnosed with several mental illnesses from schizoaffective disorder to Tourette's syndrome as I tell everyone, even the brace face lush puppet clerk at the local Circle K, just for the shock element. I dub myself the king of mental illness, despite daily symptomatic struggles and thoughts. Other mythophicas have written about me that I radiate an authentic, effervescent, and loving spirit, and okay, I suppose that's true, or maybe I'll just write that myself. Who knows, only me. But honestly, my resiliency emanates from the greatest lesson I've learned, laughter. My diagnoses and life experiences encourage him to laugh at reality as others see it. Wildly eccentric, open-minded, passionate and driven, Sheldon has a feral imagination. His inherent traits transpose to his art, making his works some of the most original and thought-provoking of modern day. Despite my impressive formal education and awarded honors, to hell if I'm your normal, down-to-earth guy. Meditation, Duran Duran, vivid colors, Patrick Nagel prints, and rearranging furniture are some of my favorite things. Vices include cigarettes, chewing tobacco, caffeine, obscene and inappropriate teretic swearing epithets, even racial ones, and sausage and green chili pizza. I sure enjoy irony, planned spontaneity, redefining myself and change. Where do I live? In my fucking head, trapped in this cage of a body. Time time for me is ill-defined, open for discussion. Yeah, maybe I really am 36 years old. Maybe I really was born in 1976, but for any hour of the day, any day of the week, I could just as easily be 12 or 13, 24 or 30. I just as easily could be in the year 2012 or 1912. Time traveler, that's me, the 6th of August. 2006 Miriam, sorry about rushing off that email last night about Thursday, I panicked, I had been in a spell from Wednesday evening until we spoke and have been missing my little kitten, Sprinkles, she had been trying to venture out on the patio here all day, I kept trying to keep her inside, having not seen her for two days, I kept making up imaginary reasons of why she wasn't here and shortly after I got off the phone with you last night I learned that Sprinkles had fallen off the balcony down 20 stories from the oceanfront loft I just scored to get away, from persecution, and things, and that neighbor sex partner demon chick, onto the cement and died, I'm going through a roller coaster of emotions and just need a little more time to think. Thank you for understanding, my Santa. The 10th of August, 2006 Jonathan, I'm really sorry about Lockheaton. I hope you feel better soon, Miriam. The 18th of August, 2006 Hey Bubs, hope you're doing well. I'm through the toughest part of dealing with my little kid's death and have been thinking about you and your book deal. Hope you guys can settle on a nice cover that'll do the job, being funny and sexy at the same time. Let me know, but she must be a chick who's fucking playing with her hair, if she's not nibbling at the roots in a tritchy way. I'm a little wired on espresso this morning and waiting for my own book to come back from an editor I recently found. It's a Canadian sir.